Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, broadcast live and recorded live on November 28th, 2020. The time right now, 9.58 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Hal Ketchum unfortunately passed away this week at the age of 67 from a cause you would not expect. He died of Alzheimer's disease, and when he passed away, he had dementia. In fact, his dementia was bad enough as of about a year ago to where he stopped performing. He was performing all the way through then and kind of forcing himself through it. At that point, he was so far gone, he could not continue that and his wife made that announcement to people. That was in August of 2019. Hal Ketchum was one of the first country artists that I listened to and enjoyed in the early 90s when I became a country music fan. I lived in Riverside, California in the uh, early to mid-90s, and uh, at the time, partially because of the big uh, line dancing craze, which I never got into, but that fueled a country music craze, and Riverside, which already had... Uh, a lot of country music fans, it really exploded there. And there were actually four country, mu- country music stations that were on local radio. Uh, so you couldn't miss it. And uh, I got caught up in the whole thing too, and I became a fan of country music. And to this day, I actually like the late 80s and early 90s country the best. I don't like the modern country as much, but I, I liked it from that era a lot, all the way kind of like through the early 2000s. But I thought the best was around that time. And uh, this was probably Hal Ketchum's biggest hit. He had another one called Hearts Are Gonna Roll. I don't think he ever hit number one. I know this was number two. Hearts Are Gonna Roll is number two. He may have had one or two others that were number two or number three. But uh, what was interesting about him, he actually worked as a carpenter for the, a good part of his younger life. He was 38 when he had this hit, which was like really his first big hit. So he got into the country music scene kind of late in life. And uh, he had success in the 90s, and then after that, uh, for whatever reason, he kind of fell off. But he continued to perform based upon his uh, 90s success all the way through 2019, as I mentioned. He had some kind of a neurological disorder. It says here, uh, acute transverse myelitis, which I didn't know about until after he died at the age of 45. And that actually caused him to lose the usage of the right of the left side of his body. And he continued to perform for another 19 years. So he actually learned to play the guitar uh, with only one hand. And uh, basically the left side of his body was paralyzed and he lived that way for the final 22 years of his life. I have to imagine that this had something to do with his early onset dementia because some kind of major neurological disorder in your mid-40s is kind of unusual, uh, as is uh, this early onset dementia. So a pretty sad story. Uh, nice that he had the success that he was always dreaming of later in life than you'd expect to first become successful in music at age 38. But And, and I enjoyed him. He's one of the people who uh, – he's one of the artists who I listened to and enjoyed, and it made me seek out more country music. So when I heard he died, that was kind of sad. I wasn't even aware that uh, he had this dementia until he was already gone. So uh, anyway, that's why I opened with that song. And, of course, we have a – much more high-profile death to discuss this tonight that, of course, has a lot of connection with Las Vegas. That is with – that's the death of uh, Zappos' former CEO, Tony C., and uh, he died at 46 in a house fire. So we'll talk about that. Uh, before that, though, we're going to have on a guest tonight. Kind of came together pretty quickly. 
The guest we're going to have on tonight is someone who is also a frequent listener to this show, Bart Hansen, a longtime respected figure in the poker community, a good player, and someone who uh, has a successful training site called Crush Live Poker, which our own Cal Watt uh, does the technical work for. So uh, Bart will be on tonight, and there's also a topic about Bart, which is kind of what gave rise to the discussion that was going to make him a guest tonight, except we're not going to talk about so much. Like, I'm going to have a separate topic about him and a Twitter fight he had recently, but we're not going to really talk about that much when he comes on. I'm going to tell you what's going on with that, and then we're going to kind of move on and have him talk about some other things. But I have to cover the Twitter fight because that's what I do. You know, I cover all poker Twitter slap fights. That's uh, even, even ones I get into. Like, you guys have heard I've covered my own Twitter battles on here. So I, I don't, I'm not even. Uh, leaving my own issues on Twitter off the show. Anything that happens on Twitter involving poker players that I think is interesting, I will report out here. So let me quickly go through the agenda that we'll get going. We do have a free roll that started at 9.50. You can still get in until 10.15 p.m. That's 12 more minutes. And that is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It's a $52 free roll tonight. I think that two people who offered to donate their prizes because I said we had no money for the free roll. I didn't see that until after I uh, took some money that hadn't been claimed in six months. So I'll use your guys' donations next week. Thank you for that. But this week we have a $52 free roll all with forfeited money. The way this works is that if you don't claim your prize in six months, then at any time in the present or future, I can take your money if you don't come forward to claim it. So you can still claim it after six months if I haven't given away yet, but after six months, no promises. It may be given away. I will never pocket the money. That is my promise to you. I will never pocket any money that uh, the free roll – that people win and goes unclaimed in the free roll. This week, I am putting back in the pool money won by Player123 earlier this year, $22, and Mulva, $30. So that makes 52 First prize is 26, second prize is 16, third is 10. So that's 26, 16, and 10, a $52 free roll on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. Make sure make sure to go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, exactly as it sounds, to understand the rules for qualifying for the free roll. I can pay you in various ways, Zelle, Cash App, Bank Transfer, Bitcoin, or other methods, but not PayPal. Not PayPal. You can ask me which other methods I have, but an answer will not be PayPal, at least not now, because I don't have a PayPal account. They banned me, and in fact, they responded like months later. I sent them an appeal to the executive office. Matt the Rat did that and got his account unbanned. I tried it. Complete failure. They said, nope, your account stays banned. They would not tell me why. They said, I violated the rules. I violated the terms of service, but they will not tell me which ones I violated. I really have no clue this time. Other times, it was very flimsy why they banned me, but like I knew which rule they claimed I was violating. At least I, at least I understood what they were doing. I didn't agree with it, but at least I understood. Here, I don't even understand. Here, I, I really have no clue what caused it this time. I'm not just saying that for the show. I mean, I really have no clue why they banned me this time, but they claim I violated the terms of service, so I have no PayPal at the moment, as I mentioned before, but maybe we'll rectify that sometime in the future. But at the moment, it's not rectified. But I can pay you pretty much any other way, including Bitcoin, which crashed a few days ago, just before I was about to cash it out. It's kind of on its way back up. We'll see. We will see. 
If you want to call the show, the phone number, as always, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line, which is an old 70s rotary phone, which sits on top of Mount Charleston, which is about 45 minutes away by car from Las Vegas. It gets snow in the winter. It's about 30 degrees colder than Las Vegas, typically, including in the summer, sometimes more than 30 degrees cooler. Nice place to go, especially when it's really hot during the World Series of Poker, went to 110, 115 degrees out. It's a nice place to visit for a break from that. Looks nothing like Las Vegas. It looks like a mountain setting. It's you'd be shocked how different Mount Charleston looks from Las Vegas, despite its proximity. But I have a, I have an old 70s rotary phone which forwards to me wherever I go, and that's 702-430-1808. Can't text it, but you can call it as a number to call into the show. It's a separate line into the show. The call to listen line is a number that you cannot use to talk to me, but you can use it to listen to me. It's a way to listen to the show, either the live show or the streaming reruns when we're not live. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. We also have a second call to listen line, 641-741-1095, kind of like the backup in case the first one is not working right, but usually the first one works. It does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require the internet, does not require a very good cell phone signal. As long as you can complete a call to a number in the United States, and as long as you can do so for free, then it's a free call, unless you have T-Mobile, then it costs one cent a minute. Everybody else, if you can call a number in the U.S. for free, then it is a free call, and you can enjoy it to your heart's content, whether we're live or not live, and it never buffers, never freezes, it just works, it just plays over a million minutes listened to on the call to listen line. If you're forgetting these phone numbers, just click on the radio tab at the top of the screen and they will all be listed right there for you. We also have a chat room that now works for people without Flash. It works with any device. does not require Flash. All it requires is a forum account that has been validated and is in good standing. If you have that, you can get into the chat room, which really is only of use during the show. But if you're listening live, then check out the chat room because if it didn't work for you before, it will work now. Also, remember on the radio page, you can listen live that way. It does not require Flash anymore. That will also work with any device. If you want to listen in the archives, which most of you do, we get 95% or more of our listeners in the archives. Most people do not listen live. But the archives, we have many ways to listen. We have iTunes. We have Google Podcasts. That's a new one. We have Stitcher, TuneIn, Bullhorn. Bullhorn actually has its own call to listen line. If you want to listen to the archives with a call to listen line, they, they provide one for you there. The number is always changing. That's why I can't give you the number, but it will provide you with a phone number and make the call for you. Very useful app, Bullhorn. And then we also are now on Spotify and iHeartMedia. A lot of ways to listen in the archives. Oh, by the way, the reason I was a day late is because I had a headache that lasted for two days. I think because of the unusually dry air in uh, Southern California. I am sensitive to temperature changes, it seems, headache-wise. I, I have tension headaches. I have chronic tension headaches. I've had them for the last 20-plus uh, years. There's nothing that worries about – there's nothing that worries me health-wise because if it's been going on for over 20 years and nothing's happened to me, obviously it's not going to kill me. But uh, these are – I have like 250 tension headaches a year. Usually they're not terrible, but I had a pretty bad one the last two days, and I cannot do a long show like this with a headache pounding. I just can't. Like, sometimes I'll start with a headache and take some pills and it'll go away. But I knew that headache was not going to go away, so I didn't do it last night. So good news is I don't have a headache. The, the bad news is I don't have a monitor, and I'm using a laptop with a monitor a distance away. But, okay, we, we've got going here. Uh, 
good thing my girlfriend was still up to get me the HDMI and all that. I didn't know where that was. And we're going to get going. Here is the agenda. We're going to have Bart Hansen on after we talk about the Twitter battle he had yesterday with Jeff Madsen. So that will be the lead topic. Only because Bart's going to sleep. He doesn't live in California anymore. So he is uh, up not as late as he used to be, at least according to our time zone. Former Zappos CEO and uh, downtown Vegas investor Tony C. died at the age of 46 as a result of a house fire, which occurred on November 18th. Very uh, shocking story and sad story, so I will tell you about that. I'll tell you about some fallout that has occurred from uh, or to Vital Vegas, a.k.a. Scott Robin, who tweeted some pretty callous stuff about him and now is uh, taking a beating on Twitter. A nasty Venmo hack has been targeting well-known poker pros. And this is something that's not getting as much press as it should, but this is something that is a bit worrisome, and I will tell you about that. You'll learn all about the Venmo hack and also how to prevent yourself from becoming a victim, which is very possible, honestly. If you're you're like a total unknown in poker, it's not going to happen to you most likely, but if you are either a somewhat known poker player or someone who has... uh, traded money back and forth with poker players on Venmo, then you are definitely vulnerable. You need to listen to my advice on how to prevent being victimized yourself. Bellagio has renamed the famed Bobby's Room. I'll tell you what the new name is and why that happened. A former employee of an armored truck company that services Bally's Atlantic City came up with a pretty clever scheme to steal $1.7 million in broad daylight. And he did so without any kind of weaponry and without assaulting anyone. Really, no other human beings were involved. It was just a theft. So I'll tell you about that theft and what happened. Doug Polk's match with Daniel Negreanu has continued. Doug has done very well in the last two sessions. I'll tell you what's been happening with that and where he stands. Furthermore, we'll talk a bit about the 2000s and Daniel Negreanu's other high-profile heads-up matches. I bet you may not know about that. I think there's a good chance that you've never heard of Daniel Negreanu's other heads-up matches. But yes, he had them in the 2000s. Two sets of matches that were talked about a lot at the time, but are now probably forgotten about, or perhaps you weren't around in poker back then. So I'm going to tell you about them because I watched the results of these pretty closely at the time. And in fact, one of them had to do with Never Win Poker, a site I was heavily involved with at the time. Las Vegas and Mojave Desert History was a new segment I came up with about a month ago and debuted on this show. And I talked about Zizix Road and told told you all about Zizix Road. That was our first segment of Las Vegas and Mojave Desert History. And I said that we will have this every so often if it looks like there's a good reaction to that segment. It was kind of experimental to see if you guys would enjoy it. I didn't know if you'd find it boring or if you'd enjoy it. Well, I got overwhelmingly good feedback on the first one. Everybody enjoyed the first installment of Las Vegas and Mojave Desert History. So we're going to do a second installment tonight. This one will be about the MGM fire of 1980. So I'm probably going to alternate between Las Vegas and Mojave Desert History as far as which one I cover. But the segment's going to be one of those two things. Maybe I'll throw in something else having to do with other parts of Nevada, but kind of that whole region. Uh, a lot of people don't know much about it, especially people from out of the area. So 
I will do stories like that, especially focusing upon history that goes back you know, a lot of years. I'm not going to do history from 10 years ago. It'll be history from, you know, like 1980, before 1980, things like that. So stuff you probably didn't hear about in the news or hadn't heard about in a very long time. Poker Fraud Alert member Binks is alleging that slot techs are rigging the slots in Virginia at gas stations. And you may say, well, why hasn't anybody been arrested? Well, Binks says that it's actually legal what they're doing. So I'll tell you about the Virginia slot rigging that has been alleged and why that's actually legal. I've had a request to cover this topic about greyhound racing in the U.S. And there was one listener who really wanted to hear about it and even sent me an article to read about it. And I don't know. Up until today, I was like, I'm not sure if I'm going to cover this. I'm not sure if this interests me that much. I know it has a gambling element to it, but... It's not really on the West Coast, and I never had that much interest in greyhound racing, so I wasn't that excited to cover it. But just today I decided to read the article he sent me, and I go, well, this is interesting. Okay, so I am going to cover it. So he's going to get his wish. We're going to do, the, an art, we're going to do a segment about the death of greyhound racing in the U.S. We also have coronavirus news. I'm going to give you updates on both Master Scaler and Eric Benzamokin, both of whom have COVID. If you listen to the end of last show, you'll hear that uh, Eric caught COVID-19, and I'll tell you how they are both doing. We'll talk about the ugly winter that's likely to come for the Northern Hemisphere, not just the U.S., but any country in the Northern Hemisphere is going to have a winter during the coming months. We will talk about the ugly winter, COVID-wise, that is likely ahead of us. I will do kind of an editorial on... The confusing and dishonest messaging that I feel is fueling the lack of public cooperation in the U.S. When you see people engaging in uh, COVID irresponsible behavior, whether intentional or unintentional. When I say intentional, it's like people who know they're told to do something else and just uh, do what they feel like. And then there's unintentional. People think they're being safe and they're really not. So I'll tell you that a lot of this is happening because of confusing messaging from the media and dishonest messaging from the media. Confusing meaning that they are just not presenting the message well as to why rules are made the way they are and why you should do certain things and not do certain other things. And then there's this dishonest messaging where the media just outright lies and knows they're lying for various reasons, sometimes political, sometimes because they think it's for the greater good. So... Unfortunately, all of this, and I've been saying since the beginning, just be honest with everybody. Just be completely honest, whether it sounds good or bad, regardless of which political candidate you think it might help or hurt. Just be honest about the situation, and we will be able to handle it the best. And the media has not done that, and now people are not cooperating, and that is part of the reason we are getting such bad spikes. And it's going to continue throughout the winter, so I'll tell you why I feel this is happening, uh, and this includes everybody. I'm talking about uh, why people on the right are behaving the way they are, why people who are not on the right but are still acting irresponsibly are behaving the way they are. I'm going to tell you a lot of it has to do with confusing and dishonest messaging. I will tell you that during that segment. And our final segment will be about the World Series of Poker 2021. There's not much talk about that yet. But I'm going to tell you about WSOB 2021, and what we can likely expect from it, given that the coronavirus will still play a part in that. I've already told you I'm probably not going to play, but it's going to go far beyond that in that segment. So that'll be our final segment tonight. We're going to find Trader Ruski, 
then we will get to the Bart Hansen thing, and then we will get Bart Hansen himself on the show. And uh, Jeff Madsen, by the way, who's a subject of the first segment we're going to do here, is listening. At least he told me he's going to be. He's not going to be on, but he's going to be listening. So let me find Trader Ruski, and we will get going. Can you hear me now? Bro? I can. I can hear you now. Very nice. Okay, we have we had to do some emergency uh, technical work here with uh, my monitor failing on my laptop. Let's let's throw on this call here. I don't know who this is, but let's, let's throw him on here. You didn't get passing, motherfucker. Don't talk about me like that, motherfucker. Okay, thank you, Jeff. Oh. <laughs> I have a feeling that may not have been Jeff Madsen. That's just my guess. Okay, let's let, let's talk about uh, Jeff Madsen, even though this. Uh, Fake Jeff Madsen doesn't want us to. We're going to do it anyway. So here's what's happened. Jeff Madsen is a Trump supporter. Jeff Madsen is somebody who has uh, expressed a lot of strong political opinions and has caused a lot of controversy on Twitter. And he's one of the people who believes that Trump got cheated out of the election, which I don't believe. And I, I pointed out to Jeff today that even though I am a conservative, even though I did vote for Trump, and even though listening to the show or reading my Twitter will reveal that I'm the opposite of someone who could be considered liberal or on the left. So I'm not one of these fake conservatives who says, oh, I'm a conservative, and then I'm really not. I, I really am a conservative, and I'm not one who was once conservative and still identifies that way. And not only am I a conservative, I'm a conservative who still voted for Trump. I wasn't one of these never-Trumpers. Uh, I, I wasn't crazy about Trump four years ago. I actually warmed up somewhat while still seeing his flaws. Uh, and, and still understanding his limitations. You know, I, I didn't, I'm not saying he's uh, the perfect candidate and definitely not the perfect guy. I have a lot of issues with him personally, but I still voted for him. And uh, I'm still going to admit, as I did after the election was over, a few days after the election was over and it was very clear, that Trump lost, that it was over. So that's, that's the truth. Now, had this been super close like the way Al Gore lost in 2000. Had this been super close where it came down to one state and hundreds of votes and then Trump ended up losing, I would say, yeah, I believe election fraud affected it because that would make sense. Because I do believe there was some fraud on a fairly small scale, but I believe there was some fraud and that the fraud did benefit Biden overall. But I don't believe there was massive fraud that would have closed the gap between Biden and Trump in any state. Forget enough states for Trump to have gotten to win the election. I'm saying that any any state that Trump lost, I think he legitimately lost. I think even if you remove all voter fraud from the election, we still end up with the same result as far as which states Biden won and which states Trump won, which means even though there was probably some voter fraud, which is very hard to prove, by the way. They, they've been able to prove some small instances of it, but the amount is very hard to prove. But we would need a massive amount, which would be, at that point, easier to detect. The amount that would have had to have occurred, you'd have to uh, – it would be pretty easy to detect at that point because it would be that massive. Uh, that There's no evidence that it occurred on that scale. And that's what I try to tell other conservatives, that you may have wanted Trump to win. You may have hated the mail-in voting uh, method that was being used this time, and I hated it too, and I saw all the flaws, flaws with it, both uh, real and ones that appear just from the optics of the situation that Trump seemed to be the 
winner, the winner on election night and then turned out was not the winner. And that's a very, very bad look for the U.S., regardless of who wins. And, and I saw this coming. So I am not happy with that result, but I believe the result is correct. And Jeff does not, and he's welcome to have that opinion, of course. Unfortunately, a lot on the right don't feel this way. They still feel that Trump was cheated, and they, they need to realize that's not what happened. But if they don't agree, that's fine. Not everybody has to agree with me. But Jeff is one of them who believes that Trump was cheated, and there's been a lot of controversy on Twitter because of that. There's a lot of people have been fighting with Jeff over that. And uh, Bart Hansen, uh, he brought up something that uh, – he brought up the matter that Jeff believed that uh, Trump had won the election and started up a discussion of that, and it got kind of nasty. Now, I'm going to tell you here that Bart, uh, when the whole thing was done, he told me that he didn't really mean for it to go this way, that if he had to do it all over again, he probably wouldn't have done it this way. Even Not about the reaction. Like The reaction to Bart was actually much better than the reaction Jeff got. Like Much more people were on Bart's side, but Bart said, you know, I didn't really mean to do this. I wasn't trying to really you know, start up with Jeff or pick on him or make him look bad. I was just uh, – I, I just didn't agree with a lot of the things he was saying and just wanted to – Cite this as an example that uh, of something that bothers me. But he wasn't trying to start up with Jeff personally, and he kind of now now that it's all over, kind of says, "Oh, I, I kind of if I had to do it all over again, I probably wouldn't have done this." So that's why we're not going to have Bart on here to bash Jeff because he doesn't. He's not even thrilled with the way this whole thing went down, and that's nice. Like it's it's. One can start up a Twitter fight with someone and fight back and forth, and if you get more people on your side, and guy, ah, one, I owned you up. But Bart's not even like that. Bart's like, hey, you know, I, he told me privately. He's like, you know, I, I kind of, uh, uh, I didn't mean for it to go this way. So he stands by what he said, but he he didn't really mean for it to go this way, is what he told me, and and I believe him because he's like telling me this privately. So uh, anyway, I'm going to read what happened, and then I'll give you my opinion of the whole thing. So he he wrote. I'm talking about Bart here. He wrote on the 26th of November at about 5.30 p.m. Pacific, he quoted a Jeff Madsen tweet where Jeff tweeted, Twitter free roll, just retweet this tweet or comment below, and then if there is no Democratic voter fraud this election, I will send each of you 10K. That sounds like a very generous offer, a free roll where if you just retweet what Jeff wrote, if it turns out there is zero voter fraud by the Democrats, then he will send everybody who responds 10K. Now, I... Don't know if he has the money to send out everybody who responds 10K. If you get if you get uh, 200 people responding, that's already $2 million. So that, I, I, I don't know about that, but here's what Bart said back. Exactly what we don't want in the future or predictive event betting. This Q, and he's referring to uh, QAnon, which is this uh, conspiracy theory group that some people on the extreme right are part of. So he's accusing... Jeff Madsen of being part of QAnon, which I, I don't know if Jeff is. That's just what Bart is saying. This Q is trying to give a free roll on a non-tangible event. I'll bet against your unfounded thoughts and opinions on results that can't be can be defined. Uh, I'm looking forward to to trading against your versions of the truth. So basically, Bart's saying here, there's no way to define whether there was or was not any Democratic voter fraud. Like there's a there's no what he's trying to say here is that uh, Jeff is saying, hey, I'll give you each 10K if there's no voter fraud. Well, how do you prove a negative? How do you prove there was no voter fraud? Even if we can't find 
Democratic voter fraud. That doesn't mean there was none. So then Jeff really didn't have to pay out. And so, so Bart was annoyed with this, that there is no way he can really lose, is basically what Bart was saying here. But he's saying, hey, Jeff, if you really want to bet with me on something tangible, where it's very clear if we who wins or loses here in our bet, then I'll do it. So it was a reasonable point by Bart. And I agree with Jeff that there was some voter fraud, but some can be anything from one person committing voter fraud all the way up to massive voter fraud. The question is, what scale was there of voter fraud? And my opinion, though I don't have proof of this, my opinion of observing everything is that there was some voter fraud and that there was more benefiting Biden than Trump, though I'm sure there was voter fraud uh, in the direction of Trump as well, people who voted, voted multiple times or sent in ballots of, of relatives or other people who received, you know, who had ballots come to their home by the mail and then they marked Trump for them. I'm sure some of that happened on Trump's side too. But I, I believe probably more happened for Biden, but not enough to have influenced the results. Well, why would you say that, Trump? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I'll say that. Okay. Uh, the reason I feel this way is because Trump had his very vocal supporters, but they were in much fewer number than the people who absolutely despised him and thought that he is such an ex- ex- existential threat to this country and the world that any measure taken to get him out of office is justified. So voter fraud, usually not okay, but to get someone like Trump out, okay. It's kind of like if you think back, if you go back let, – let's I know this isn't the way Hitler came into power, but let's say – Let's say in an alternate universe, there would be a way to commit voter fraud and prevent uh, back in back in the 1930s and prevent uh, Hitler from rising to power. If you could go back then, and if there were a way to commit voter fraud to get him out of power, again, I know that's not how he got to power got into power with just by, by being voted in, but let's just say he was. Um, would you commit voter fraud then? Yeah, I would. I, I have relatives that were killed by the Nazis. So would would I commit voter fraud to prevent these relatives from have been? Murdered by the Nazis? Yes, I would. And in fact, uh, so if you could go back in time and have committed something like voter fraud to prevent uh, the Nazis from uh, rising to power, that would be just, even though voter fraud is unjust. So putting this in the present, unfortunately, there were a lot of people who saw Trump as such a terrible threat to the nation and the world that something like voter fraud, which usually isn't okay, in this case is because otherwise who knows what's going to happen to the country and the world if he continues for four more years. And that's how they justified it. Where the right, a lot of them were very enthusiastic for Trump and very big supporters to the point of uh, astounding dedication. But the people who felt that way, I, from what I could see, were far less numerous than those who were so against Trump and so much had so much hatred for him that they really felt that uh, any means necessary to get him out. So this is this was my all for my observation. I don't have data to back it up, but that's my observation. And I believe there were there was more voter fraud committed this time because of of that and because it's just simply easier because of the mail in. But the amount needed to have switched the election, as I said, would have to be massive, and the election just simply wasn't close enough especially in certain states like Pennsylvania and Michigan. I mean, these were the, the margins were just too large, and there just was not that degree of voter fraud, and there's no evidence there was that degree of voter fraud. So uh, that's why I don't believe Trump got cheated. But if there was fraud, then why wouldn't the state own the Senate seats and the Congress and everything come out way ahead? Well, it's it, because uh, that could have just made them closer. I think that uh, – I, 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 first of all, I'm not saying it was massive. I'm saying that uh, – 
and I'm, I'm not one of the people saying Trump got cheated. I'm saying that there, there was probably some, but not enough to have swung the election and not a massive amount. And I, what I feel is that uh, um, whatever the amount was, I don't think it affected the, the Senate and the Congress very much, even if that swung Democratic as well. Uh, that, that still wasn't enough. And uh, that's my whole point. I don't think it was massive enough. Had it been a super close election, I think yes. Had it been one that came down to one state and 600 votes, I would think yes. But we did, it wasn't anywhere close to that. The closest one was Wisconsin. Even that wasn't super close. And even if Trump won Wisconsin, he still loses the election. So Trump lost the election. It's, it's time to accept that. And I say this as a real conservative who I think anybody who's been observing me would agree I am. So if I'm saying it, you know that uh, I'm saying this from a position of, of someone who's not biased towards the Democrats in any way, shape, or form. So, uh, But anyway, going on here. Jeff said back, wish I knew what the fuck you were saying. You're a nonsensical shill and your opinions are bullshit. Stay off the feed. So Bart said back, I'll bet against your opinion. Seems like you might be broke. Now, I don't know where Bart gets that. He's just assuming that uh, Jeff is broke. But he makes that accusation. Um, Bart then said back, those bracelets in 2006 paid some cash, no? And so Jeff says back, it's really hard for you to come off as more of a douche. Bart then said, I've tried to keep my discussions on this election cycle non-political, despite the, besides the fact that I hate Ted Cruz. Someone has to call you out on your nonsensical ramblings. I assume you have a basic grasp, grasp of odds, and you back your opinions with nothing. So basically, Bart's saying here, I'm not even doing this from a political standpoint. I just think you're ranting nonsense, and I, someone has to finally say something. And Bart said, I requested that he block me two weeks ago, and he hasn't. I think he feels that he needs a connection to the, quote, radical left, uh, even though I'm a conservative. So Madsen said back, you're not a conservative. You're a complete clown. It's only about you making money. Stop pretending anything else, dumb fuck. Now, I'm going to ask Bart about this when he comes on, because I will admit I didn't think Bart was a conservative. I knew he didn't like Trump. But, okay, there there are some conservatives who just don't like Trump and just will not support him under any uh, circumstances, but are still conservatives. There's also a lot of fake conservatives out there who were conservative 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and and uh, they say, oh, I'm a conservative who doesn't like Trump, and then I, I ask them about every position they have, and it's like left-wing positions. So I go, okay, look, if you changed, if you were once a Republican and you're not anymore, that's fine. People change all the time, both ways. I've seen liberals become conservative, conservatives become liberal. That's, fi- that's fine, but admit it. Like, don't, don't say you're still a conservative if you're not. So... I'm not saying that Bart is or isn't, but I'm going to ask him about that because I, I had gotten the impression that he was kind of like a, a moderate liberal. I didn't think he was like a wild leftist or anything, but I that, that was my impression of Bart from observing him. And and I will say the political betting and political affiliation are two different things. So I am a conservative, but I will bet on Democrats if I feel the better values there. So when I'm betting, I completely lose all my politics and I just try to do a – an unbiased, neutral analysis of the situation. I don't bet with my heart. Now, I prefer to bet on Republicans if that's the better value because I can root on that bet both ways. I feel a little weird rooting for the Democrats to win in certain cases. But uh, the bottom line is, since I really have no control of how these races go, uh, and, and, and politics, it's not really a sport. Like, I don't like betting against the Dodgers because I hate rooting against the Dodgers, but it's not quite the same thing here. It's, politi- it's not a sport. So I can separate 
what I want to see happen in the election and what actually is likely to happen in the election or where, where a good odds bet is. In fact, sometimes I'll bet one way, then sell off my position and then bet the other way on the exact same race. I do with a political betting whatever I need to to make money, and I believe that's what Bart does as well. So that, that might be what caused the confusion is that I know Bart, his political betting is along the same lines. He's just trying to make money. Uh Johnny Vibes jumped in and said, I was at a WSOP table with him, referring to Jeff, maybe five years ago, when he busted out as the most awkward crybaby exit from the table, knew he was troubled and unstable at that point, and Jeff just said back, you guys are so fucking weird. <laughs> it's kind of a funny response. Um, I haven't played with Jeff Madsen in a while. When I did play with him, which admittedly was a long time ago, I saw nothing like that. I didn't see that he was troubled or a crybaby or, like, nothing. He He, he was pretty soft-spoken and normal when I, when I played with him. So maybe he's changed, but that, my impression was not what Johnny Vibes is saying. Uh, Jeff said to Bart, yeah, dude, have some more respect than that. Bart worked from the ground up scamming people on election bets and such, all self-made. Now, that's not a fair statement by Jeff. I've never seen Bart scamming anyone in election bets. Never. I've seen him offering election bets like, hey, who wants the other side of this at such and such odds? And if he gets takers, he gets takers. That's not scamming. That's that's offering, hey, who wants this bet? And people saying, yes, scamming is where you offer a bet and can't really cover it if you lose or if you do lose and don't pay. That is scamming. But or, or, or proposing a bet with very misleading terms and then angling people as far as what the results are, or tricking people into betting something they don't really understand, and they think they're betting one way, but they, they aren't understanding what really happened, or, or even getting people to bet on something where uh, you have some information, like let's say you just heard a lot of votes just came in for one candidate, and you, off, you offer uh, certain odds to someone when you know they don't know that. that. That's kind of unethical too. Bart doesn't do that stuff. Bart just says, hey... I'll offer you odds on such and such if you want the other side and DM me if you want this or respond if you want this. There's nothing wrong with that that's completely ethical. So that's that's not a fair accusation. And if anyone would like to present me with evidence of Bart scamming involving election bets or even doing anything unethical with election bets, you can present it to me and I'll judge it fairly. But I've never seen any evidence of Bart scamming with that or with anything. Uh, so... Bart responded, of course, uh, asking, what are you talking about? What's the scam, Jeff? Lay it out for me. And Jeff said back, all I know is your tweets are constant bullshit and you claim you want me to block you, but you're still quote tweeting my tweets, pretending you know what you're talking about. You're literally just an obvious self-serving shill. Then Bart responded with, here's a small portion of my assets I've booked about 32000 to win three, uh, 320000 on no Trump. So he's referring to the uh, – that may be a little confusing. He's trying to say that he actually was uh, willing to pay out 320000 if Trump ends up winning at this point, only to win 32000 Now, the reason he took this 10-to-1 bet is because this was after it was clear that Trump was going to lose. So basically, Bart and many others on Poker Twitter have been offering, would you like to bet me a 10-to-1 that Trump is going to lose? Because they can already see the results and they say Trump's challenges are not going to work. It's basically 10 to 1 that Trump's challenges are not going to work. So uh, they're willing to lay those huge odds, the the minus 1,000 odds on Biden because we've already seen the results and it seems so unlikely. And that's actually 
a good bet for Bart to make. It's a now, yes, he's risking a lot of money. If somehow Trump pulls it off, then he loses three hundred twenty k, and uh, then some people criticize Bart for posting this picture of his assets, uh, some account he had where it says total assets seven hundred forty one thousand. So some people said Bart is showing off that he has seven hundred forty one thousand dollars, and then he also claims it's a small portion of his assets. So some people thought this is Bart just trying to show off how much money he has. But uh, I, what Bart was trying to say there, I understand what he's trying to say. He's not trying to say, hey, look, look, I'm a rich guy. He's trying to say, I'm booking a lot of bets at 10 to 1, and I will cover it, and I'm not scamming. I'm not free rolling anybody. Yes, I'd be out 320000 if Trump comes back and wins through his legal challenges, but I have it. Here's an example. That's what he's trying to say. It just uh, it wasn't communicated exactly that way. So that's why some people criticize that, including Jeff. So Jeff says back, you were really posting screenshots of your assets and stuff? LOL. You might as well take out your two-inch dick and cry some more. You quote tweeted me earlier. Why don't you just ignore me, you boring, lying-ass shill? Bart said back, you questioned my motives in, in this cycle, assuming I was, quote, scamming everyone. So I posted a portion of my assets to prove I would always pay out if Trump wins. So he clarified it afterwards. That's what I was saying. I've got the wagers covered, so where's the scam? And Jeff said back, The scam is your entire existence. You're a completely full of shit botman. This combo makes me want to claw my eyes out. So then Bart started a separate tweet thread just saying, Jeff Madsen is a lunatic. <laughs> and then Jeff came back and You are fucking weird. So then uh, Ashley Hine, who we've had her before on the show, she's a conservative, she's like a conservative Christian type. We've had her on the show before. Not about that. We had her on about the, the, the scam that was going on. But uh, Ashley was somewhat defending Jeff, and Bart said back, not trying to attack him for his beliefs, Ashley. I just take umbrage to statements that he's making on Twitter as if they are fact and he won't bet on them getting a huge price. Uh, by the way, you did. I respect that. So I guess Ashley must have bet on Trump. I didn't know about that. Jeff said back, you were a true idiot. I tweeted a free roll I can't lose, and then unprompted you quote tweeted me and then claimed you want me to block you. Do you want a block, or do you want to quote tweet me with terrible, wrong, self-serving gibberish? Which one is it, you fucking complete moron? Uh, Then someone named Chris Back, who I've never heard of before, said, after Doug and Daniel get done, can we get an Omaha high-low heads-up battle and, and a poker shares line? Doug and Dan being too nice to each other, I feel this grudge match would deliver and the chat box would be fire. This is referring to a heads-up match between Jeff and Bart. And then Jeff said back, LOL, Bart would get destroyed, plus he's way too boring to carry a live stream challenge. I would tear my eyes out by hour two. But yeah, I I think there probably would be some pretty uh, fiery chat there if they really had this. Uh, And uh, and then... I, I don't have this tweet in front of me, but I think Bart said he would do it for uh, like a heads-up Omaha high-low thing. And uh, Jeff said, like I just said, I would never want to be in your presence continually for hours. That just sounds like a nightmare. And then Bart says, uh, look in the mirror, bud. So obviously they're just insulting each other at this point. Uh, so then Bart made an unrelated tweet to all of this that he wanted uh, to – give some people advice about buying health insurance. And it was good advice that Bart was giving. Like a lot of people don't quite understand the, the individual health insurance market. And to be honest, it's kind of complicated. It's not something that's really easy to understand. But a lot of people are trying to call in here. That's why you're hearing the Skype things. We're we're not, I'm not taking calls at this moment. So 
I appreciate that a lot of people want to call the show, but uh, please don't call right at the moment. Maybe we'll take calls at the end of this thing here. But uh, Bart tweeted some just I'm not going to read the whole tweet, but it's about uh, he wants to give people advice about health insurance because this is the time of the year when there's open enrollment. So then Jeff responded back, laughing my fucking ass off. Are people actually taking health insurance advice from someone who's full of shit with the face of a boring serial killer? Who the fuck are your followers? Jesus Christ. You've passed Matt Glantz as the worst shill because not only are you full of shit, but never funny. I don't quite understand that response because this wasn't like he wasn't trying to be make jokes here. He wasn't trying to be uh, Mr. Funny Man here. <laughs> Bart saying, I, I want to teach people about health insurance. And, uh, you know, if Jeff doesn't think that Bart is one who should be trusted for this, I don't agree. But if he just wants to say people shouldn't take advice from Bart for X and Y reason, that's fine. That's his opinion. But I, I don't see where the you're never funny thing comes in because this, this was definitely not a comedy thread that uh, Bart was starting. Anyway, it, it's clear that uh, these two are not getting along very well, to say the least. Um, I've said before, I'm not sure if I said it on the show or the forum, I, it all starts to blend into my mind, but I've said before that people who believe the election was fixed in some way and that Trump got cheated and that they don't believe the media when the media says trust this, the reason these people don't believe it is because the media has spent four years attacking Trump in every way, shape, and form, and that includes things that Trump deserved to be attacked for and things he didn't deserve. The, 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 there has been an incredible bias in the mainstream media with attacks on Trump and the right for the last four years. So what happens is, and I'm not saying they were all undeserved. Some were deserved, but some were not deserved. Some were really, really misleading, and the media knew it. But they hated Trump so much that they, they continued with this for four years. So you had people on the right who saw that the media was not being honest with them for four years. And then when it comes to something like this, where the election actually was correct, the result was correct. The result was fair. Even if there was some voter fraud, it was not enough to change it. So which means the overall result, the result we got that Biden won was fair. The problem is people don't trust this because they've seen a lot of things over the last four years that they provably could not trust from the media. And this is the problem. This is the problem when, there's too much bias in the news. This is the problem when uh, one side is vilified is that then what it, it, it what breaks down is the basic trust in American institutions. And people start to subscribe to conspiracy theories and they believe they're being cheated and screwed and their side of the political aisle is always being cheated and screwed and the elections aren't fair. And this stuff wouldn't be happening if the media was a lot more fair. This wouldn't be happening as much. I'm not saying it wouldn't be happening at all, but it wouldn't be happening as much. This this is the consequence of a highly but biased Trump's media. The one saying, but Trump's the one saying it, Trump. You're acting like, oh, the media. He's the president. He's saying it. And if he's saying it, he's the one who's supposed to be responsible for the election. I agree he shouldn't be saying it. I agree that he is contributing to this for sure. Like they, 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 I'm saying that the reason people are – willing to believe this is not just if trump said nothing if trump just like let's say trump just said okay i lose i concede you'd well, still have a you'd have a ton of people out there going this was fair this wasn't fair he was cheated ton of people well i don't know about it as much i mean if the president's saying it i would think that has more clout than just you know whoever well i will I'll, i will say this i've ha i have some private conversations with conservatives i i know some of whom are in poker i won't identify them but uh 
not, I'm not talking about Jeff Madsen, but <laughs> there's people I talk to privately about politics. And we have like honest discussions about things like, like conservatives I have discussions with. And we'll see things that like make us cringe and say, oh, I can't believe this is happening. And some of the things that, that I've been criticizing along with other conservatives I talk to privately has been, number one, Trump's behavior regarding the election results that we think it's stupid and inappropriate and he shouldn't be doing it. And and uh, and also a lot of the conservative media going along with this and pushing this, that they shouldn't be doing. That, that, that this, is, this is definitely making it worse. This is definitely encouraging this and definitely uh, fueling the fire. So I, I won't deny that that's uh, a good part of it. Uh, but but the reason that people are willing to believe this and the reason that people are w- would have jumped on it even without Trump and the conservative media pushing this is because th- they've been uh, they, they felt like they've been picked on for four years and they have been to, to, to a large degree. So that's the, the, they've lost the trust. So it's hard to no matter what evidence you present a lot of these people, they don't want to believe it because they say, well, you've lied to us so many times. I, I don't want to believe. It. Well, here's the evidence. No, I don't want to even see it. You guys have lied. You, you're a liar. I don't want to believe you. That, that's the problem. Like the. Uh, and that's why I try to tell people. That's why I try to do the responsible thing. And I say, I am a real conservative. You've seen, you guys have seen what I've said. You've seen what I've tweeted. You guys have seen what side I'm on. So I'm not some shill for the left. I'm not someone who's pretending to be a conservative. I'm not. You guys can see what I really am. And I'm telling you that Trump lost. So, so believe me. Because if I, didn't, if I thought he got cheated, I'd say so. And I don't. I, I'm, I'm sure he did not get cheated. So, like, believe me. I know you won't believe the media, and I don't blame you so much for not believing the media, but believe me. So, And, and I saw some stat posted that 77% of people on the right believe that Trump actually won, and I don't know if that's true. Someone just posted this on Twitter. I don't know if it's a, a real stat or if the, it was a scientific poll. It could be BS, so I, I don't want to put too much stock in that. But if that's true, that's sad. If that's true, there should not be 77% of, of Republicans believing that. And uh, um, if there are, then I'm, I'm in the 23% who do not. And I, I try to be as introspective and as honest and fair about everything as I can politically, even though I will have a right-wing bias. I, I try to look at everything honestly, and I look at this honestly, and I, I think Trump lost. So uh, I, I hope Jeff, I, I think he's listening here, I, I hope he can listen to what I'm saying here and consider that maybe his belief on this is incorrect, though – I understand more of where he's coming from than some others do. Some others just think he's crazy or think he's a lunatic or they think that uh, that he's just uh, spouting nonsense. I, I understand how he got there. I understand why people think this because uh, it, it can be hard to trust the institutions that are telling you that this election was fair and everything was fine when you've seen the way that they have uh, behaved the last four years. So – I can see how that happens. I was able to separate it and just say, well, I'm just going to ignore what everybody's saying and look at my look for myself and go, yeah, I don't see how Trump could have actually won this and was cheated out of it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So that's, that's I was not influenced by anybody on either side. Anyway, we're going to have Bart on not to talk about this. We're going to talk about the election, but not about uh, this thing with Madsen. As I said, uh, Bart didn't, even though it came off like Bart was uh, had a lot of disdain for him, uh, Bart told me that this, this wasn't his intention and he was he was kind of just bringing up like this is kind of what I don't like to see and it just happened to be Jeff's thing and then it degenerated into a fight but uh, uh, I actually I'll tell you what I was trying to do <laughs> I actually was going to once Bart said he wanted to come on I was like maybe we should have you and Jeff on together and you guys can debate this and it would have been good radio but 
Bart actually said, no, I, I don't really want to do this because I, I didn't really mean to do this in the first place. I don't, I don't want fights with Jeff here. I, I really, that's not what I'm looking to do. So, Jeff, if you're listening, you should know that as well. That he, he, and he didn't tell me to come out and say this. I'm not even sure if he wants me to say this, but I said it already. But he actually said, no, I don't want to do this. I, I don't want fights with him. I, I already didn't mean for it to go as far as it did. I, I think that's, that speaks well to Bart's character. And hopefully Jeff can appreciate that somewhat and they can stop fighting. I'll throw on this caller. This someone just hammering this the phone calls here. To, I, I, at least they stopped for a little bit. But someone from uh, six oh nine, which is New Jersey, caller, you're on the air. The motherfucker put that phone up his phone. <laughs> the same guy changing his phone number. Let's let's see if we can find uh, Bart Hansen. All right, Bart Hansen Hi. is here. He has not fallen asleep. Hi, Bart. What's up? What's up, Druff? How's it going? Well, it's good to have you on here again, and. Uh, I hope you don't mind uh, that I, I reveal some of the stuff you said privately, but I thought maybe it would help to diffuse the situation. No, no, it's all good. I, I mean, I, I, I do have a couple things to say about that whole thing with uh, with Madsen. No, I, I definitely didn't want it to go down that road. I, I will say that Madsen definitely got some zingers in there when you were uh, when you were reading it back. But there were uh, there's like two things that sort of I'm I've been sensitive to, especially like in this election cycle. And the first, which is not unique to Madsen, is, uh, you know, people on Twitter basically saying that Trump won the election or saying that there was widespread voting fraud and that it affected the election. Uh, and then they wouldn't bet on it getting odds. Like, for example, that girl who was on Survivor. Yeah, name, Anna you know Kate. About? Yeah, we've, we've yeah. had her on here twice. I know she's she's really very big on that whole thing about Trump won. Trump's going to have another four years, you'll see. And she's she's very, very into the uh, very uh, conservative uh, Christian uh, viewpoints. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I've I've actually quoted her stuff a couple times, too, and I'm like, why don't you just bet on it? Why don't you just bet on it? And sometimes, like, these things, like, on social media, by the way, I, w- I had to had a few libations on Thanksgiving when this stuff came out. <laughs> like I said, this was not my intention for it to go this direction. But what I would say is, is that the, the tweet that I quoted him on that I think he took the most offense to when I said uh, exactly what we don't want to see in the future of predictive event betting, this cue is trying to give a free roll to a non-tangible event. I'll bet against your unfounded thoughts. Um, I actually was not really calling him out. I was just saying, hey, like, you know, this is a tweet, you know, saying this, and I'll bet against anyone that has these types of thoughts. And that was sort of a reflection of a tweet that I had sent out like the night before saying I just updated my Twitter profile, which then said, I'll bet against your unfounded beliefs or opinions on any tangible event. So it wasn't really calling him out necessarily, even though it obviously could be interpreted that way. It could be read that way. Um, and then the second thing is, is that I get sensitive when people call me a scammer because well, yeah. it's, just, it's just, I mean, it's the worst thing that you can be called in the gambling industry. And I wasn't trying to show off my assets. I was just saying like, where's the scam? You know, I'm covering these bets. If I lose, I'm certainly going to pay it because I had people draft, you know, I've, I've taken, you know, dozens of bets and some people on the side have said, how do I know? I don't know who you are. I know you're in the poker community, but how do I know you're going to pay? And I've shown them the same screenshot. And I was like, listen, like, you know, I own a training site, you know, reputation's important in gambling community. Here's some of my assets. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, unique to him where I think that I regret uh, going down the road is just that I think it was out of line by me to 
you know, speculate on Jeff's financial situation. It's probably wasn't going to be a part of that, but that was just sort of something that spiraled from him, from me saying, why don't you bet on it? Why don't you bet on it? Yeah, you know, well, so I, I saw. I mean, it was it, it spiraled into a typical uh, Twitter insult fest, right. and that, that happens right. sometimes. But, but I, listen, I'm going to bury the hatchet. If Jeff's listening, like I don't, I'm not. I, I won't quote you on any more tweets. You know, we can just leave it at that, and um, you know, go our separate ways. Well, that's, that's okay. good. I I will say that from some of the things that people have said, like what you had quoted Johnny Vibes, and I have never had a bad interaction with jeff in person we've done commentary together so I, I i can't confirm any of those things that some people are piling on um and that's that yeah well and and i've seen i've seen some of this too and this is unfortunate also i know that there's much more, there's a lot more left-wing poker pros than people on the right and uh there's been people who have a right-wing opinion, especially ones who express it uh, very strongly and, and the ones who uh, will just keep hammering at it over and over. Someone like, like Anna Kate, they get a lot of really nasty things said to them. And I'm not saying that what they're tweeting shouldn't be argued with and dissected, and it should be. If you put out an opinion on Twitter and people respond showing how you're wrong, then that's fair game, and people should be able to criticize your claims on Twitter to their heart's content, and that that is fine. But like like Anna Kate, I've seen just some horrible things said to her uh, on a personal level, and just some really nasty and misogynistic things. Which some people say, "Oh, well, it's okay to to be misogynist, misogynistic, and and uh, really vulgar to a woman as long as she's a conservative woman." Uh, like they don't say that, but you can tell that the type of stuff they'd say to her. They would never say to a woman who isn't conservative. In fact, if they were to see that, they would they would cry foul and say, "Oh, look, look, look how terrible you are! Look what a sexist you are! Look what a misogynist you are!" But you you can bash Anna Kate to your heart's content uh, and, and say whatever nasty, insulting things you want because she's conservative and outspoken. So if you want to bash what, and I'm not, I'm not aiming this at you, by the way, Bart. I know you haven't done that, but uh, uh, I'm, I've seen others who've well, really- Sean Deeb did it. Do you remember Sean Deeb did it? And then what was funny about that is is that you you were talking about whether. I'm a conservative or, or you know a, a liberal, but it, you, you can sometimes see people. I don't even know if Sean Deeb's a leftist, but whatever. You see people on the left kind of eat each other or, or fight with each other because then Courtney Liberal chick immediately said that's out of line. You know, you wouldn't be kind of st- stuck up for the the female side, the woman side. Oh, I'm, I didn't even see uh, that. She has me blocked. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, she actually asked me to block for a dumb reason. It has nothing to do with politics, where she asked me to block, too. It's a really dumb thing that happened where she was uh, – she came out – a little tangent here. She came out with this guessing game about guess which former friend of mine won't talk to me now because he wanted to have sex with me. And then when I rejected him, he, uh, he felt like uh, there's no reason to talk to me anymore. So she did this guessing game and – People kept guessing, and she kept saying, "No, no, that's not it. That's not. That's not it." And then finally, uh, someone guessed it, and instead of saying, "Yes, you got it right," then she just said it in a way that kind of implied it was true without saying it was true. So then I said, "Okay, well, since it's clearly this person, which, which by the way, I was already thinking this is crappy. Like, why bring this out to Twitter?" But I go, "Since it's this person, why don't you tell us the rest of the story?" And she says, uh, "You don't get everything you want." And I'm like, "Well, but you, you made a spectacle of this, so let's hear let's hear what actually happened." And the, now that now that we've played the guessing game and you've made it clear who it is, then then why don't you, it would be great if you tell us the, the whole thing here, and 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 then maybe he can respond. And and she started to give me a hard time 
for wanting to know more of this. So she she creates a spectacle here, and how dare I want to know further details about the spectacle. Like, suddenly it's none of my business. So we went back and forth on this. And when I did this, I I braced myself for a very, very nasty response from, like, a ton of, like, white knight-type dudes who were just going to attack me because she's the pretty girl here and I'm not. So I was sure that she was going to have, like, a million people get all over me. And to my surprise, not a single person took up for her. And we even got to the point where I started saying that, you know, given her personality, I have a feeling that the, that any dude that's friends with her is only friends with her because of her looks and, and that she's female and that uh, uh, it's, it's hard for me to believe that anyone would, would care about her sparkling personality. And I was sure like a ton of dudes were going to go, no, no, Courtney's really cool. I like Courtney. <laughs> like not one guy took up for her there. Not a single person took up for her in that whole thing between me and her. I was shocked and I said, wow, she must be so awful that that one guy, that, that that one white knight ass kisser even wanted to respond on her behalf. All they had to say was, they didn't even have to attack me. They could have just said, no, I'm friends with Courtney because she's cool. Not one of them would even say that. And anyway, she eventually blocked me. But uh, it, it was a very off-putting exchange. And then I, I looked at some of her other tweets, and she, I, I just I just think she's terrible. Not, not even Well, I, I, Druff, I mean, I, I, I do think you know, getting back to the Sean Deeb thing that you sometimes will go a little bit overboard with this, you know, being, you know, kind of defending on the right, but Deeb definitely came out and said something very sexist that he wouldn't have said if it wasn't somebody like on the right like that. Yeah. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was sort oh, I, of yeah. vulgar. I think it was about her tits or Yo, something Yo, I like see this that. all the time. I, I see like, I really see some just vulgar and nasty things said about her that I go, why is if if you want to say that you support feminism and that you shouldn't talk to women that way? That means all women. That doesn't mean if I don't agree with this woman politically, then I can make these really nasty comments. You can you either can do it or you can't. And if you feel that women shouldn't be treated this way, which is, should be which is the right approach that you shouldn't treat women this way. That's one thing. If they start up with you, if women start off making really nasty comments to you and you respond back, that's a, that's one thing. But if they uh, um, if you just don't like their politics. That, that, you know, to just speak in a really nasty and vulgar and degrading tone to a woman because, well, she's a conservative woman. I can. That's crazy. So uh, anyway, I, so I've seen this. And, of course, with Jeff Madsen, that doesn't apply here because he's not a woman. But but I have seen that people are extra nasty to him because – and, I'm not, again, I'm not talking about you here, but I'm talking about just in general on poker Twitter. I've seen a lot of people are, have been extra nasty to him. Because he's on the right, and because like that, that really feel that, a lot of people feel like this gives them a license to be as insulting and nasty as possible. Because oh, not only do I disagree with this personality, don't I really like them? But they're also on the other political side, and I could really come at them hard. And I, I don't think that's the right approach to be taking. And as as I've said, I said earlier on Twitter, and uh, like I saw some other thing going where this guy uh, Daniel Strelitz, who is a, a poker, a young poker pro. And I know he and Jeff had gone back and forth before. And Daniel was saying, well, I feel it's important to call out Jeff Madsen because he says irresponsible and dangerous things about COVID. And, you know, what if some mom reads this and takes it to heart and ends up dying and leaving a kid? Come on. You're not doing this because you care about some uh, mother who follows Jeff that's going to take his advice and and get herself infected with COVID and die. Like This is so far-fetched. You're not saving the world by, by... bashing Jeff Madsen or trying to debunk what he says. Now, if you want to, if you just don't like what he has to say or don't agree with it and you want to argue with him or say, Jeff, here's why you're wrong, 
That's totally fine. That's what Twitter's for. So that's totally – anything you want to take issue with that he says and you want to say it's stupid, it's wrong, it's crazy, whatever. You, you can say all of that and that's completely within bounds. But uh, you're not saving the world. You're not doing this because you're, you're trying to, to help everybody. And, and there are people who believe that people like Jeff should be censored. They just shouldn't be allowed to put this out there. They, they shouldn't be able to get these opinions out because they're, quote, dangerous. And I'm, I'm very against that. Anything that is censorship for the purpose of preventing, quote, dangerous information from getting out, I don't agree with that at all. Because that's a very slippery slope. That's exactly how fascism rises. That's, that's always been the reason that fascist regimes have been able to – that's always the reason they've given – when they're rising to power, that we have to censor the other side. The other side can't speak because they're dangerous. You can't listen to them. So they they must not be heard. It's better for everybody that, that, that you don't hear these people. And that has always been the excuse to silence the opposition. And I will never agree with that, no matter which political side it comes from. So, yeah, but don't you think we're in different times now, though, Jeff? I understand what you're saying. It is a slippery slope, and I think we have an information problem, right, in our society where – People now, specifically on social media, have platforms and have followings where there's a limit to speech, right, in terms of harmfulness, right? Like, you know, go running into a theater and, and, and yelling fire, right? You can't do that. So where do you cross the line in terms of misinformation? What if somebody put up a video on Twitter that was entirely a doctored video? That's, you know, showed maybe someone on the left, you know, somebody on the on the left murdering someone on the right, like in a protest. And it was entirely fake. Is that protected speech? Well, um, it, it, there, there could definitely be lawsuits based upon that. But, but putting that aside, like what should be allowed there? Something that is obviously fake to where it can be proven 100 percent, not just in my opinion, it's fake or where we think this is fake. There's no evidence it's real. That's different than provably 100 percent fake. If there was. Uh, some sort of effort on Twitter's part to censor that or those that say that type of thing should be censored, I would say, yeah, fine, go ahead. But uh, I'm talking about opinions that uh, people want to express which are either unpopular or that the mainstream does not like or the left does not like or even the right does not like. I, I don't want to see those things uh, censored or those people deplatformed because they're, quote, dangerous. And the, the fact of social media is that a lot of information is going to be put out there that is wrong, that is misleading, and that is uh, frustrating for the other side to read, and that some people will be misled, and that if you don't want that, there should be no social media. We should shut it all down because it's, it's always going to be out there. It's always going to happen. What about tag – like when Twitter is putting these tags on um, election disinformation or stuff like on Trump, for example, is it an opinion when Trump says – there was massive widespread fraud in the election, and I won Pennsylvania handedly by you know millions of votes. Is that an opinion? Should that be censored? No, it, sh- it shouldn't be censored, and Twitter should not put warnings. I don't agree with the warnings because the problem is who arbitrates the warnings? Who, who decides what's the truth and what isn't? Some things, some things are obvious, but some things are not so obvious, and I've seen a lot of things that are labeled as uh, a fact-checked false or misleading that are not actually misleading. I'm not talking about what you just cited. There, there have been things that Trump has said, which is which is not true. But if you don't know Trump by now, four years later, like it's, it's a, a warning about this may be misinformation. This is not going to sway anybody who already believes him blindly. And, and all, it's, all it's just an annoyance. And if they applied this fairly, I still wouldn't like it, but at least I could respect it a bit more. If they saw this from the left, where they'd have this warning too. I've never seen that warning once from anyone from the left. 
And I ask, have you seen it warranted though? Yeah, oh yeah, I've seen a lot of things warranted. I mean, like, like the something that drives me up the wall on on Twitter is when people try to say the violence that we've seen in 2020 in the streets has been mostly by white supremacists. It hasn't been by BLM rioters. It's, it's been by white supremacists, and the protests have been mostly peaceful. That's this, that is so misleading. That is so crazy. Yes, you, you can say protests have been mostly peaceful if you count protests by you know, a, a protest of ten people in the suburbs. That's peaceful. That doesn't break out into a riot. And then you have uh, ten others like that. And then you have one protest in the city with fifty thousand people, which is full of riots. Well, then then ten of the eleven protests were peaceful. Great. Well, but but the only big protest was 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 not peaceful. So that's the if you take a look at the big protests and the percentage of them that degenerated into violence or looting or, or uh, an, an assault and, and, uh, and, and roadblocking and all, the, all this bad stuff that occurred, the, the big protests, almost all of them had this. There were very few large BLM protests that didn't have some form of violence or, or uh, law-breaking that, that significantly impacted the city. And, uh, and, and yet, if you listen to the media, if you, listen, if you watch what's being put out on Twitter – by, by a lot on the left, if you didn't know, if you had no visibility into it, you would think that these are mostly peaceful, and a few times it's not. It's usually right-wing uh, white supremacists coming in, agitating, or police coming in and breaking up peaceful protests by uh, arresting people and, and beating people, and then the crowd finally gets riled up and has to fight back. That, that's what you would think by reading that. And it's So there has been so many times I'm like tearing my hair out going, no, this is not true. I know it's not true, and, and it's really irritating to read this. And I, I, I mean, so if I saw... A, Fact check there. Fact check. This is misleading. Uh, that that would be satisfying to see, but I don't believe this should be there at all. I think this should just be where people can state what they want and let the crowd fact check them. Let let the responses fact check them. And that's uh, well. That was what I mean. This is partially what I was trying to do with. I, like I said, I don't really even like to get into politics. All that you know, I I never talk about politics on social media. I just thought that a natural check for somebody's statements, whether they're an opinion or a statement of fact, when in fact they're not, is why not have a market on it? Why not be able to bet on well, it? Right. I, it is. It, it's, it's funny you say that because the subject I just brought up, I've offered bets time and time again. I'll hear the, the, the rioting in Portland. Uh, this is it, it's because the white supremacists are coming in. So it's right wing violence there. I said, OK, OK, let's do a bet then. I do the same, the same approach as you. Let's make a bet, and then we will take a look at we'll, – we'll, we'll have someone neutral pick a, uh, a random range of dates, and we will then get the police reports, and we will identify the politics of everybody we can who's been arrested for anything that's violent. Not, not some BS like failure to disperse, uh, anything that, that includes violence or vandalism that, that, that where an arrest has occurred in Portland. We will take a look at their social media history. Not, not that they appear two days ago and could be, you know, they could be fake or whatever. I'm talking about something that goes back many years, which clearly isn't being fabricated. So we, we, we'll look at the, and anything we can identify. We'll, we'll separate from right to left. And if we don't get at least a seven to one left to right ratio of those arrested, then I lose. Let's do it. Uh, no, no, I don't want to bet that. Well, why not? I thought, I thought it's mostly the right. I'm giving, I'm saying a seven to one ratio at least of the people arrested for violence in Portland for, for actual violence are on the left that we can identify. Compared to right, seven to one. Not not most of them. Seven to one, and no one will take it from me. Why? Because they know the truth. They they just like you get frustrated when you say, okay, if you if you really believe this, then bet me. 
and then they won't, and you go, come on, this is this is stupid. Obviously, you don't really bet. That's exactly how I felt. I, I've offered this bet countless times on Twitter, on Facebook, and and uh, people won't take it because they know the truth. They, they know who's really committing the violence. They just don't want to, they don't, they don't want to admit it because they will, they feel it will kill their 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 side, their argument that the U.S. is systemically racist and that uh, and that the left is, is is peaceful and they just want to see change and that they're, they're not. Uh, the, the second you say that Black Lives Matter is violent, they're afraid that this is going to make the racist think, ah, well that means black people are violent. Okay, well then the, everything that uh, has been happening with the police is okay. They're so afraid to admit that their sides in protesting what they believe is racial violence, which, by the way, a lot of this violence is done by white people. I'm not, I'm not saying all black people. In fact, most of it's done by white people. The, the, most of Antifa is, is white. But uh, uh, but that they're afraid that by admitting that the left is behind most of this, that it's going to kill a lot of the points they're making. So they, they just have to deny it's happening. And it's, uh, it, is, it is very frustrating when you see things being put out on social media from the statements you don't agree with from a political standpoint and then uh, people just won't back down no matter how much you try to show them how they're incorrect they won't back down and then you offer to bet them and they won't bet you <laughs> so so I, I can understand your frustration there and so you uh, think that, that social media should just be uh free for all I, I, I for the no most part fact checking no information i mean can't you see how that might be a problem down well, the line and how and, and this is – and again, I, I consider myself a conservative. I'm trying to approach this from a, a neutral perspective, but it appears to me that it's affecting people the most that live in information bubbles that are on the extreme right. Well, the, Their but choice the, but, of news outlets. Well, if you look carefully, though, if you look carefully, it affects the extreme left as well. That's why we get the – that's why you have – You add, I'm sure if you were to go into a left-wing bubble-type space – and ask them who is committing the violence in these protests in 2020. More, has it been more on the right, more on the left? I bet you get 95 or more percent say more on, more on the right, and that's completely inaccurate. But you, you would, and then the evidence does not support this one bit. And and when I ask them, where's the evidence? Oh, look, here, here's a police report of one white supremacist being arrested in this, in Portland. I go, that doesn't mean anything. That's not that. I'm not saying there's zero people on the right engaging in acts of violence. I'm saying that. Of all the violence that has gone on, they're a small percentage, and that doesn't mean it doesn't happen at all. So the, their response is like really lame anecdotal evidence, similar to how those who are saying Trump actually won this will show you some evidence of of some small scale voter fraud, and you go, okay, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that he got cheated in the election. That just means this is one instance of a small amount of voter fraud that that, that you can't show is widespread. So, like, there's a there, there is so much misinformation. On both sides, that uh, and that's the problem with the fact checking is that uh, I have not seen any of the social media sites making any kind of attempt to fact check from a pure point of neutrality. They don't even hire fact checkers with any record of neutrality. The ones that are quote neutral, it, it doesn't take long to determine which side they're really on. And you even ask these. There's even been attempts to ask these fact checkers. Okay, can you show us which fact checkers work for you with a documented history of uh, conservative politics? Uh, that's none of your business. We're not showing. We're, like they don't even want to reveal it because they know they the, the fact checkers that are hired are not right wing. And uh, I, I think would be, would be useful would be a, an open and transparent fact checking organization that says who works for it and shows you the credentials of each one and that uh, uh and that it's clear 
that there's people on each side and people who are neutral and who kind of all get together and, and, and say what's true and what isn't. And I, I mean, if they're going to staff conservatives, I mean real conservatives, not ones who've gone over to the Lincoln Project or other nonsense like that. I mean, I mean ones that have, have been uh, reasonable but still conservative the, uh, the entire time. And, uh, uh, and you know, have them on staff along with some people on the left there, have, have uh, people in the center, and then have it very balanced to where everybody kind of gets together and decides what's true and false. Because, uh, And uh, honestly, I, I, I could do a good job in that role if I was there. I, I would be one of the right-leaning ones. But, uh, <laughs> no, I could. Uh, no, not by myself. I'm saying I could do a good job. You put me, This is the same reason I, I am admitting that Trump didn't win this. And that's what I'm saying. Like, uh, like you, you'd have me with other people. Who are also reasonable, also not to extreme leftists who won't listen to reason. I mean, you put people on the left who li- who can listen to reason. You put people in the center. You pe- put people on the right who can listen to reason. Not ones who are just always going to side with whatever their political uh, uh, opinion is, and and they all get together and come to a consensus. That would be a very useful fact checking organization. But to my knowledge, that doesn't exist. And and if you ask any fact checking organization to provide proof that they're neutral, they won't do it. And there's there's been attempts to do that. There's just they're always they always get the answer. None of your business. We're not telling you, "F you, go away." We're 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 fact checking. Well, just trust us. And I I don't uh, respect that. So that's that's the problem. So there's a lot of things, and and I've said before that uh, there's a lot of leeway in fact checking to where one can say something is mostly true or mostly false by just manipulating what constitutes mostly true, mostly false. So, like. Uh, Let's say, uh, let's say I went out at uh, at seven thirty p.m. and uh, someone said, "Hey, aren't you Dan Druff? Aren't you a conservative? I, I hate conservatives and punched me in the face." And then I go back and I post on Twitter, you know, "Some someone attacked me and punched me in the face because I'm a conservative." And then someone said, well, "Can you tell the whole story? What what happened the whole day? What what led up to it?" So then I tell the whole story of my day. Well, I woke up at eight thirty a.m. Then I I, uh, uh, I I fried some eggs for breakfast. And uh, at, at, at one o'clock, then uh, I, I went to Wells Fargo, and so as I describe what I do with my day, and then it's, so it's, it's and at seven thirty I went out and, and uh, I, I got punched by this person. So then fact checkers look into it and say, wait a minute, we have found that you didn't wake up at eight thirty because we saw you tweeting at eight. So you actually woke up at eight. That's false. You say you ate fried eggs for breakfast. You actually posted a picture of your breakfast, and uh, and you, you actually had hard boiled eggs. Uh, then uh, you, you said you ate lunch at, at 1. I, I saw you posted a picture of your lunch at 12.15. And so they would go through it, and every statement I made turned out to be a little bit inaccurate. And it could be said to be false, except they found I really was punched in the face by someone who punched me because I, uh, s- solely because I was a conservative. And they could say that eight of my nine statements were false, therefore fact-check false. And they wouldn't be lying. And that's unfortunately what I've seen with a lot of the fact-checking, where they will grab onto very minute details and say false, 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 and then even if the main important part is true, they'll still fact check it false because, quote, the majority of uh, things listed is false, so it's mostly false. Oh, and I'll see the reverse happen with mostly true, when depending on which way they want it to go. And that's the problem with fact checking. There's just so many it's, it's there's so many ways to to manipulate what constitutes as mostly false, mostly true, misleading that's very subjective. It's not like fact-checking a math equation. So like something like Snopes, it's great for internet hoaxes. Like if you read about, if you see some kind of thing that you think is a hoax, 
usually you can tell anyway if you have any intelligence, but sometimes you want to see if there's been any kind of uh, research into it. And Snopes is a good place to go for internet hoaxes. They're pretty good at debunking internet hoaxes, and they've saved me time with researching things I've been curious about. But when it comes to, but they also do fact checking of politics, and they're, they're super biased with that. They're terrible at fact checking politics, and yet great at fact checking internet hoaxes. Why? The internet hoaxes are, are easy to fact check. You can pretty much look into them and see exactly why they're true or false. And you don't have a bias. You just want to figure out is it right or wrong. But when it comes to politics, there's there's always a bias, and then you you kind of want it to land one way or the other, and. Uh, can we talk some gambling now? Yeah, let's talk some gambling. Yeah, we, we've, we've got we've got off the rails here. So, okay. Let's, I, I mean, one of the things that I would that I that I found interesting about this, obviously, different from 2016, right? You know, Bitcoin is more prevalent now, so you can get money in and out of offshore sites. But now you have these predictive markets, like Predictit, right? Predictit is a, where you can actually deposit via a credit card. I don't know. They got around some sort of rule where you get a share price. It's a, a you know a cent price and. There's some really interesting things that go on because you get a situation where even right now you might be able to get Biden at 90 cents, which basically means you're laying like 10 to 1, right? Yeah. But it has to do with the fact that the event is not over, like if it's inauguration bet. So people want to profit take if they're on the Biden side. They don't want to wait right. you know, it, until it, January to cash out. So right, can, right. You, Once you the, can let me, actually let me, profit. Right. Let me just explain this to people. Uh, you're completely correct here. Um, we see a lot of this on social media. So Predictit is a legal political betting site, and it almost operates like almost like the stock market. It's like a market where you're you're buying at a certain price between one cent and ninety nine cents, and then if it wins, you get paid out a dollar. So obviously, if you bought it for ninety nine cents per share and get paid out a dollar, you make very little. If you bought it for one cent per share and get paid out a dollar, you make a fortune. Uh, so so that's uh, that's how it works, and then. It's between you and other users on there. So you're not betting with the house. You're betting with other users who will if, – if you think that uh, – if you want to sell your shares. So let's say you're, you have a share on, on uh, Biden being elected and, and it's at $0.92 cents right now. That's what people are currently paying. You can offer whatever whatever you want. But uh, um, if you can find people to buy it from you at $0.92, cents, $0.93, cents, and that's what you want to sell it at because you say, okay, I'm, I'm happy with 92%. I don't want to wait for the final 8%. I'm, I, either I want to get my money now, I want to bet on something else now, I, I need the money, I want to cash out now. Whatever it is, you, you can sell it at that point and other people can buy in. However, you have to find other people on the other side to buy in. and uh, So that can sometimes be a limiting factor too, not just the last trading price, but is anyone willing to buy from you at that same price or is there no volume for that? So uh, that's how the site works and there's been a lot of talk on social media. Why are, still, why are people still buying Trump at uh, – 10 cents or higher when it's so clear he lost. How are people so delusional about this? So it's a combination, as Bart said. Some people really are delusional and really think there's a better than 10 to 1 chance that Trump is really going to be president in 2021. And then there's others who just don't want to wait till January 21st when the bet settles. And they uh, they say, hey, I'd, I'd rather just lose 10% and sell now and either cash out my 90% or use it to bet on other things. So some, the, the second part is very important because – you will see people who uh, – now, of course, you got to find those who are willing to buy it. <laughs> but uh, but then someone brought up that even those who buy, who are buying it are not necessarily stupid if they think that perhaps it will go up from there. So if you buy something at $0.10 cents and it goes up to $0.14 cents and then you sell at that point, 
you've still made money even if the bet ultimately loses. And uh, so there's there's a lot of skills in play with Predict It because you're not just betting and waiting for the result like you would on a sports book. Here you're betting with a certain price the same way you would on a sports book, but you have to find you have to buy it from others who are selling at that price. And then from that point, you have to decide, do you wait till the end and get paid the full dollar, expecting you're going to win, and then get paid zero if it gets upset and you lose, or do you bail out at a certain point where you feel you've gotten enough value for your money? And I've actually bailed out of some races. I've been using Predictive. I've bailed out at some of like 80-something cents where I think, well, to me, it kind of looks like 50-50. So if I can bail out now at 81%, that's great value. And, uh, well, I mean, here's the story, though. I mean, I, I don't know if you watched the the my some of my YouTube videos. I was like, I bet two hundred and ten thousand dollars on the election cycle. I put a lot of time into it. And what's really interesting about this whole cycle is is that, you know, I I based most of my wagering on you know five thirty eight modeling, and a lot of people shit on that sometimes. You know, weighted polls, and maybe the polls are are inaccurate, but. The most profitability that's come from this election cycle is betting after the election was over. So I looked at this as like if these predictive markets are going to become widespread on not just politics but any type of other sort of provocative type of event, is the profitability to buy in before the event is determined or is it after the event is determined because people are in their own news bubbles and the people that make the most money are the ones that can objectively look at the facts and the data about the event after it's happened. I think both. I think that this was a very unique situation because of COVID and the weird mail-in voting and and the delay in processing a lot of this, some of which I think is going to be fixed in the future even if we continue with the mail-in voting. There's a lot of things here that uh, caused a – not only a delay in some results, but also changing of some results as ballots come in which favor one side over the other. The, the later ones favor one side, usually the Democratic side, and uh, and this confuses people and this leaves people more in denial than they normally would be. Uh, this is a kind of a unique situation that people hadn't dealt with before, where if you look at it objectively, you can see what's going on and you can accept it. And that's why I've accepted it. That's why, that's why I'm not saying, wait a minute, how did Trump... How was he ahead uh, 750,000 votes on election night in Pennsylvania and he ended up losing? Well, there, you know, how did they find 750,000 votes out of nowhere? That doesn't make any sense. He had to be cheated. No, I understand that where they were counting the votes from, the ones that were coming in late, were areas that were likely to heavily favor Biden. And Pennsylvania has a high population. So it's not hard to believe that could have happened. And if you, if you looked at where they hadn't counted yet, it totally made sense. But uh, not everybody looks that deeply and the optics of it can be confusing and for some people infuriating and this leads to more people being in denial but i think in the future we're not going to see as much of this i will say that betting after the election i agree with you that that was where, which was more profitable this time and that uh like for example i'll tell you on the other side where people were delusional and that was about the house on the night of the election after we, we did our uh video show after the show was over and I was staying up to see the way the remainder of the election was going, I started looking at the House races and I, I started noticing that on Predict It that the betting looked totally off to me. Everybody was favoring the 226 or more side of, for Democratic number of House seats and I just wasn't seeing how that was going to add up to be 226. It just didn't make any sense to me. In fact, there even looked like an outside chance that the Republicans were going to take the house back though so i i thought that probably wasn't going to happen but it looked much closer to to that to then 
226 for the Democrats or more, and yet that was the big underdog. Was anything less than uh, anything 225 or fewer was was a big underdog. So I I loaded up on two, on the 222 to 225 and the 218 to 221, and uh, I pretty much was free rolling it. I, I put most of it on 218 to 221. It looks like it's going to land on 222, and I'm going to just barely miss that the big payout there. Uh, not big compared to what you're betting, but big compared to what I was betting. But uh, I, I was able to hedge on 222 to 225. And on no for above 225 to where I was pretty much free rolling, more than free rolling, where I was, I was basically guaranteed a profit, uh, no matter what, no matter what it was going to fall, because I knew that people just were not combination of not watching the house raises close enough, and also still some on the left in denial that they that they were going to lose that many house seats. The Democrats after it was projected that they were going to to gain, and then I, I bet on the other side delusion. I bet on a number of races where it was clear once Biden was winning, it was clear. I, I bet on a number of them. Where it was basically free money that Biden was going to was going to carry certain states and Biden was going to win the whole thing. Like I, I bet on it in different ways that was guaranteeing me like a ten percent profit. And uh, so yeah, it was it was very interesting this time around. And also I made some money betting on some races where returns were still coming in, but it was pretty close. And it was funny how reactive some people were. I don't know if you saw this, but like. Uh, Sometimes something would would turn one way because some returns came in, and then they would it, all the money would flow to one side. So, like the 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 house race, for example, in Utah District Four, at one point it was only four cents for the Republican who ended up winning, and this was after November third. So after November third, there was actually you could actually get the Republican at four cents who ended up winning in Utah. And I saw some things like that where people were way too much leaning to one side or the other based upon late returns coming in. People had a very hard time with the late returns unpredicted. There were a lot of delusional people. And Well, uh, I mean, you know, I was on a show too, the Matt Glantz Market Mania show on the night of the election, and uh, I was on there in the beginning and in the middle, but, you know, all of these books, the offshore books, I'm not talking about the predictive markets, like a bet online, Bovada, they have all said that this was like the biggest betting event ever, right? The dwarf, you know, b- bigger than any Super Bowl for them. And the amount of money that must have come in on Trump during that little time when he was, you know, going to carry the South, right? They had him like he was going to win Georgia, and that's not going to happen. But the Florida, Texas, Ohio, the amount of money, and then when the Pennsylvania early returns came back Trump, because they counted them, like you said, like in order of, you know, the people that had voted on election day, the line jumped to like Trump, like minus 700. Yeah, very briefly, but yes, it went to minus 700. Yeah. I mean, it must have been insane. I wish I had seen that because I would, I would have jumped on Biden on that one. But uh, well, I, I mean, Biden got up to like four fifty, basically. So it was like the volatility. I mean, that's what I would, you know, if I had it to do over again, I would have kept Bitcoin Capital for Election Day. I mean, that was really where all the money was to be made. Obviously, there's some money to be made, you know, after the fact. But I, I put out a couple tweets, Druff, today, and I didn't get any bites. Like I thought people would bet on. I wanted to bet at even money that. Uh, you know, a case would be heard in front of the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, about whether it be voter fraud. I have some language written, but whether it be voter fraud or about the, you know, the presidential 2000, the 2020 presidential election, whether it would be heard before inauguration. I was expecting people to jump all over that. If you see some of these, um, some of these Twitter accounts that say, "Oh, we're on to SCOTUS, we're on to SCOTUS," and uh, didn't get any hits at all. Huh. Interesting. Well. Uh, some people they won't bet because they know deep down what they're saying. 
probably isn't true and they don't want to lose money, but they, they're stubborn, don't want to admit it. So it's very hard when you when you confront someone with a bet thing and they say no, we go, whoa, you don't want free money? Like, I don't understand it. Like they, they, It's very hard for them because they can they want to be stubborn, but then at the same time, they uh, they don't want to lose money. So they, they're kind of stuck in a position like, well, I just don't want to do it, or I, I, I have no desire to do this, or I, I don't bet these things. Or, those are the answers you get, and that's the answers I would get with, when I would propose bets on things like the, the Portland uh, riots and stuff like that, like tangible things we could look up if necessary, even if it's a pain so, in the ass. Can I just leave you with one story, and then yeah. I'm going to head off the bed because this is going to be something that I might be battling with this company. So for – for the most part, I've had a pretty positive experience with all the books that I've bet, Bovada, Bet Online, Bookmaker, ACR, Intertops, go down the line, bet any sports. But one of the sites, my bookie, <laughs> these fuckers, I, and it's not just me that tell these horror stories about rollover, but you got to hear this. So, you know, for people that don't know what rollover is, you have to play through a certain amount of money usually if you accept the bonus, okay? I was pretty naive to what rollover was and they were offering as a first time deposit bonus uh up to a thousand dollars as a 50 percent deposit bonus meaning that you know if you deposited two thousand you would get one thousand as a bonus but if you deposited any more than that you'd still only get one thousand now when you do that in order for that to clear you need to do what's called 10x rollover meaning that you need to bet through 10 times your deposit plus the bonus. So if I deposited 2000 and I got a 1K bonus, I would have 30000 in rollover. I'm like, all right, whatever. Yeah, let, let, let me stop you before you finish this. That's not even standard. The, the actual standard rollover is usually just on the bonus. Whatever they give you in the bonus, it, you have to roll over the bonus. So if you get a 1000 bonus and the rollover is 10 times, you have to roll over 10000 If you have rollover 30 times, you have okay. to roll over 30000 so, so here, yeah, and, and I, you can go on with the rest of the story, but here you're – even your interpretation of it is not standard, but, but go ahead. Okay. So whatever. But I mean, you know, that's how they say they, they do it. Maybe it's not standard, right? So I deposit $5,000 and I get the, the 1K bonus, right? And then the day that I deposit, I look at it and it says the rollover is $60,000. I'm like, I can't be right. How can the rollover be $60,000, right? I mean, the, 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 the deposit bonus is only $1,000. These fuckers... As I interpret it, I'm going to continue to go back and forth with, but I saw, but I showed you the text from customer service today. They want me to roll over the entire amount, meaning that I deposited 5,000 and I got the maximum bonus of 1,000. They want me to roll over 60,000 when I could have just deposited 2,000 and got that 1,000 <laughs> bonus and roll over 30,000. Yeah, and or split it up into two deposits. Right. That's what's especially insane is that you could have – first of all, this is crazy. I mean it's, I, I saw that chat. It's absolutely insane that if you deposit something above where you'd be getting the bonus, if you deposit uh, three more thousand above anything that gets a bonus on it. So you're you're getting nothing out of putting that extra 3,000 there. They're the ones gaining because right. you're, you're adding to their liquidity that somehow that makes your rollover higher. Why? Like Especially because as you said – you could have made the exact same deposit by doing the first one for two thousand, get the thousand bonus, and then done a second deposit for three thousand without the bonus code. Then your rollover would only be uh, thirty thousand here because you deposited it all together and got the same bonus. It's sixty thousand. This makes no sense. It's totally industry non-standard. It does not pass any kind of logic and test. By the way, by the way, I saw this on the day that I made the deposit back on September twenty-fourth, and I immediately contacted them. And I said, can I decline? Because I didn't even really even understand the rollover. I said, can I decline the bonus? Like, I've made this deposit. They're like, no, you can't. Once you accept the bonus, 
you have to accept it. And by the way, it's a default. I don't know if it was a 50%. Oh, really? You actually oh, have to click the, that bonus off. Now, check this out, Druff. I don't know if this is standard or not. But not only that, I deposited more money onto my bookie to bet, okay? Like past the 5000 because I put a lot of money on there. The money that I deposited after the fact, none of that money that I wagered on, those subsequent deposits without bonuses, goes towards my rollover, and they are tying up my entire account. Wait a minute, like twenty thousand dollars. Hold on, so until the, I hit the sixty thousand and rollover. What, what do you mean it doesn't go? To, what do you mean it doesn't go towards the rollover? How can they tell which money you're betting? It, the 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 rollover sort of credit. There's like a little bar stopped after I bet through that first initial deposit. Basically, I wasn't getting credit for additional wagering. I don't understand. How can you ever reach it if you just never get credit from this point? Well, because you have to continue to – well, I think after the bets are graded, you have to continue to play on. The point is is that because those bets weren't graded, Druff, like because they were pending bets, when I made more deposits and wagered while those bets were pending, they didn't count towards the rollover. I'm assuming now what – you know, if – when I – when – these all the bets are graded, it will go towards the rollover. But you see what I'm saying, right? Because they were pending on the first deposit. Yeah. So you're saying that they don't even give you credit for bets until they actually get graded? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, I'm saying that the bets were pending on that first 5,000, and every subsequent bet that I made didn't go towards the rollover, and they're trying to lock up the entire amount. Now, if if you were to say, okay, they do that, but then I can get my other non-bonus deposits back and the wager earnings that I made for that, you make, maybe you make an argument for that. But they're tying up my entire account. Yeah, that's and that's BS. Also, another thing that's very standard in the industry is being able to forfeit a bonus and just say, you know what? Um, just throw away the bonus. I, I, don't, I don't want the bonus. I'm not going to claim it. And and you can deduct that from my account. So that's uh, now this is this is the direction because you're good at this stuff, right? You're probably better than me. This is the direction I'm going with this. Like I said, I, I showed you the live chat correspondence. Yeah, it, it, was, it was it was it was tilting to read that, not not, yeah. not because you did anything wrong. Like that that rep is such a moron. Right. Like, go on. <laughs> so so I'm going to email them, and I'm also going to call them, and I'm going to say if you guys don't, you can there are two options, right? You can take away the bonus, I don't care, or put the rollover down to what it's supposed to be. If you don't do that, I'm going to go on Twitter and tell just what your policies are. I'm going to tell everyone this exact situation. I'm going to tell them what a positive experience I had at your competitors, uh, you know, the big competitors. And I would think that they would be smart enough to realize how poorly that would look upon them, but I don't know. Well, uh, yes, they will be, but you've got to speak to the right people. That's the, the big key in situations like this is you've got to reach the right people because the low-level reps will never use their heads. Sometimes they're not allowed to use their heads. Sometimes they're actually told they have to, resp- you know, that they have to go by a very strict set of rules and justify it whatever way they have to, and that they are not allowed to ever think outside the box or ever make a decision that does not uh, uh, that that deviates even the slightest from the posted rules. So you have to reach somebody high enough who has the authority to do this. Is the first thing. And I, I would suggest calling between uh, 9 and 5 Eastern on a weekday to reach someone who's higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't call 3 a.m. because you're, you're on a weekend and you're not going to get them. You're going to get people masquerading as supervisors who really don't have any power either. 
Uh, so then, so get someone there in authority. Make sure that they are, get someone as high as you can talk to. Just reason this out. Just, just say it very plainly. I could have split this up into two. Make sure to point out there is not a single major book out there that does roll over in this way. In fact, go as far to say that even books, uh, there's no major book that even uses your initial deposit. The real money deposit is part of the rollover. The rollover, 10 times rollover means whatever you got in your bonus, that's what you have to roll over. And that's what it's always meant. That's what it's meant for the last 20 years on these online books and that they cannot point to a single major online book that either does this way currently or ever did it this way. But even if they want to stick to their original thing, that it makes zero sense that if you make extraneous extra deposits above the maximum for that, that why should that have to do with the rollover? So, you know, reason this all out with them and say, how does this make any sense if I wanted to put extra money on my account that I should have to roll that over too when it has nothing to do with the bonus? The, the other 3000 had nothing to do with the bonus. Why should I have to roll that over too? And every site lets me forfeit the bonus. Why won't you let me do that? But I would start out by not even saying you want to forfeit the bonus because you shouldn't have to. This is, this is, They offered this. If you think you can roll $30,000 through, if you don't think you can roll $30,000 through, then I agree. Just tell them to, to forfeit the bonus. But if, if you think you can roll 30000 through without much effort, I would stick to my guns and say, I want you to keep to the terms you posted and have it make logical sense. So, so you know, concede maybe – first of all, look carefully at the terms. Well, the rule – actually, I would, I would want – it would be in my benefit just to climb the bonus because they have – they're all 10-cent lines and you have to do it in sports betting. Like I couldn't play blackjack and roll it over. It's got to be in sports betting. So me matching up trying to find lines that's just time that i don't want well, to waste saying, anyways if, to try if, to even break even okay you know? so so if you don't want the as i was gonna say so if you don't want if the bonus is too much of a pain in the ass for you then yes then then, I, then just go the route of i had no idea that it was going to be this way this is totally industry non-standard but what is industry standard is that if if people don't want the bonus they can give it up at any time and you guys aren't losing out because it's just basically changes it to i just deposited this money and i'm just going to bet normally with it and that's it. And any bonus you gave me, you can take away. And that's, uh, and then there should be no rollover. Just like there'd be no rollover if I got no bonus. Let's go back in time and make it like I had no bonus. There's no way it hurts you. There's no way I could have been free rolling you with it. Uh, you, you just take it because this is free money you're giving me. And I'm saying I don't want the free money. And that's, uh, so you've got to find someone who's logical. And you, I'll tell you where you'll never get it is chat. I, uh, mm-hmm. the chat was kind of funny to, to listen. It's kind of funny and frustrating to read, but, um, but I mean, if you saw some of the chat discussions I've had with, not just sports books or, or or poker sites, but with any kind of customer service, anytime in chat, I'd say like like ninety five percent of them are are mind bogglingly stupid, where they they have no ability to use any kind of logic and they just say really really dumb things to you. So I, never use chat other than very simple things and give up very quickly when they don't. But yeah, that's that's already done. But definitely call and definitely reach someone higher and just like politely reason it out to them, see where they go with it, and then if they say no, that's when you should start rolling off the threats. And you actually have something that you can use, and that is Crush Live Poker. You can tell them, I run a big poker training site that has a lot of gamblers who play on yours. Um, if, if you cheat me here, I guarantee that this is going to be all over Crush Live Poker. I've got a big Twitter following, and I've got a lot of people who follow Crush Live Poker, and every recommendation is going to be never put money on... Uh, what, 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 which side is this? My bookie. My bookie. Yeah, my, my bookie. bookie. Never put money on my bookie. They, 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 they cheat you. They don't, uh, um, they don't respect their customers, and and this is going to cost you a tremendous amount. All they want you to do is treat me fairly. All they want you to do is, is treat me fairly, 
and handle this in a logical and fair way. And that's – I like to say that in any kind of customer service situation is I just want to be fairly treated. I don't want any special favors. I just want what's industry standard. I just want to be – I just want this to be fair. I want this to make sense. Because when you say that, it does make people on the other side think, okay, he's not someone who's trying to angle us. He's someone who's just trying to get something that's fair for himself. And uh, so sometimes that will actually make an impact. But, again, you have to be speaking to somebody with authority to handle it and someone who is at least has a moderate degree of intelligence to where they can understand what you're saying. If you get a moron stickler for rules type of, nope, rules say you have to roll over deposit and bonus combined, and your deposit was 5000 your bonus is 1000 so that makes 6000 times 10 is 60000 so you have to roll over 60000 and that's the way it is. Like if you – you can get a dummy saying that to you over and over, and you're not going to get anywhere with them. And uh, Yeah, but wouldn't you say that the way that it's even set up, their infrastructure, where this is even possible to do, is almost a scam in itself? Uh, that there isn't – that there, that it wouldn't just be automatically 30000 if you went over the threshold? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of it that's bad, and I'm sure a lot of this is not an accident. Probably all this is not an accident, that they, they're doing this to entice people, and then it's very hard to claim it. And and that's and whenever you see books doing things like that, that's a good reason not to even use that book at all because then they're going to rip you off in other ways. They may not be good with the cash outs. I, I'm not sure how bu- my bookies cash outs have been. I think I've heard they're okay, but uh, they're, they're the ones most likely to screw you at some point. Like uh, on the other side of the coin, from what I've seen, other than one liquidity issue they had many years ago that they got passed and everything's okay, but other than that, Bet Online has been very reputable. Like bet online has been they they pay out very fast. Uh, they've when it's come to some sort of controversy, they've been player friendly as far as their rulings. I haven't heard of them screwing people, and and even situations that come up and they're questionable, it always ends up they they take care of it and it uh, it they handle everything. And in my personal uh, usage of that site. Like uh, I saw the night and day between how they handle uh, deposit skimming by the payment pro- providers. Where Bovada, if you make a deposit and the uh, a deposit or cash out, and the Chinese or whatever processor skims a little bit off of it, and then claims the Bitcoin rate was different, or they they overcharge your bank and claim it's exchange rate BS. They they pull this type of crap all the time. These processors. Now the sites don't gain from it, but the processors just basically steal. And Bovada, they just wash their hands of it. They deny it. They try to make you seem like you're crazy and you're wrong, and they know and you don't. Uh, Bet online. So Bovada, I had to really browbeat into giving me the difference, and then they finally said, "Okay, we'll do it for you this time, but next time it happens, we're not going to do it for you." Bet online. I called it. Was so simple. They said, "Can you send us uh, proof of this?" I sent them the proof. Okay, here's the money. Very easy. So that it was it was night and day with how they dealt with it, and I was impressed with uh, how the ident- identical issue. With uh, with Bovada and Bet Online, how much better Bet Online did? How much more player friendly they were? So, and but Bovada's not even one of the terrible ones. I know Trader Ruski hates them; they, they did screw him, but uh, they're not even close to the worst one. At least they they pay, and and uh, usually you can get them to do the right thing with it with enough prodding. But um, so, but the, like the more you see that a book behaves in a responsible fashion and in a fair fashion. It's also the less likely is that you're going to get cheated ultimately from cash outs or that the, they find some flimsy reason to close your account and not pay you. I mean, these, there are all kinds of things that can happen 
with books that are kind of shady and poker sites that are kind of shady. So this this is definitely not a good look for my bookie. And it's funny they've called me before. You see, like employees will leave certain sites and steal lists of customers and bring them to the new site. So they actually got somehow that I'm a gambler and that the, that I would be one who might want to deposit there. And they've called me before to get me to deposit there. And I actually considered it, but then I didn't like their lines, and I just said, yeah, I, I, I almost did until I looked at the site. I'm like, no, I don't really have a use for this. But uh, now that I hear this, I'm, I'm really not going to. So that's, uh, that's that's pretty eye-opening and pretty messed up. So, but definitely speaking By the way, I just, I just pasted a portion of the... The, the 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 that correspondence in your in your chat for the okay. seven people that are there. Yeah, well, people can even go in and, and see after the fact uh, somewhat. Oh, nice. Chat, so, so yeah. yeah, so that's pretty bothersome to hear about. And Bart is one hundred percent right here. In fact, he's more. Right. I think Bart's actually more right than than he thinks he is because uh, I was telling him not only shouldn't the rollover be sixty thousand, it shouldn't be thirty thousand. It should really be ten thousand. That's the industry standard for for a thousand at ten times rollover. That the deposit portion should never be included, but fine. If that's what they had in their terms, it's non-standard, but as long as you knew when you did it, fine. But you should always be able to cancel the bonus, and you should never have the rollover based upon extraneous money above that that you also deposited. That only helps them. That's that's uh, and that's crazy that they're doing it that way. So, um, oh, well, thanks for having me on the show, Drop. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Years. Yeah. And, Appreciate uh, it. You're, but but I, I wanted to ask you this: Why did you move to Texas? Uh, I mean, so I, obviously I could have moved anywhere, right? From and you know, it's definitely the same reason why Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro moved out of California. Taxes. Um, I had a homeless guy almost shit on me. <laughs> um, the last year that I was there, while well, I was about to get a haircut, my wife and I want to, you know, have a family. There's good public schools here. You know, I just bought a forty-seven hundred square foot house wow. for six hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. I mean, the list goes on and on. You got, you got to be careful here about the forty-seven hundred square foot house. Uh, p- people are going to say that Bart Hansen's bragging again about his wealth. <laughs> More about the uh, cost of, of, I mean, how much is a that type of house going to cost in the LA area? Right, I know. Te- yeah, I know Texas uh, real estate's a lot cheaper. You do get a lot more in Texas. And too. Austin is actually the the probably the most expensive area. Yeah, in Texas. There are a lot of California transplants down that, there. Tons, right? yeah. That, uh, yeah. So, the, yeah, right. So, uh, okay, I, I can understand that. Uh, I I definitely don't agree with a lot of things that are going on in California and uh, a lot about California, the, the government and and the uh, laws here and the taxes that bother me. But uh, I, I mean, if you make if you make a ton of money. And I'm not one of these people, but like if you look at a Joe Rogan or whatever, Ben Shapiro, they're in this bracket, right? If you don't have family in California that you need to be close to and you can work anywhere, I, I would think that you'd have to be insane to stay there, right? Well, okay. Well, if, I'll, if you can I, I thought a, about a this. state with no income tax, I thought, 10%. I, I, I thought about this. And, and by the way, for those of you that don't know, uh, Nevada also has no income tax. Some other states also don't. But uh, um, anyway, I I've thought about this. And uh, and I, I did leave California for some time when I was in Las Vegas for several years, but uh, but I came back, and uh, I actually came back for family reasons. Of course, Las Vegas is very different because it's a lot closer than Texas. You can drive between them in uh, four to five hours, where, where from Texas you can't. But uh, and and that's that's the reason that I've stayed and, and would stay is uh, my parents are here and uh, my girlfriend's her her mom is here and the rest of her family's here and. Uh, and also, I wouldn't want to 
pick up uh, Benjamin at this point and, and move him to a totally different place where he doesn't know anybody. So, yeah, you know, for all these reasons, I would stay. Now, once those reasons are gone, uh, you know, once uh, uh, my parents aren't here anymore, which I hope is a long time from now, but uh, once that happens and once Benjamin is uh, is an adult and uh, things like, and once my girlfriend's you know, fa- family situation's similar, uh, yeah, I would I would consider leaving and going elsewhere because you know there are some things that. Uh, I definitely don't like it about California. Uh, there's some things I, I like a lot about California that it uh, it does not get, uh, depending where you live, but it, you, you can live in places in, in Southern California where it doesn't get uh, really hot or really cold at any point during the year. It does have seasons, but not uh, extreme seasons at all. And uh, you're close to all kinds of climates. You, you can go to the mountains if you want snow. I'm talking about places you can drive to. You can go to the beach. You can go to the desert. Uh, the fact that I can drive to Las Vegas easily is actually big to me, though right now it's not because I'm not going there. But uh, presumably once COVID is over and Vegas maybe returns to normal. like just uh, I think about when I'm in Vegas how nice it is that I don't have to worry about flying. I, just, I don't have to be on the schedule of, of airlines. I just go there, come back whenever I feel like it, middle of the night, whatever. It's not hard. And even in Northern California, that's not easy. So that's uh, that's actually a big thing to me, uh, and, and sadly, if I if I will say if I moved, it would be a lot harder to just go see the Dodgers play. That wouldn't like that by itself wouldn't keep me somewhere, but I, I would say I would miss it if I left. Uh, I guess I could see them in a, in a play on the road, but it's not the same thing because everyone's rooting against you. Like so, there, there's things that I'd want to stay in Southern California or for, but there's also reasons to leave that I understand. And uh, I, I was just curious why you left. I, I I didn't even know you had left. I just all of a sudden you're no longer in California. You're in Texas. I said, what? I didn't know about this. Well, I mean, I could move wherever. I, I we I went and I looked at different cities. I looked at I looked at some places in Tennessee. I looked at Portland. I looked at Scottsdale. I looked at Las Vegas. We lived there for a few months. And the you know the difference between Las Vegas and here was I thought it was slightly nicer here, and there were better you know. Public schools, much better. The culinary <laughs> scene, though, in, in Vegas is better. Yes, even it, though yes, that would, would Vegas definitely is, is the restaurants good, and uh, obviously for the gambling culture is good, and uh, there's there's certain advantages. One other advantage of Vegas is that a lot of people visit it, so you people who live elsewhere in the country that you'd like to see eventually come to you. You can you most of them you end up having the opportunity to see without having to travel to them, uh, but. Uh, uh, I will say that the school system and the health care in Vegas is terrible. <laughs> That's not right. I, I, I don't like raising a family there isn't very good. And uh, my experiences with the health care system have been crappy there. And everybody else I speak to, it's really crappy. It's just it just seems like really crappy in Vegas for some reason. So. That's uh, those are things to get away from, and and also one other problem with Vegas is it's very isolated. People don't really talk about that much, but very isolated. If you think about it. There's nothing, and I'm not, I'm not talking about Henderson, which is really the same thing, but out of the Ve- the greater Vegas area, you go 150 miles in any direction, there's nothing. And I mean really nothing. So it's not, it's not like a place where you can drive some distance and get to another area that's not that far off. I mean, this it's just complete nothingness all around you. and that uh, So it is pretty isolated there. Not isolated like Hawaii is, where you're, really, you're, th- you're 3,000 miles from everything in Hawaii. But, but if you like Asian food, though, my wife is Thai, and they got great Japanese 
and Thai food. So in Vegas, or in Vegas, they had alcohol. Are you talking yeah. about Hawaii or Vegas or both? No, Vegas. Okay, Vegas. no, in Vegas, like the the restaurant scene is great. That's that's there's no complaint there. But uh, and I know I was there for a long time, and I know it very well. And uh, in fact, I got to feel like a local after enough time there to where tourists were annoying me. Like I would avoid the tourists in Vegas, except at the poker table. Then I wanted them. But uh, aside from at the poker table, I, I wanted to stay away from the tourists there. I got to be one of these uh, crusty locals who hated the tourists. So uh, yeah, I still kind of feel that way, even though I'm not a local anymore. So yeah, it was a, uh, and the, the, the heat in the summer, uh, I still don't think it's as bad in Vegas as it is in the places that are hot and humid. At least you don't have the humidity. But still, when it's 113 degrees day after day after day in July, that's and 100 at midnight, that starts to get kind of frustrating. And that's when when I lived in Vegas, I would actually leave for a while after the World Series just to get away from that because I, by, by the end there, I couldn't stand the extreme heat day in day out, 24 hours a day. And uh, so that's one downside. Though the rest the rest of the year, the weather in Vegas isn't bad. Winter's a little cooler than LA, but not. You know, not that bad. As far as compared to the rest of the country, the winter's pretty good. All right, Jeff. Have a good night. Thank you oh, again. Okay, well, good night, uh, Bart. Thank you for coming on the show, and uh, right. we'll have you on any time. All right, good night. Let's right. keep Bart up here with all the weather talk. <laughs> he's like, Jeff like, won't let me go to sleep. He's talking about the weather in Vegas. They just want to hit the bed. It is uh, 2 in the morning there uh, where he is. It's on central time now. Yeah, it's 2 a.m., so I understand. But, uh, yeah, he gave us some good time on here and uh, brought up a lot of good points. And he he did a lot of high-limit political betting. Like, I did political betting, but he did it at a much greater rate and scale than I did. I kind of just did it semi for fun and somewhat to make some extra money. But it's not going to be, like, major money. Like, I knew no matter what happened with my political betting, it wasn't going to have an effect on on my lifestyle or the way I viewed my net worth with, with what Bart is doing. I have to imagine it does, but uh, yeah, he knows what he's doing. So I, uh, I know he wasn't, he probably wasn't happy seeing the election returns. He, he had a, a, a pretty Biden heavy uh, portfolio as I talked about on a previous episode of the show when he posted that spreadsheet. And at first I was, when I was seeing Trump was doing so well, I was thinking, uh-oh, I, f- I feel bad for two people. I feel bad for Bart, and I feel bad for PLOL. And then it turned out okay for both of them. I know. That was so, that was so sick. That whole night. Yep. PLOL actually got up and took a walk <laughs> in the Chicago night because he was so upset about this. Okay, let's, let's, let's take a call here. The, the, the caller, the, whoever this caller is, at least followed my guideline of waiting to between segments. So, caller, you're on the air. Yeah, what's up? This bad guy. I was going to say it's a bad guy. Hello. So, uh, so yeah. What's up, man? I was hearing him. This, this poor guy screwed happened? with my bookie. What's up, brother? What do you mean he screwed with my bookie? Because they're bad seed, man. I told you guys this even on in the gambling forum, man. That's oh, you... why they're fucking with them. And just so you know, that is industry standard, man. Like if you get a bonus, Bavada doesn't do that, but most bookies say you deposit two thousand, you get a thousand dollar bonus. They will make you roll if it's a ten time rollover. They will make you roll over thirty k at most. Okay, places. well I haven't seen that. I see. I, I like on Bet Online they don't do that either. Bet Online I've gotten a number no, of bonuses. No, Bet Online. They bro, never, Bet Online definitely does that, man. No, they never did. I'm telling you, they 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 only did the amount of bonus. 
They they have a big rollover sometimes, like thirty times, but they've never had it to where it well, includes my shit, deposit. Their rollover. Well, that's because well, if it's thirty times, that's what they're doing though. That's why they if it, so they might do it, but then they'll make it like twenty times or thirty. Well, times. right. Most books do that. Even bookmaker, man. I mean, it's just. But that bookie right there. They're criminals, man. I'm telling you. Okay, it sounds like it. I mean, he I, needs, I agree. He needs to ask for Jake Slater. He he was in the chat. He seen what I said. Okay. That's who he needs to ask for there. Okay, I mean that's good advice. Bad guy. And actually if knows he these gets things. screwed, listen. If he gets screwed, oh believe me, Jake Slater. That's not his real name. I know his fucking real name. I, his fam. I know where his family lives in California too, because <laughs> I have problems with this place before. I'm not even kidding you. So he shouldn't be rolled into a sixty thousand dollar rollover. That's bullcrap. No, it's crazy. Like you said, when you when you do five thousand, you get a thousand. It should just be tied to. But they're real shady, there, man. They are. No, it sounds like. I it. mean, you can go read the horror stories on SBR and stuff. I mean, they're just a shady book. Yeah, I as I said, when I got the calls from them, I, I was gonna go research them. But then when I saw what lines they had, I'm like, you know what? I, I don't even like the way their lines are, so I'm not gonna have a use for them. So I, I stopped looking at that point. I didn't. The next thing I would have looked at is how reliable are they and how many horror stories are there. And if if I see anything like there's like multiple credible stories that the place fucks you, then I, I don't deposit. So I probably would have run into that, but I didn't get that. Right. Far. Well, they just make it hard on you. You know, if you have any clue what you're doing. They're coming to fuck you in the end. Like, though, man, I did a fucking thing there, and they they cut my limits down to like a hundred dollars a game, and I was tied into like a twenty grand rollover. Oh wow! So how the fuck am I going to meet her? Yeah, that's what they did, man. So they cut my limits and everything. It's a joke that book, man. Oh, believe me, I got my money, and I didn't have to roll it over. But <laughs> it, it's just I feel bad. No, I feel bad for them, man, because they're just criminals. There, I I, I said on the on the site. Let me tell you something. The old owners of this site, I don't know how long you've been betting offshore, but I don't know if you remember Bet on Sports. It was like one of the biggest shops around back in like the late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, it was the biggest shop, if you ask me. They're the two owners of this site, they, they own Bet on Sports, who ripped a lot of people off back then. Oh. They screwed a lot of people over. So that's who runs this shop. So, I mean, I think they have to have money. I mean, they advertise like crazy. Yeah, I see. Right, I see. I see them all the time. In fact, I think they just advertised on Ben Shapiro. I think, I, like on Thanksgiving, Ben Shapiro was actually promoting a sports book, which I was shocked about. It's like, it's not like he's been against sports betting, but I've never seen him ever promote any kind of like illegal gambling site. Right, like, they're I, all over the place, bro. Well, they had a, uh, they were advertising on one site, and I guess the guy was betting with them, and they tried to screw him over. And it, there's, if you like Google, it, you could probably find it. I read it on sportsbook review but one of their advertisers were betting with them and they tried to screw him over and he went at him on twitter and stuff because i don't know he i just hope he uh like if he has to roll over 30k there and he has a clue what he's doing they're gonna screw him then too because they're gonna limit him to like 250 dollars a game or something yeah like that's that. that's and really terrible gonna be i didn't even think of that but yeah, yeah nightmare yeah if you, if you can't get your money off until you roll it over and they can limit you then they they can pretty much yeah. guarantee you're never going to eat your money off. Which well, they is... shouldn't be able to limit you. I mean, if 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 the things are like they are, they shouldn't do that. But that's what they do. That's what crooked books do. Yeah. They're all crooked, man. But my bookie is the crooked of the crookedest, man. I mean, like he's just going to be in trouble with that, man. When when he said that, I hurry up and got on chat. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad I you're trying to help money, him though, man. Yeah. I, They'll I, be rolling that shit over until. Next year, if, if he'll, be, he'll, be, he'll, because... he'll be rolling it over until uh, until Benjamin's running Poker Fraud Alert. That's, that's it'll yeah, be... for real. <laughs> ben will be on running Poker Fraud Alert, brother. Right, I just wanted to call in. And okay. If he has any problems, man, 
he, I told him to get a hold of you, and I know somebody else that can get a hold of somebody there that maybe okay. can help him out. If he didn't use the free play, they should just let him forfeit the bonus. Right, that's what out. I'm trying to say. Or, or if, even if he that's did use the free, do. even if he did use the free play, since he has a real money balance and has always had one there, they should just subtract it from. It. They, should, they should just roll it back to as if he he never got a bonus, and then that that's fair. Right. And there's no way he could free roll them. So that's yeah. that's BS. I mean, hey, listen, man, they get a, hey, a new. He's not a sucker, but that my bookie, they advertise everywhere, man, and they give you that bonus, so everybody's like, oh, look, this is good. And, and I mean, I just think they're crooks. No, oh, you're probably right, and right. and I, I always advise people before you put your money ever on a sports book, you need to read up, you need to see if you can find horror stories mm-hmm. that are credible, and if if there's enough that seem to say the same thing or that seem to indicate the place is shady, then then don't do it. And I've I've said that over and over, and I I really only deal with books that have a good reputation for paying and for not screwing people. And I'm not talking about one-off stories right. where some guy says, "Oh, such and such happened to me," and you can't really tell who's right and wrong. And, you know, no, people, you can read on it, man. If you if you Google my bookie, you'll see the yeah, horror story. No, when you see hor- you see horror story after horror story, and, and they all kind of along yeah. the same lines, you go, "Okay, this place sucks. I'm not going to be part of it." And you you can't be tempted by the lucrative bonuses or anything. You just stay away from it. The most important thing is that you're dealing with an honest site, or at least a mostly honest site that is going to pay you without BS. That's the most important thing. Exactly, brother. All right, man. I just wanted to call in and say what's up. Okay. Well, thank you, bad guy. And I'll, I'll let him I'll know if he's guys. already listening. Take care. Okay. Good night. Okay. It's so helpful All information. Right. Helpful information from bad guy. He's he's knowledgeable about these things. He's been sports betting online for a very long time, and he really does. Like he knows who's in charge. He knows how to contact them. He's like if you have a problem, he's a good one to go to. He his knows their, he knows their fake name and their real. Name. Yeah, <laughs> no, he does. He knows a lot of these things. Like some people, they they hear bad guy's demeanor and they just they, they wouldn't assume that bad guy could be a sharp sports better who also ha- knows these things. But they'd be wrong. He actually he actually knows what he's doing with sports betting and he actually uh, knows a lot about these books and who's behind them. So that's uh, useful information for Bart if he ends up needing it. Hopefully, Bart just gets this rectified, especially since he's willing to just give up the whole bonus and like basically rewind it as if he just deposited with no bonus at all, which is totally fair. Like there's no way they should object to that because there's no way they could lose from that as far as it's not like after the fact, he didn't like the way something went and want something changed. This is a, there's no way that this could benefit him even in hindsight. Well, we're going to move on and we're going to talk about, the big story that has been going on since yesterday, and that is the death of Tony C., the former CEO of Zappos. And some of you probably don't realize that he is a former CEO. And that's because it's not that long ago that he resigned. He actually resigned as CEO of Zappos in August of this year. The exact reason is unclear. Uh, He might have just gotten bored of it, to be honest. He got very into downtown Vegas. He uh, invested a ton of money into downtown Vegas, into certain things over there. In fact, uh, he is seen as a big hero of Las Vegas. Not only did he create a ton of jobs. Actually, um, this caller, I'll I'll take this call after this segment. But not only did he create a ton of jobs with Zappos, but uh, he also invested a lot of money in downtown. and was a big believer in downtown, and he really is seen as a very positive figure 
for Las Vegas in those two ways. And he was uh, an unconventional boss, an unconventional CEO. Uh, some people criticized some of this uh, lack of convention that uh, they, they didn't agree with these management techniques were very kind of hands-off. It was kind of the opposite of Steve Jobs, who was super controlling. He was kind of the opposite of that. Uh, Zappos is obviously very, very successful company. It began uh, over 20 years ago, and he joined Zappos. I don't think he uh, was there at the very, very beginning, but like almost the very beginning. He joined as CEO in 1999 and was there for 21 years, and it rose to become one of the biggest retailers online, mostly selling shoes, but they actually sell other things. It's, it's not as wide-ranging as uh, Amazon with what you can buy on there, but uh, they, they sold, eventually branched out to other things. They were known to have a lot of customer-friendly policies where they would uh, you could do the free shipping and free returns. So that was very big for shoes because at first when a shoe store appeared online, the question everybody had was, how can we have a shoe store online? We can't try things on. Because everybody remembered going to the shoe store and shoes would look good and you'd put them on and they're uncomfortable. And you say, forget it, I'm not going to buy these. So how do you do this online? So that's why there were the free returns. So this enticed a lot of people to try Zappos because they said, what do I have to lose? I'm going to buy the shoes that look good. If they suck, I'll, I can send them right back for free. And they also had a very generous return policy that, like, you had like a year to return them. <laughs> so uh, you didn't have to jump on it right away. You could wear them a few times. Like, as long, and they, they, they weren't very hard line about, uh, like, the conditions the shoes were in. No, you couldn't wear out shoes for a year and send them there on day 364 and send back heavily worn shoes. I don't know what they would have done, but that's, that wasn't what was intended. They'd have to, like, be in, like, new condition, but they didn't have to be unworn. So if you wore the shoes for two weeks and you say, you know what? My feet are hurting. These these are terrible. You could send them back and they'd take them, even if they saw signs you've worn them for two weeks. If you totally destroyed them or something, they'd probably know. But uh, if they just look like they were worn a little bit, like would normally happen in two weeks, uh, they would take them back no problem. And you had a year to return them. So very like customer-friendly type policies. The customer service agents were told to be very friendly and nice to the customers. So that was the whole model there, and that was the same way the employees were treated in general. It was the, he kind of tried to run Zappos like it was a family, like it was uh, like the employees were not under the thumb of, of demanding bosses. Uh, there was even a model where you technically didn't really have a direct boss over you, even though you kind of did, and it was kind of a, a very uh, lax environment over there to work in but at the same time the customers were to be treated well and the po- the general policies were much more customer friendly than other companies and this really allowed them to thrive so they grew very quickly and they survived the initial dot-com bust of 2001 and they grew and grew and grew i hadn't used them because one thing i'll say is their prices weren't always competitive but they were very convenient, but they were not. The price wasn't very competitive. It's not like you'd get great deals there usually. But I started using them in 2012 when I came. I came into, shall I say, six thousand dollars 
worth of Zappos gift cards. And when I say I came into, there was nothing uh, shady about it. I got them through casino promotions. But I, uh, I found a casino promotion, which was a very good one, where I could get a ton of Zappos cards. I had to play po- negative expectation games to get them, but it was worth it. So I racked up enough to where I got 6K worth of Zappos cards. And uh, I still haven't used it all. I've used most of it. I've given away some of it, but like to friends and relatives. Most of it I've used or my girlfriend has used, but I still have a little bit left. But that's when I became more interested in Zappos, and I started to look at the company more, and of course I had dealings with the company. But uh, before we get to the rest of Zappos, I want to talk about uh, Tony himself. He was only 46 years old. So when you hear a 46-year-old dies, of course, the first question is how. You know, If he was 80, you wouldn't be that surprised. You hear a 46-year-old dies, you, you wonder what the hell happened. So it was not COVID, and that became pretty clear. They said that he died... Uh, he died with his family surrounding him, so his family wouldn't have been surrounding him if he had, if he had COVID because they they could have caught it. So, right right away, the initial statements, which didn't give a cause of death, and they did they at first declined to state what happened until the story got out. So at first, they were just saying he died peacefully with his family surrounding him, and people were starting to wonder what it was. But from looking at that, I figured it wasn't COVID. And I figured that uh, it probably wasn't something like cancer, but yeah, maybe it was and he was hiding it. But he did work at Zappos through August and no one had seen that he looked sick. And that would be pretty fast to go from looking healthy in August to dying of cancer now. So I was thinking it could have been like he had a, a heart attack, and which almost killed him and then eventually he died, or a stroke. I was thinking something like that. I was thinking it could have been some kind of accident. Uh, I thought, yeah, it could have been possibly something that uh, he did to himself, such as a drug overdose or a suicide attempt. But I, I, I don't know. I just, I wasn't seeing that. That wasn't really what I was believing happened. But you never know. I, I kind of had my mind open to it. it. Could be any of this stuff. But when someone dies at forty-six, it always makes you raise your eyebrows of, like, what happened, especially if it's not something like COVID. As it turned out, the cause of death was a house fire. He was in Connecticut, and I think he was at the home of somebody else, like a co-worker, a former co-worker. And uh, apparently he was in the basement, and a fire broke out. I don't know how. Do you know, Trader Risky, how, how did the fire break out? Did you hear about that, or do you not know that? And now I just heard fire. Crazy. Yeah. So there was a fire, and I heard he, – like, the details have been slowly coming out. I think they weren't even going to say this at first, but then people put it together. Somehow the rumor got out that it had to do with a fire in Connecticut, and then someone found a news story from, like, NJ.com about a house fire that someone's in critical condition on November 18th, and someone said this was what it was, and it turned out that that is correct. That was the fire that killed him. So – he, so then the family released a statement through their lawyer that he did indeed sustain, quote, injuries from a fire, from a house fire, and that he succumbed to those injuries yesterday. So basically he, he lived nine more days in critical condition after a house fire, which greatly harmed him. 
usually when people die from house fires or any kind of fire, usually it's not burning up. It's actually smoke inhalation that kills people. Uh, it looks like in his case it was both. The, 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 it said in the, the NJ.com article that the, per, the victim of this house fire was in critical condition both with burns and suffering from smoke inhalation. So I don't know which one was worse. It kind of sounded like the smoke inhalation was worse, which is common. Uh, but that he was trapped in a part of the house where he couldn't get out and that I just heard today, I don't have verification yet, but I heard today that he was in the basement. And that, for some reason, that bothers me more to think about than had he been like upstairs and couldn't couldn't get out for some reason. When I heard injuries from a fire, I had thought that maybe he was upstairs, couldn't get out, couldn't get downstairs, and then broke a window and jumped out and injured himself so badly in the fall on concrete or something that, that he died nine days later. I thought that's what happened, but it wasn't. He actually got typical fire-type uh, uh, damage, smoke inhalation and burns, which ended up killing him. So it was because he was in the basement, and he was trapped there, supposedly, because the fire was blocking his way out, and I guess there was no other way out of the basement. Often there's no windows down in the basement. And uh, I guess the fire department knew he was there, but they were trying to get in to rescue him, and they eventually did. That's why he didn't die on the spot. But he had suffered enough damage that he was in critical condition and then passed away nine days later, which is a tragedy. And I'm not sure exactly what he was doing at that house. He must have been visiting or something, but uh, basements are scary. <laughs> I, I've always felt that way when I'm down. Like, there aren't many basements in California or Nevada, but when I've been in some, I feel kind of weird. And I, I, I kind of chalked it up to, well, I'm not used to them. But you just kind of feel like they're, you're trapped down there. You kind of feel like uh, there's no windows, you're underground. It just The whole thing feels weird. I've thought more about, like, what if an earthquake happened? Because, you know, someone who's familiar with California a lot will think of earthquakes right away. So you think of what if an earthquake happened and this just all crashes down and how awful that would be? And he'd be, like, instantly dead. Or even worse, like, just buried alive and slowly die that way. But you don't think of fire, but that's actually the greater danger that a fire will block the exit and then you're just going to die down there from smoke inhalation. There was even uh, one of the early episodes of Family Guy featured this occurring where uh, Peter started a fire and there was a whole party down there and everybody was going to die. And everybody was about, and then the, the fire was blocking the only exit. And the only reason everybody didn't die was that Stewie used this time machine to bring everybody back before they went down there. Otherwise, the whole, all the characters in Family Guy would have died in 1999. But anyway, uh, that's it's really too bad that this happened. He was very well liked, and uh, Vital Vegas, who is a guy named Scott Robin, we've talked about him recently on the show, and I, I don't care for him very much. I I always found that the rumors he put out, like a high percentage, seemed not to be true. He was one of the idiots pushing that the Rio is going to be a baseball stadium, which I knew was not going to happen. But he was pushing that one very hard. He's pushed a lot of things very hard that just turned out not to be true. I always say he uses the uh, the broken clock is right twice a day theory when putting out rumors. And that's pretty much how often he, he is right. So he was putting out a lot of material that, that uh, Tony was known to have severe depression and was often suicidal. 
and he just kept pushing and pushing that this was a suicide with no information to back it up. And boy, people were getting angry, especially because Tony C was uh, so liked in Las Vegas. So people are really getting angry at him because here a man has died at age 46. Tragically, in some way, we didn't know yet it was the fire. And here's someone speculating with suicide, which you don't put out there until you have evidence that this is what happened. But he, but even after this came out, uh, he still is not backing away. He's still saying, oh, wait till the whole story comes out. You all understand. Well, I think if he was going to kill himself, he wouldn't do it that way. I don't think he'd, he'd kill himself by uh, lighting the basement on fire of, of a house he doesn't own. I don't, I, I, I don't think that's a very uh, nice way to go. Usually people who kill themselves do it in a way to where they feel that uh, the pain is going to be minimal. They take a lot of pills. They, they jump off a cliff. They... Uh, uh, they shoot themselves in the head, whatever. Like they, you, you don't light a basement on fire and slowly choke of, from smoke inhalation. That's not a, a common method of suicide. So this is a, I, I have no idea why Vital Vegas is so stuck on this, but he's been getting killed on Twitter over this, and deserve, deservedly so. So that's, that's something you can take a look at. And there, there's this person in Las Vegas Observer, who on Twitter is at Observer Vegas, that just hates Vital Vegas with a passion, and just... Like almost all the tweets from Observer Vegas are bashing Vital Vegas. It's some like Twitter troll who just despises Vital Vegas, Scott Robin, and just bashes him constantly. Now, I will say Observer Vegas is often correct in their criticism, but boy, are they dedicated to bashing him. But anyway, uh, Vital Vegas really taking a beating today over that, and he just won't give up. But this is the same guy who was a COVID denier. This is the guy telling people in mid-March to, that COVID is just the flu and, and come to downtown Vegas and live a little. And he just wouldn't back off from that either. So that, uh, th- And he was doing this because he was uh, working for the Fremont Street experience and uh, wanted to promote that. So not a good guy, this, this vital Vegas person, Scott Robin, even though he did win that uh, lawsuit from Sahara against him, which did look frivolous, I'll give him that. But he's really taking a beating today. Tony Shee was worth almost a billion dollars. Very, very successful guy. And uh, I'm not sure why he took such an interest in downtown Vegas. I know he lived in Vegas a long time. I know he uh, had, you know, he considered Vegas home. And for some reason, he really took an interest in uh, downtown Las Vegas. He invested $300 million in downtown Las Vegas, various projects there. And he's really seen as uh, someone who is uh, uh, a very important figure to downtown Vegas. I wouldn't be surprised if they name a street in downtown Vegas, like a numbered street, like 4th Street or something, after him. I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, Tony Shi Avenue or Boulevard, whatever, because uh, that's how he's regarded, and especially given his death being untimely like this. Uh, so he, th- this, uh, where, where he was, the home he was in was in uh, New London, Connecticut. It was a waterfront home. Again, it, I, I don't believe it was his house. Zappos was actually sold to Amazon 11 years ago. Some I mean, of you may not know that. It was sold to Amazon for $1.2 billion. Originally, they started Zappos as shoesite.com. And that's actually when he joined the company. It was called ShoeSite.com, and they changed the name to Zappos shortly shortly thereafter. Zappos is a it's a word similar to the word for shoe in Spanish. So that's where Zappos came from. 
I guess they thought that was more catchy than shoesite.com, which I would agree with. And uh, despite the fact that Amazon owned it, the reason you may not know that is because Amazon pretty much took their hands off. They told Tony, go ahead and run it. You're doing well. Just We own you, but go ahead and, and run it the way you were before. It's, it, operate independently, and we're just the owners. So they, they let him continue running it in his style. I had wondered if they were going to change things then, but they really didn't. They moved Las Vegas' headquarters of Zappos into the former Las Vegas City Hall building in 2013. And that was the same time that uh, he pledged $350 million that I talked about for Las Vegas uh, redevelopment to be used downtown. He did not explain exactly uh, why he retired in August. But again, I had thought that uh, it seemed like his interest was going toward more of the direction of downtown Vegas. I think he was just kind of sick of being the CEO of Zappos at that point. I actually saw a similar thing occur with Jerry Buss, of all people. Jerry Buss, the owner of the Lakers, in his final years, his interest was not the Lakers. Even when the Lakers did really well, he only had minimal interest in the Lakers, which kind of bored him by that point. His big interest in his final years was poker. And he went to small tournaments, which meant absolutely nothing for both prestige or money to him, because he was super rich, of course. And he played them. I, I played him in very small commerce tournaments, like like $1,000 limit hold'em with 60 people entering. Like, what is he going to get out of that, even if he wins? The money is meaningless. And what, he's going to have a, a commerce limit hold'em title? Like, no one's going to say, oh, Jerry Buss is a incredible player because he has a commerce limit hold'em title with 60 people in the tournament but he played it because he enjoyed playing he enjoyed the competition he enjoyed the game and that that became his focus in his final years which kind of seems weird like you, you probably picture if you owned an nba team you'd probably live and breathe that team you wouldn't care much about poker but <laughs> he became the opposite because he had owned the lakers for decades and poker was the newer thing to him and that's what interested him towards the end of his life so i think with tony she he'd been there for two decades and said and you know, he started to get more interest in his projects in downtown Vegas. This is just my guess. He didn't say this, and he just kind of quietly left to where a lot of people didn't even notice. Uh, at first, when I heard that he had died, knowing that he had left in August, I thought, I wonder if these two have to do with each other. I wonder if he was having health problems in August, and then they eventually killed him here in, in November. But that was not it. It seems to be a coincidence that he left in August and then died in November. There was a statement from Zappos, the world has lost a tremendous visionary and an incredible human being. We recognize not only have we lost our inspiring former leader, but many of you have also lost a mentor and friend. Tony played such an integral part in helping create the thriving Zappos business that we have today, along with his passion for helping to support and drive our company culture. Tony's kindness and generosity towards the lives of everyone around him, as his mantra was of, quote, delivering happiness to others. His spirit will forever be part of Zappos, and we will continue to honor his memory by dedicating ourselves to continuing the work he was so passionate about. Governor Steve Sisolak tweeted, Tony Shee played a pivotal role in helping transform downtown Las Vegas. Kathy and I send our love and condolences to Tony's family and friends during this difficult time. So a number of people commented on this who have association with Las Vegas in some way. And that I'm sure it will be some way that he's going to be honored. Apparently, there was he had some interest in poker too, but I'm not 
let me see if I can. I, I forgot to look that up before the show, but I'd heard that there was some association he had with poker. I know he wasn't an avid player, but uh, I, I think he wrote uh, in a book called Delivering Happiness about playing poker and that he actually would uh, fly to San Francisco for poker parties. So I, I don't know. I don't think he played like in tournaments or things like that, but uh, he. I think he played in private home games and enjoyed poker. Getting back to Zappos, I will say that I understand some of the criticism about the management style there and that uh, there's sometimes good and bad about letting the inmates run the asylum, so to speak, at a company. On one hand, you, you can have happy employees when you don't micromanage them when you make sure they're treated well, when you don't have uh, a boss breathing down their neck all the time, when you allow people to make some creative decisions, even people who are lower on the totem pole, when you take a customer-friendly, customer-first approach. These things can be very positive, and obviously they helped Zappos to a large degree to be as successful as they were. However, I did notice from my dealings with them some cracks in that methodology that uh, were annoying to deal with, frankly. For example, there was a weird problem with their website for years, where if you're using gift cards, which, of course, that's what I had. And, yeah, not most people didn't have $6,000 worth of gift cards. I'll give you that. But gift cards were common. You're like, a lot of people got Zappos gift cards for Christmas or whatever. Like, people had them. So there were a lot of gift card users. And imagine how tilting it would be. You go on the website... You want to buy things with your gift card. Your gift card, let's say you, let's say you have a gift card for uh, $250. And you want to buy $104 worth of shoes. Do you think you should have to whip out your credit card at any point? Or should the, should the $250 gift card cover the entire $104 purchase? Well, guess what? In some cases on Zappos, it did not. <laughs> you might ask how. Could they perhaps have a uh, MyBookie-type rollover that you're required to cycle through Zappos before being able to get shoes. No, not quite, but they had a bug in the website that sometimes when you submit the order, it will demand you provide a credit card for the tax. And there's no reason for this. You may think, oh, maybe it's some kind of Nevada law that you can't pay tax with a gift card. No, you can. It was not intended. It was an actual bug. So sometimes it would go through, and you could pay the tax with your gift card, and sometimes you could not pay the tax with your gift card. Sometimes you would have to pay the tax with your credit card, and that's very frustrating. And you may say, okay, well, how much is that? It's like, you know, like 10 bucks, 20 bucks. That's not the point. The point is you have a gift card for somewhere. You have a big gift card. You want to use the gift card to pay for the entire purchase, and now you've got to whip out your credit card and spend real money to make the purchase even though your gift card easily covers it. So this was a bug in the site. So, okay, you know, bugs happen. But how could this bug persist for years, especially since they had a lot of people using gift cards? And this bug happened often. It didn't happen every time, but it happened a lot. I actually found that certain ways you navigate the site would bring it on and certain ways would not. Why did I look into this? Because having 6K worth of gift cards, I was so annoyed when this happened, and out of principle, I refused to do it. When it would happen to me, I would actually call up and I would have a rep put the thing through on their end without uh, – they were able to see my cart and they could just put it through. 
rather than make me have to whip out the credit card and pay for it. Just out of principle, I was not going to give them additional money because of a bug on their site. I have 6 k worth of gift cards. The last thing I'm going to do is put Zappos shoes on my credit card because their site has a bug. And they admitted it was a bug. They, they fully acknowledged it was a bug. So how could this persist for years? Well, I, I asked them that eventually. And I started making offers to them that I could send them free of charge. I wasn't looking to get hired. I said, I will be glad to send you a, an exact list of steps you one has to take to bring this on every time. It's intermittent, but I figured out what brings it on. So I figured out what makes it happen. And it seems like an easy thing to fix. I have a software background. I can tell you this seems like it's an easy fix. I can tell you exactly what makes it happen and what doesn't make it happen. And tell me who to send this to. I'll send this to them, and I'm not even asking for anything in return. Just just please fix this because I have a ton of gift cards with you guys, and I, I'm just tired of dealing with this. I'll just be thrilled if you fix it, and if I can spend a little time to send you this email, I'll be happy to do it for you. I said this. I, I asked for a manager there and told this to the manager. The manager is very polite and nice to me, and he said, I agree with you. And we deal with this several times a day. We get this complaint several times a day for years. I said, really? They said, yeah. I said, well, why don't you guys fix it? They said, the developers know. They know all about it. We tell them over and over and over again, and they don't fix it. I said, well, why don't they? He said, because they do what they want. The developers, they decide what to work on. They don't have anybody telling them, you must fix this. And they have decided this isn't important to them. So they just don't do it. Then I know it's not what you wanted to hear, and I'd love to tell you we're going to fix it very soon, but I can't promise that because I'm just being honest with you. The developers just don't want to do it. They know it exists. They know it's a bug. They know it's a problem. For whatever reason, they're just not interested in working on this. And I hung up. After that call, I thought, this is bizarre. How can the developers say, we don't feel like working on this bug? We don't, we don't feel like fixing this. It's not even like there's a, this is low on priority. They have so much important work to do, they just can't get to this right now. It's existed for years because the developers just don't feel like taking the time out to, to look into it. And, and there's no one they can escalate it to because the, the whole no-boss culture, everybody kind of manages themselves. So I thought this, this is a problem. See, this is the type of thing you can't have. There, there should not be a case which – this is driving customer service crazy. The manager told me he hated this. He said he, this was a – he said he, he's kind of venting to me, telling me that this is so frustrating for them because this needs to be fixed and, and no one will take responsibility for it. So I'm not, I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead or anything. I mean, I'm just showing there's two sides to every coin with that type of management style. So the employees loved him and the company was very successful, but there is a reason why you don't necessarily emulate this uh, this management culture, that there, there there are problems that come with it. There's problems that ride along with everybody can kind of handle everything themselves and we trust everybody to do the right thing and we don't need to boss you around. So not sometimes you need you do need to boss people around. <laughs> so like if I were if I were uh, a manager there, I would even like if, like let's say I was a customer service manager, I would go to the manager of the developers and say this needs to be fixed. This is dragged on for years. This is something easy to fix. This is something that'll take very little time. Just do it. And I would convince their manager as the manager of the customer service department to get this done to take the burden off of us and the customers. But I don't even know if it's fixed yet. <laughs> I'm forgetting whether it's fixed. I, I figured out the way to avoid it happening so it doesn't hit me anymore, only because I spent time to figure out how to avoid it. So uh, I, I saw some mind-boggling, th- mind-boggling things happening at Zappos as a customer there. 
Customer service is always very nice. They're always very cooperative. I never had any like big fight with them or anything like that. I had some head scratching moments, but they they rectified everything. I kind of sometimes walked away like in that story, going, "What the hell?" But anyway, I, I kind of got to understand the culture there. I kind of got to understand the way it works there. I said, "Okay, I get you know, I guess it works." If you called the Zappos customer service line, this is to show you what a unique company it was. You could actually press five in the menu to hear the joke of the day. <laughs> maybe they still have that. I haven't called in a while. I, now I want to see if they still have that. Let's let's get the Zappos number. We're going to call up right now. We're going to hear if there's a joke of the day and what the joke is. Now, to be honest, I did once press five to hear the joke of the day, and it was not very funny. It was like really, really corny. It's like something that I would have found corny as a 10-year-old. But nevertheless, it was a joke. Hello, you've reached Zappos.com, powered by service. Thank you for allowing our customer loyalty team to put a little Zappos in your day. For quality assurance, this call may be monitored or recorded. As we continue to... Hi, this is Kevin from the Customer Loyalty Circle, and this is your joke of the day. What has ears but can't hear a thing? A cornfield. (laughs) Ah... That sound effect was mine, by the way. I inserted it because that was pretty bad. And what was with the distortion? That sound distortion where you could barely hear the joke? That wasn't on my end. That was on Zappo's end. In case you didn't understand it, it was, what has ears but can't hear a thing? A cornfield. I mean, come on. Okay, let's uh, move on here to our next topic. I want to talk about the Venmo hacking, which is plaguing the poker community. And this isn't being talked about that much, and it should be. This should be a very big story in poker, and for some reason it's not. But I'm going to tell you about it. And this is something you should watch out for. And if you either are a known or semi-known poker pro, or if you have traded money with anybody in poker using Venmo, I strongly suggest you listen to my suggestions at the end of the segment, how to prevent this from occurring to you. Because this isn't just like a dumb thing, oh, it's never going to happen to me. Like, there's a decent chance it'll happen to you if you don't heed my advice, if there's a way for the hackers here to realize that you are associated with poker, because that's who they're targeting. So on November 24th, Daniel Negreanu texted the following, not texted, tweeted the following. The dude who robbed my Venmo account has some balls, cleaned it out, and then still tried to pay... $43 for an Uber ride on my dime. Wow. You just stole $15,000, dude, and you need to still get me for $43 more? Aren't you a piece of work? So Daniel Negreanu had $15,000 plus $43, apparently, stolen out of his Venmo account by a hacker. So I guess this guy cleaned out the account and then somehow used it to spend $43 for an Uber ride. Now, it was never made clear if Negreanu used the information for this Uber ride. Like, where was it from? Where was it to? Maybe it would lead to the the hacker. I don't know. Now, I guess the guy could have gone from, like, one business to the other, and there wouldn't be much information. But maybe there is. Who knows? But whatever it is, the guy actually had to hit Negreanu for an extra 43 bucks after taking 15 k out of the Venmo account. 
For those of you that do not know, Venmo is similar to PayPal. In fact, it's owned by PayPal, but it has a social media kind of aspect to it, which I never really understood. And people commenting on Twitter didn't seem to really understand it either to where I didn't feel as old anymore. Because when people first asked me, do you have Venmo? I said, no. What is it? And they were explaining it's kind of like social media combined with a payment service. And I was like, what? Social media combined with a – why would you combine the two? Like what? I, I can kind of understand making payments through social media. Like I know Facebook tried to introduce like a way to make Facebook payments. And that kind of makes sense. But why would there be social media around making payments, which is what this is? It's a payment app that also doubles as a social media app. It's kind of like, like social payments. It's really bizarre. I didn't understand it. It is true that more young people had this. It was very much a young app. But as time passed and Venmo got more popular, more and more people started to get Venmo. Even I got Venmo because people kept asking for me to have Venmo, to send Venmo, to receive Venmo. And I'm like, okay, fine, I'll get Venmo. When people used to ask me, do you have Venmo? My response was, no, I'm too old for it. And finally, I had to break down and get one. But it really is like PayPal plus social media. You may wonder, how can those be combined? Well, for whatever reason, they thought it was a smart idea to have a list of who you're paying. <laughs> like, so they actually have it by default set to public, and anybody you make payments to, people can browse you and see who you've been paying and then browse them, and you can add them as friends. It's a really bizarre thing. Like, Why is it anyone's business who you're sending money to? Why would this be something you'd want known? Why would this be something you'd build social media around? Why would you even want to have social media type discussions on a platform where you're sending people money. I didn't get it. I still don't get it. Nevertheless, that was part of it. I went into the privacy settings and shut all that down. I've never used it for that, and I make it to where people cannot see that stuff. But that's what Venmo is. You can use it like I do, just to send people money, receive money from people. And much like PayPal, Venmo can have chargebacks. So if you are defrauded, you can charge it back. And this is why I always tell people, don't accept money on Venmo and don't accept money on PayPal from people you don't trust because they can claim fraud later and get the money back. And it's up to Venmo or PayPal if they want to give it to you or not give it to you. So you're at their mercy. They are judge, jury, and executioner with each of these transactions, and often they just make an arbitrary decision. So it's not like a bank that will do an investigation and you have some legal rights with it. This this is just – if they decide they're going to honor it as fraud and, and claim it's fraud, then they're going to take the money away from you. And if they don't, they won't, and it's, it's very difficult to tell which way they're going to rule. So I always say if you don't trust the person not to charge back, don't take money on Venmo. So like don't take Venmo money from someone who is uh, going to send you the Venmo and you send them poker chips on like ACR or something because there's a good chance they're going to stiff you if they lose the money and want to get back what they've lost. If you trust them, of course, they won't stiff you. But if you don't know them or don't trust them, don't take Venmo from them. But that's not what this is about. This is about an actual hacking. So someone hacked Negranu's Venmo. He had a 15K balance on there, and they just took it. I don't know where they sent it, but they sent it somewhere else and cashed it out, presumably. And then they also hit him for this $43 Uber ride they took. Well, it turned out that Negreanu wasn't the only one. Eric Seidel tweeted, 
Looks like my Venmo has been hacked and email connected to the account changed. I've tried calling, emailing, and contacting Venmo support with no response for the last hour. Now, Negranu later complained the same thing, that he wasn't getting a good response from Venmo support. So support was very unhelpful here, which again is disturbing. Then a third victim, Vanessa Selbst. Vanessa Selbst, who had already seen that this had occurred to Negranu and Seidel, the next day was hit. On November 25th, she tweeted, I just got a really weird Venmo request from, quote, Dan Coleman. Now, this doesn't mean the real Dan Coleman. This means somebody who is listed on Venmo as Dan Coleman. For $6 for, quote, HH, maybe referring to hen history, I don't know, but she got a request. That's part of the whole social media aspect is you can request money on Venmo, which I know isn't exclusive to Venmo. You can do it on other payment systems as well. But you can send a request on Venmo. So she gets a request from supposedly Dan Coleman asking for $6 reason HH. And she knows Dan Coleman isn't asking her for $6. She thinks it's really weird. And she had already heard that a hacking had occurred against Negranu and Seidel. So obviously at this point, Vanessa is very worried that she's going to be next, and rightfully so. So she asked, anyone have an experience like this? Is it related to the hacking that's going around? Daniel Negranu, did you experience anything similar? Daniel said back, no, but I always get some random requests from names I, I wouldn't know, so I, I don't know. So that's funny. I didn't know that people are sending Negranu requests for money like, randomly on, on Venmo. That's kind of funny. So he probably did get one. He just didn't think it was anything significant because he always gets these from just random names. Here's what happened to her next. Update. After, shortly after receiving the weird Venmo request, my account was hacked. I now have no access to it. Please don't respond to any messages for me there. Venmo support, please contact me. No idea how to get access back. Also, your security is a joke. And then she went on to say, apparently that was the first step before they hacked the account. That is the uh, sending the requ- that weird request. Uh, Steve O'Dwyer, were you hacked too? Anyways, I emptied my account for safekeeping. Suggest everyone did the same. Venmo, you need to have a 2FA, which stands for two-factor authentication option, and I don't see one. And the reason she mentioned uh, Steve O'Dwyer is that Isaac Haxton pointed out that Eric Seidel had mentioned that he got one of those weird requests, not from Dan Coleman, but from Steve O'Dwyer, presumably also a fake account. Then she uh, found something even more disturbing. The story didn't end here for Vanessa. She said, the fact that I saw that my Venmo hack was coming and still couldn't prevent it, no 2FA, seriously, is a serious catastrophe. And she's right. I mean, that's that's horrible. I have to recommend people stop using this service if they don't take security more seriously. Now my wife, who I transferred my money to, got her account hacked. So much for emptying my funds. Venmo support, please contact me. This is a complete joke. So... She transferred her money over to her wife, assuming that would be safe, and then the hackers got into her account. They're like, hmm, Vanessa has a zero balance. Let's see if she sent the money anywhere. Oh, yep, she did. She sent it to her wife. Okay, well, let's just hack her wife's account, and yep, now we have the money. Now, I will say this wasn't very smart on Vanessa's part. If you know accounts are getting hacked at will and you know a history is going to show where you sent the money – 
then you shouldn't have assumed that your wife's account was going to be safe. Why? Just because like she's not a known poker player? Like they, they can see where you've sent the money. So if you see they can pull this off, if you see that there's no way for you to prevent them getting access to your account, which looks like was the case, then they can do the same to your wife, which they did, and they took the money. So that's the end of the money. And just like with Daniel and Eric, Venmo support did not answer them. Now, I'm not sure if they tried to call. I'm not sure if they tried to email. I saw they were trying to tweet to Venmo support. Maybe that's why they're not getting an answer. You should always call if you can. I'm not even sure if they have phone support. But all three have claimed that support is not helping them. Now, what is going on here? When I first heard about the hack, when it was just uh, Eric, I had heard about Eric Seidel first before uh, Daniel Negreanu. When it was Eric Seidel, I said, okay, you know, maybe Eric Seidel got fished. Because I always get emails from fake PayPal and fake Venmo that there's a problem with my account and I should click here to fix it. If you click here, what you'll get is a login screen and it's not a real login screen. So if you enter your email and your password, you've just given it to the hackers and then they have an automated tool that logs in as you and takes over your account. So I thought, okay, this probably happened to Eric and he just, I don't know how computer savvy Eric Seidel is. Maybe he fell for it. I know he's a smart guy, but maybe he got tricked. Maybe it was a weak moment. Maybe he wasn't paying attention. And that's what happened. Well, when I heard it was Negreanu also, I thought, hmm, that makes it a little less likely. But I don't know. Maybe maybe they hit a bunch of poker players with these phishing emails. Maybe it was targeted at poker players that were assumed like they'd have money on there because it's assumed these people are rich. And they do a lot of trading back and forth because of uh, bets or whatever. And maybe these were the two who fell for the phishing attempt. But when it got to Vanessa Selps, I said, you know what? Given the way this all went down, I don't think that this was a phishing attack for a few reasons. First of all, I criticize Vanessa Selps a lot on this show and on my forum, and I stand by all of my criticisms. I think she's awful. I think she's a crappy person. I think she's got psychological issues. I think she's not very nice. I think she's a big hypocrite. But there's one thing I've never said about her and never will say about her. Vanessa Selfst is not stupid. And Vanessa Selfst has a pretty logical mind. And uh, she's not a computer genius, but she's the type who, after seeing that two others in the poker community were hit with his hack, when she sees that uh, she's getting this weird request from fake Dan Coleman, that she might be victimized next. So... She didn't say she changed her password, but I have to imagine she probably changed her password. I have to imagine she tried to do all she could to lock down her account. She even searched for two-factor authentication, only to notice that it did not exist. So that it looks like she did all she could, except for this stupid thing of sending it to her wife, which was kind of just a lapse in judgment. I see what she was going for. But you, you see she was trying to prevent this. So it's not like she fell for the phishing thing as well, because... At this point, when she got this weird Dan Coleman message, this weird request, at this point, you got to think at the very least you changed her password. And if this were phishing, they wouldn't need to do this nonsense about the request. Obviously, there's something about the request that is making this happen. Obviously, that's the step to make it occur. She said that, and she, I think she's right. Otherwise, why do it? Why, why would you send a weird request from fake Steve O'Dwyer or fake Dan Coleman asking for little sums of money. It's not like this money was sent. It's not like she said, okay, well, here, here, Dan Coleman, here's your $6 for HH. No, she didn't do that. She she just ignored it. In fact, she did more than ignore it. She, she saw it and said, wait a minute, I have a feeling I'm next. So not only am I sending $6, but I think this is the first step in getting me, and it was. So 
Can you picture, given the way she was treating this and given her high level of suspicion, which was correct, that she did something careless like got fished? There's no chance. And again, this weird request wouldn't be sent if it was just about fishing. So there must be some sort of vulnerability in Venmo's system, which someone has discovered, where if you send a weird request, this gives you some kind of in to their account. I can't tell you exactly what it is, but that has to be part of it. And it looks like any account can be taken over at will. So they took over Seidel, they took over Negranu, they took over Selbst, and when they took over Selbst and locked her out and saw that she emptied all her money and sent it to her wife, they're like, okay, well, we'll just take over her wife's account. And they did, and they took the money. So this shows they can get anybody, including me, including you. Now, they have to know something about you, presumably. They have to be able to search you on there, or they have to be able to look you up through your email. So here's a few steps you can take to prevent yourself from becoming a victim. Now, if you're just Joe Recreational Player who's never transferred money with anybody in poker, you're unlikely to be a victim because they're not going to target you. But if you have transferred with poker players, then they may see you on the list and assume you're also a poker player and go after you. And they can seem, seemingly do this with ease, so uh, they can get you and a ton of other people, and probably have. There's probably a lot more than these three who have been hit. But make yourself unsearchable, first of all, if you think they would search for you, if you think you're a big enough name to where they'd search for you. You don't have to be a huge name. Like, like I'm a big enough name to where they could find me. So if you think they would search for you, take your name off search, if it's possible. I haven't even looked at that. But... Even if they don't search for you, they might be able to find you through email address, so that may not be that helpful, and they might be able to come up your email somewhere. But here's what I would say to do immediately, and this will protect you. Number one, empty your account immediately, not by sending it to a friend, not by sending it to your wife, but by withdrawing. Immediately process a withdrawal of every penny you have sitting in Venmo at the moment. And this will happen fairly quickly and the hackers won't have access to it. It won't be instantaneous, but get every penny you have on Menmo off right now. Second, unlink all credit cards and bank accounts and debit cards. Any, any kind of funding source, immediately delete off the app. And once your app is, once it's down to a zero balance with no funding source, then the hackers cannot do very much to you. Why? Because they have no way to fund the account and there's nothing to steal anymore. The only thing they can do at that point is impersonate you. And they could scam others by doing like money trade scams. But that, that's an extra level of effort they may not want to go through. I think they're going after the low-hanging fruits here and just stealing money out of accounts. So I think if they come across an account with $0 and with no bank account or credit card attached, they're just going to move on. Also change your password, of course. Uh, change the email registered to it is also helpful. If so this way they can't look up your email in some way, and there are services that look up your email because they, there are services out there that have bought lists of email addresses that have been used with businesses, and they may have your email address, or they could buy it very cheaply. So you may want to change the email on your Venmo, but the most important thing to do, get every penny off Venmo and delink all credit cards and bank accounts and debit cards. So there's no way to fund it. And leave it that way until we have some answers here. So, uh, like, I won't be able to pay you for the free roll on Venmo for this reason. 
I've delinked everything. Because I'm not as big of a name as any of the people hit here, aside from Vanessa Self's wife. But do I think it's impossible they're going to hit me? No, I, I, I think I'm known enough to where there can be an idea to hit me. That too, another could be a listener to the show. If you are, I hope you quit doing this. That's a pretty awful thing to be doing. Now, you may wonder, what recourse do these people have? What can Negreanu do about his 15K? What can Vanessa do about the money that was stolen that she won't she won't tell us how much and she won't answer anyone's questions about this? And she doesn't have to. It's not our business, but just be interesting to know. But well, what can they do about it? I don't know if Eric Seidel lost money, but I know they got into his account. I know that he was concerned about that. What can you do after the fact? Well, depends. If they took money out of your balance, you're going to have a hard time because then it's up to them to decide if they're going to give the money back to you. And there's a good chance they'll ignore you. There's a good chance they will rule against you. But still press this very hard and still see if you can reach their support by phone and then you get a manager or supervisor online. That's your best shot at getting that rectified. But you don't have a lot of rights there. Now, yeah, you could sue them, but you know the cost of suing them might be more than it got stolen. So you're kind of in a crappy situation there and it's going to be tough. If anything was stolen directly out of your bank account or credit card, if the hackers are on there and they use your credit card to deposit and then steal the money or your bank account to deposit to steal the money, or if you've previously deposited with your bank account or credit card and then the money was subsequently stolen, definitely you have rights. Definitely go to your bank and claim that this was fraud and claim that uh, hackers stole the money that was uh, deposited there and that uh, Venmo will not make it right. So anything that came originally from your bank, even if a while ago, go ahead and go to your bank and make a complaint. Because what could happen is the bank will investigate it. You're in best standing if the hackers actually initiated the transaction. There, by law, the bank has to investigate and then return the money to you. Why? Because the burden is on the bank. This is a bank for the credit card or for your bank account. The burden is on the bank to decide whether or not the transaction is a legitimate transaction. A common myth in banking is that if hackers get your account number and somehow send a withdrawal request for a million dollars or a wire request for a million dollars and impersonate you and the bank sends the million dollars, let's say you had a million dollars in your bank account, and the bank sends the million dollars to a bogus wire request that you're out the money. Just tough luck. You're, you're done. Million dollars out the window. Not how it works. Not how it works. The bank has the responsibility to make sure that the transaction is what it appears to be. So if somebody impersonates you and does a an electronic fund transfer that you didn't authorize or a wire transfer you didn't authorize out of your account, then the bank has to eat the money because it's their mistake for not verifying this properly. So they have to eat it. However, if you are scammed and you send the money out and then you go to the bank and go, hey, I was scammed, can you get the money back? Then the answer is no. Then you're screwed because it was your decision to send the money. You just made a bad decision to send the money. But if the bank sends the money, if the bank is tricked into sending the money, if someone impersonates you and gets the bank to send the money in any way, credit card, bank account, whatever, then the bank, it is their responsibility to deal with. And that is why when people steal your checks 
and write bogus checks or steal your account number and do EFTs or anything else like that, or they steal your credit card, the bank always covers it after doing an initial investigation, sometimes not even that. They will give it back to you because they have to, because the burden is on them to make sure the transaction is legit. Linking it to what's happened here, if somebody steals directly out of your bank account through Venmo, you will definitely get the money back. It may take a little time to investigate, but you'll get it back. If you deposited yourself, if you knowingly deposited and then hackers got in and stole the money, you might have a chance. And I would suggest you skip that detail and just simply say that this was uh, stolen by hackers, that it was, it was a hacked transaction that uh, – I, I would just skip the whole thing that you did it and then it was stolen later. But the bottom line is the money came out of your account and was stolen by hackers. And let, let Venmo explain it. Venmo may do a poor job explaining you'll get the money back anyway. If you just had a balance, let's say you got money sent to you by someone in poker, which pre- presumably is what Negranu got. I don't think Negranu deposited 15K to Venmo. I think he probably received it from people for bets or whatever. Then you're pretty much screwed. Then your bank can't help you. Then it's up to Venmo. And if Venmo doesn't want to help you, then good luck. Your recourse is limited and will be costly. So don't carry a balance there. Even when this is all done, learn from this and don't keep a balance there. You can always cash out and buy back in. But it's very disturbing that their support doesn't seem to care about this. And always know your rights when it comes to being defrauded. And always know where you're protected and not protected. And as I said... You're not protected by your bank if your balance is sitting in Venmo and gets taken. You are protected if money goes out of your bank account from a Venmo transaction, which is fraudulent. That is not on you because there's no way it can be on you since it's not your responsibility. There's nothing you can do to prevent it. If a bank's security procedures and Venmo security procedures are breached and your money is stolen out of your account that way, that's up to the bank to prevent so I think Negreanu is screwed, actually. I don't think he's going to get back his 15K. Maybe he will. Maybe they'll just make it right for him. But I'm guessing the hackers got away with the money and Venmo's going to say, sorry. And I'm sure Venmo will not admit that this is their fault for having lack security. And I agree. The fact that they do not have two-factor authentication that checks with you before money is sent out is crazy. That is crazy. That they don't have that. Because if that existed, then it becomes much tougher for the hackers because then they have to find a way to imitate your device through a SIM scam, which which is possible, but much harder. So unless they can basically duplicate your SIM and impersonate your phone, then with uh, text two-factor authentication, there's no way to move money out. But without that, you can, and they do. And at least give the, give this option to where people can set it to where no money can move without that. But they don't. And it looks like support doesn't even want to help. So I don't know who's going to be next. I have a feeling this is not going to end, especially with the hacker getting away with it so far. I don't know how aggressively Negranu is going to pursue this Uber thing. Because Uber may not want to cooperate a lot. You'd think they would, but... You'd be surprised how little companies cooperate in situations like this. Because I've had this before where someone steals my credit card number, orders merchandise. I call up the company. I say, hey, can you tell me where this is going? No, we can't tell you. I go, what do you mean you can't tell me? It was on my credit card. I'm Todd Wattellis. I can prove 
that this is my credit card. I can prove this is who I am. I'll do whatever I need to. I'll even go to a freaking notary if you need me to. Okay? So I have a right to know what was purchased using my credit card and my identity with your company. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, it wasn't your purchase. We can't tell you. It was a purchase done on behalf of me. It was a purchase done using my name and credit card and full information. So, of course, I have a right to know it. If, if they claim they're me, then I have a right to know. It's not like it's a different Todd Wittellis. I can prove I'm the same one with the same card. Nope, that's not our policy. So sometimes I've been able to browbeat these companies into giving me the information. One time, laughably, we got into a standoff, me and, and uh, this one company. I wanted the information on where the merchandise was being sent, and they wanted the credit card number so they could look up the transaction. And I said, I'll give this to you, but only if you promise to tell me where it's going. Because I wanted the address. I wanted to look up where it was being sent and go from there. I wanted to do my own investigation. And they said, we can't promise that. Give us the credit card number, and we will tell you afterwards if we deem it appropriate. I said, "Uh uh-uh. You either agree to this and promise me that under all circumstances you're going to give me the information, or I'm not going to give you the credit card. And they say, well, why don't you want to give the credit card? I thought you want to prevent fraud. I said, I do, but if you're not going to cooperate with me, I'm not going to cooperate with you. It is to your benefit for me to tell you the credit card number so you can blacklist it and prevent this from happening again. But if you don't want to help me, I'm not going to help you. And it was funny because they, they didn't know what to say. Like they, they wanted to prevent the, the person who stole my credit card from ordering again, and I hadn't given my name yet. Like I wouldn't give them any info until they agreed with me to give me the address it was going to. And it was this funny standoff there where they they wanted to evaluate it first and then give me the answer. And I said, nope, either commit beforehand or I'm giving you nothing. Finally, they backed down. Finally, after they talked to some supervisors, okay, fine, we'll promise it. What's your credit card number? So they did. And then of all things, the address turned out to be not very useful because it was my address. (laughs) So presumably what would have happened was before the item shipped, they would have called up and changed it. But I guess they initially made the purchase to my address, so it didn't look as suspicious because it matched the credit card address. And I interrupted it before the full scheme could occur. So it turned out all that was for nothing. But I have tracked down some of these scammers before. I even got one of them evicted from his uh, apartment in uh, Chevy Chase, Maryland. Yes, there is a Chevy Chase, Maryland. And I got I got a, a credit card thief, someone part of a credit card thief ring evicted. And I knew I wasn't hitting an innocent person whose address was being used as a drop point, because sometimes they'll do that. Sometimes these scammers will order things to a neighbor who's never around. But uh, I basically tricked the front desk into telling me about this person, and they told me that this person is always coming down to get packages. A, a shocking number of packages this person's been picking up. And I said, are you sure it's him? Are you sure it's the person who actually lives in that? Oh, yeah, we know him. Yeah, that's, that's him. I said, okay, well, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you why he's really getting packages. Anyway, I, wh- the reason – the way I did this is I, I impersonated a credit card uh, company investigator. I didn't want to impersonate a police officer because that's illegal. Okay, So I wasn't going to pretend to be a cop or the FBI or anything like that. I didn't want to commit a crime myself. It, while fighting crime. So what I did was uh, 
I impersonated a credit card investigator, which is not a law enforcement position. So that that wasn't illegal to impersonate as long as I wasn't doing it in order to commit crimes myself. And uh, I told them that we're working with the police and that I wouldn't be surprised if the police come over very soon, arrest the guy and put police tape in front of the building, in front of that unit and not let anybody in for the next nine months. So the management got very nervous there and evicted the guy. <laughs> Which was very fitting. I was very proud of myself. for This is like 15 years ago, but very proud of myself for getting one of the uh, credit card thieves evicted from his apartment where this merchandise was being sent, including merchandise ordered with my damn credit card. Now, had they not told me that he was coming down to pick up tons of packages to where it was like unusual how many he was getting every day, had they not told me this detail, I would not have done this because I would not have wanted some unwitting accomplice that didn't even know was an accomplice that uh, stuff was being shipped to his apartment when he wasn't around and uh, being picked up by the by the hacker, the scammers, whatever. Like, I, I didn't uh, want to get that poor person evicted or in trouble in any way. But clearly this guy I got booted was involved. Strangely enough, the police were not interested. I, I tried to bring it to the police in several jurisdictions, and they were not interested. Then they told me at the police that they need to hear from the credit card company. Even though I was the victim, they had to hear from the credit card company. The credit card company was not interested in working with the police. It's crazy. I tried to put them all together. Nobody wanted to work together. So I got that one guy evicted, and then I hammered someone in a foreign country who was involved in the whole thing in Armenia. I hammered him with calls all day and all night until he changed his number. And he was furious because he was using the number to receive phone calls about about the merchandise and everything, and he had to change the number because I hammered it all day and all night with automated phone calls. So that was satisfying. That was satisfying. But uh, I had to do all the investigating myself. They were not interested in doing it themselves. The fantasy you might have is that you give this to the police and they will jump into full-time work looking into this crime and bust in and arrest the perpetrator like you see on TV. But it doesn't work that way. This is not taken very seriously. And until they get multiple reports that the same person is doing it, only then they take action. If it's like a one-off thing or if the others haven't – like if they haven't gotten enough reports yet, they don't even do anything, especially in jurisdictions where they already have a lot of work to do. So like if, if they're up to their ears in murders and strong-arm robberies and carjackings, uh, gang violence, they're, they're not going to bother with this crap. And unfortunately, most jurisdictions of any size, this is small potatoes. So, and they, also, they don't they don't understand it either. They they don't understand a lot of the stuff. Like Venmo, they're gonna have a real hard time understanding at the police station. So it's, it's sad. It's it's too bad that there's not more aggressive investigation of this sort of thing. Because like if I were working an investigation to this, I could totally unravel very quickly who did it and bust people with pretty convincing evidence that would put them away. But. For whatever reason, people are not hired with familiarity with this stuff, and I have to imagine that that would be what would happen here. But still, uh, Negrana could pursue this himself. I just don't know if he wants to. And sometimes the Uber ride wouldn't mean anything. As I said, if if the guy's going from uh, like some large Vegas casino over to some other large Vegas casino, good luck in determining that one. I mean, yeah, I guess they could pull surveillance footage, but still, that might be tough. Because there's only so much investigating the police are willing to do on your behalf. Like, to get surveillance footage, you'd have to get the police involved to help you, and they need to pull it, and they may not want to do it for just Venmo fraud. So, 
I wonder who it is. I, I don't think it's a prominent poker player. I wonder if it's a name we'd know. Clearly, it's someone with some kind of poker connection because they wouldn't be hitting Negranu, Seidel, Selbst. But it could be just some poker fan who's not really part of the community but just knows those names from observing poker for all these years. The credit card fraud that happened against me is kind of similar to this because the one against me that I just described that I disrupted was also an inside job. They actually got into my account through Chase. This is with Chase, a a Chase credit card, and they actually got into my online account without ever resetting my password and without ever uh, doing anything that uh, otherwise I would have seen had they done it. So I got no notification that anything had been changed, but they had changed my phone number. They had changed my address. They had my credit card information. They had everything. The only thing they didn't have was my social, oddly enough. And I found this out by uh, social engineering the guy in Armenia by pretending that I was calling up to verify a purchase that he had made. So it was so weird. I called up the guy in Armenia, and I pretended to be from some company looking to verify a purchase, and I had to ask for Todd Wittellas. Is, is Todd Wittellas there? Yes, this is Todd Wittellas. What do you want? <laughs> and so I, I had to have a conversation pretending to be somebody else, talking to someone pretending to be Todd Wittellas. It was really bizarre. And then I eventually told him that he was full of shit, and the little battle started. But uh, he had a lot of stuff about me otherwise, and, and I saw in my account they had changed everything. And Chase denied it. They Chase would not admit that they had someone who was dirty there that was changing this information from the inside. But 100% that's what happened, because there's no way to have done this otherwise. You, there's, I told them there's no way to have changed my info from the inside, uh, without doing it from the inside, on the website, without uh, changing my password. And I said, my password has not been changed, and it's a password I've used nowhere else, and uh, it's very clear this is what happened. There's, there's no way. I didn't have a keylogger on my computer, nothing. It was, the, it was only Chase. Nowhere else got hit. Because, like, let's say you, you think I'm just being too arrogant and that my system was hit with a keylogger and they've seen all my passwords. Well, then how come they didn't hit everything? They only hit Chase. So it was clearly an inside job. Clearly somebody accessed it from the inside changed these details, and then were able to ship the stuff to that address in Maryland, which matched my account, and then the phone number matched the number that uh, it's going to have that Armenian answering, which is a U.S. phone number forwarding to Armenia. So just like this here, I think someone has some kind of access either through the inside in Venmo or someone has hacked Venmo in some way, and the hack requires this weird thing with a request. The request has something to do with it. Okay, let's move on. Trader Risk, are you still with us? I'm here. Okay, very good. Bellagio has renamed Bobby's Room. Bobby's Room was named after Bobby Baldwin, who is both a well-known old-school poker pro and a well-known casino executive who was very high up in the MGM hierarchy. Bobby Baldwin was said to be in charge of the Bellagio Poker Room. He wasn't managing day-to-day operations, but uh, under his list of responsibilities there was the Poker Room, and he made certain decisions there, and they basically followed his lead. He was also blamed for allowing these private games to take place where certain games would go on in Bobby's room and also at the Aria, which is also an MGM property, 
that these games would go on where they would find artificial ways to shut people out, which is really against the spirit of the law in Nevada, which requires that all games are public and open to everybody. And they found ways around that at both uh, Bellagio and Aria in order to keep the games only for certain preferred people. And uh, the rationale was that the fish would be befriended by certain players who would then convince the fish to shut everybody else out, and then the Bellagio and Aria would go along with it. It was accused that Bobby Baldwin was the one who was enabling that decision. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, that was the accusation. For sure, these private games were going on. At first, they kind of tried to cover up that it was happening. Then eventually, they just kind of admitted, yeah, we're doing it too bad. If you don't like it, tough luck. So uh, anyway, he stepped down. He is no longer the uh, an employee of MGM. And this happened a while ago. This didn't just happen. And the reason was never stated. And it wasn't a matter of retirement because he moved on to become the director of gaming for the up-and-coming casino The Drew, which isn't finished yet, but uh, it's not going to be finished for a while. But uh, he signed on as the director of gaming for The Drew, so it's not clear why Bobby Baldwin uh, left, but he did leave. There were some rumors that after what happened with Steve Wynn, that um, perhaps Bobby Baldwin had some of those same concerns. The, I never saw any kind of uh, concrete evidence that, that was true. That was just kind of rumors floating around that he had uh, concerns that complaints might be brought against him. But this also could just be a BS rumor. Uh, it's possible he was just sick of the MGM. You know, he had an issue with them there, or whatever it is. That, uh, but he did leave, and he did leave kind of abruptly, like not super abruptly. He did give some notice that he was leaving, but a, a real reason was never stated, and it didn't make a lot of sense. It would have made sense if he retired, but he never said that he was retiring. So that made people wonder, like. If he's retiring, wouldn't you have said so? And if he's not retiring, why would he leave a really high position at uh, MGM? Where and, and he was, other than the private game thing, he was very well respected and had a was very well entrenched in the M- MGM. Why would Bobby Baldwin have then left to go somewhere else unless something either he was concerned about or he was unhappy about? Have you one of those two things? Anyway, that happened in November 2019. So we're talking about a year ago that he signed with the Drew. And he had left a year before that in October 2018. So he's been gone from MGM and, of course, the Bellagio for over two years now. But yet Bobby's room remained. That was still the name of the high limit room at the Bellagio. I'm talking about that separate room that's right in the center of the poker room that has a, a door and then glass windows around it that uh, you can kind of look into, but they don't really want you to do. That's what Bobby's room is. Technically, everybody's allowed there, but if you try to walk in there and just observe the game, they'll kick you out. And if you try to get in the game, they sometimes won't let you in or find ways not to let you in. These are very, very high-stakes games, so you also have to have the money to play them. Anyway, they have changed... The name of Bobby's room. So who is it named after now? They, they changed it because he hasn't been associated with MGM for two years and figured it was stupid to keep that, which I understand that. But what did they change it to? 
Well, I think they got the idea from the current name of the former Washington Redskins, which is actually called the Washington football team, which is so weird to look in the NFL box scores and see, you know, football team this, and then uh, Saints this. Like, how is it just called football team? How is that still the name? Anyway, taking a page from that, the same level of creativity, Bobby's room is now called Legends Room. (laughs) Yes, Legends Room. Really, they couldn't do better than this? And they changed the plaque. There was a plaque before that said Bobby's Room. It now says Legends Room, and uh, Jess Wellman pointed out that the Legends Room plaque looks like something they stole from a Holiday Inn that was closing. It really does. It looks like a very cheap plaque that was made for something like a Holiday Inn for some conference room. This is the Legends Room. Oh, no, our Holiday Inn is closing because of COVID. Anyone want to buy a, a Legends Room sign? Oh, we will, we will. Over here, over here. Bellagio, over here. So, yeah, it says Legends Room now. Really dumb. That's the best they could come up with. They couldn't find somebody else to name it after or to honor or at least give it a better name in Legends Room. <laughs> Legends Room. This has not gotten a very good response from people. Some felt it should keep the name Bobby's Room because of Bobby Baldwin being both a World Series of Poker main event champion and a uh, legend in poker himself and and uh, a big figure in the Las Vegas gambling scene. Like, why... Do you have to rename it just because he left the company? Like, leave it there. The guy, it's not like he was with the company for six months and named it after himself. I mean, he, he had been with them for like 20 years or something. So, like, why why rename it at all? It's been two years. But it's actually more than 20 years. He, he got hired. Uh, he was hired by the, the Golden Nugget in 82, then became president of the Mirage in 87. And then uh, that eventually became MGM Resort. So he's basically been there since 87 through uh, 2018. It was over 30 years. So you have him over 30 years there, and you can't keep it called Bobby's Room? I mean, that that would really make me think, again, that this was something that wasn't amicable. Like, they didn't fire him, but he left kind of out of nowhere and for reasons that were never made clear. And then he goes and takes a job at a casino that doesn't even exist yet and may never exist. That's really strange. It's a really strange career trajectory. If you're 69 years old and you don't want to work anymore, I think he's 69. If you're like that age, you don't want to work anymore, okay. Makes sense. You're 69. You don't want to work as a casino VP anymore. Okay. I get it. But to quit there and then take a job at a casino that has no establishment and it may fail, why would you ever do that? Why would you? Do it? It's not even like he'll say, "Okay, well, well, the Drew's going to be really big one day, so I'm going to stick with them for a while." They got 69. How long is he going to work there? It's a really strange thing to do. It's not even like he can say this is a new chapter in his life. When you're 69, you don't start new chapters in your life. So something happened there. Something either happened or was going to happen, and he left. And when I say something, I mean it could just be that he didn't get along with upper, with the management above him. He didn't like certain decisions. He didn't like certain powers being taken away. It could, it could be anything. We we don't know. But I, I think they changed it because they have some animosity towards him over there. And they, they left it for two years, and they're like, you know what? We don't like this guy anymore. Why are we still honoring him with this? He doesn't deserve it. And they took it away from him. That, that's my guess. I don't have any proof of this, but this is my guess. There was not good response to this. The poker community was mocking it. They said they should have just left it this way. 
Nick Shulman said, pour one out for Bobby's room, which is now called Legend's Room, LOL, is nothing sacred anymore. And he posted an old picture of Bobby Baldwin from the 70s. Uh, Isaac Haxton said, the fuck it has. I'm absolutely not going to start calling it the Legend's Room. Matt Salzberg said, should have named it Doyle's Vault. Why not name it after Doyle? That's not a bad decision. Phil Helmuth, I know he had association with the Aria. Uh, Why not name it after him? Phil's Room, I mean, anything like this. Legend's Room is so dumb. Another weird situation with a room being named after someone. In the Aria, they had Ivy's Room. And then the problem was that the Borgata was uh, battling with Ivy over this money that he owed them from that lawsuit. So it was weird to have that room there. So they finally changed it to, quote, Table 1 in, uh, in uh, February 2019 because Ivy owed them $10 million and wouldn't pay. Now, he eventually settled in uh, July of last year, but uh, at the time they changed it because they got that judgment and Ivy wouldn't pay, and they're like, F him, we're not going to honor him here. But at least Table 1 is a bit more creative than Legends Room. Legends 1 is just so, that's so generic, Legends Room. At least table one is kind of, you know, it's kind of generic too, but at least it's it's a little bit uh, eclectic to where, like, at least it has a little bit of simplistic charm to it. Legends Room, it really is like, someone thought of this in two minutes and said, let's go with that. So no one's calling it Legends Room, and the poker community does not like it one bit. They're not married to this name, they could always change it to something else. But that has been done two years after Bobby Baldwin has left. Weird timing, too. You think, like, if they're going to do this, do this after he leaves, not, like, two years after he leaves? You should do it, like, very shortly. They did this in late November 2018. Totally makes sense, though the name still sucks. But to do it in 2020? The end of 2020? Like, what? But that's what has happened. Bobby's room is gone. Ivy's room is gone. We now have Table One and Legend's room. I think Nick Shulman is correct. Nothing is sacred anymore. All right, let's move on here. Doug Polk and Daniel Negranu are going on with their match. And I mentioned last week that they were pretty even. They were both trading some decent-sized wins and losses, and Polk was a little bit ahead, but pretty much it was around the same. I think it was like 25K in favor of Polk, who at one point was down like, 179k but okay you know we're it was back to essentially even they're playing very high stakes so 25k sounds like a lot but it, it really isn't in this match that goes very quickly but uh polk and negranu kept playing they said they're going to play more hands than they were before and that's what they've been doing so this has definitely gone doug polk's way and it looks like that maybe we're starting to see the true advantage of Doug Polk showing itself, which isn't good for my bet. Session number 11, which took place on November 25th, Doug Polk walloped him for $120,000 over 416 hands. He then brought himself to a total of uh, $264,000 up over 5,067 hands. This was after previously winning in the uh, other sessions to where he had uh, taken a lot more of a lead than uh, 25,000. So uh, in session 10, he he won as well about uh, 
we left off last week at session nine. So in session ten, I guess he won uh, about a hundred, around the same thing, like low hundreds, to bring himself to one forty four up. So I guess he won one oh nine in session ten. Session eleven, he wins hundred twenty thousand. And what happened with session twelve? Well, session twelve was pretty good. Doug Polk won three hundred thirty-two thousand dollars over six hundred eighty-four hands. Huh. Oh boy, my bet's not looking good. Now Doug is up almost six hundred thousand dollars, and they're only through fifty-seven hundred fifty-one hands, which means almost twenty hands, twenty thousand hands to go. That's a lot. <laughs> At this pace. If it continues at this exact rate, then we are looking at uh, like two point uh, over two point five million dollars lost for Daniel. Now Daniel can throw in the towel at twelve point five k hands, but he has to play it through to twelve point five k hands, and then decide if he wants to do the other twelve point five k hands. I I'm wondering what he'll do if it continues to get beat down like this. It is possible that he is being backed by. Bill Perkins. Bill Perkins definitely has bets on Negranu, and Bill Perkins is backing that poker tool that Negranu is using to learn heads up, no limit hold'em. But I don't know how much he's backing Negranu here, if at all. But this is this is pretty bad being down six hundred K, which of course can easily happen. I mean you see you see how these swings are. There have there there was a session where Negranu won over two hundred thousand. So Negranu's not totally out. He's definitely in bad shape now, but uh, he could have a few big sessions and and win a lot and get back in this. It's plenty of time left. Doug tweeted, Monster session today. Hit everything. Every hero call went right. Every big bluff got through. Every, round, every run out gave me the nuts. Every all in went my way. This was the kind of session you dream about. Yeah, I'd say. Plus three hundred thirty-two thousand. So Doug just running off a series of victories very quickly. He's changed a hundred seventy-nine thousand dollar deficit to a five hundred ninety-six thousand dollar lead, and this is a swing of about seven hundred seventy-five thousand dollars in not that long of a time. So that's uh, really running in all cylinders right now for Doug Polk, who probably is both playing well and running well. It's probably a combination of both. I think probably Negreanu has had worse than average luck in these sessions, and Doug probably has also been playing very well in these sessions, and maybe Daniel has been making some mistakes. Remember, this is Doug's game. This is where Doug really has the edge, and everybody knows that. And no one thought this was a 50-50 thing. Uh, People like myself thought that there was enough of a chance that Daniel could adjust to keep himself uh, a, a close enough underdog to where at over four to one, it was worth betting on him. But uh, as we've seen, Daniel is now falling way behind. So what does Daniel have to say about this? Well, his first tweet, I thought, uh, wasn't very good. I mean, he tried to be positive, but I hate when people say things like this. This is what Daniel said. Tonight, I'm going to celebrate a well-played session with a bottle of the good stuff. And then he shows that he's drinking uh, some kind of, of wine, I think. But he's, he's celebrating a well-played session with a bottle of the good stuff. <laughs> huh? 
incredibly happy with how I played, which is all you can control. <laughs> Lots of work to do, but these swings were expected, absolutely. Okay, I agree with the last line, but here's what you don't do when you get clobbered like that. You don't say, I'm incredibly happy with how I played and I'm going to celebrate a well-played session. When you get destroyed like that, it's unlikely you played that well. I will agree Daniel probably got very unlucky. I didn't watch it, but I, I will agree that he probably got unlucky. But I will also say that it is hard to get your ass beat like that as a human being and play your A game. It just doesn't happen that way. It just is not that way. So when you're losing and losing and losing, you start to doubt yourself. You start to play scared. Or the reverse can happen where you get too desperate and too aggressive. You bluff in bad spots. Everybody tilts in a different way. But it is hard to get beat down and be an emotionless robot who can just play through and not care and play your A game. Very tough. Very few human beings can do it. I don't believe Daniel can. In fact, we've seen Daniel's meltdowns on Twitch. I do not believe that Daniel is one of these cold-as-ice poker players who just is never affected by losses and can always play his A game. I don't believe it. I'm not even putting this out as a criticism. I'm not one of these players either. I don't have a big tilt problem, but if I'm losing hand after hand after hand, I will get frustrated and I won't play my best. I'm definitely playing my best when I'm either running well or at least running average and just feeling good that day. There's certain days where my mind is sharper than others, but I've never walked away from a big-time beatdown of a session and said, wow, I played great. I played as well as I could possibly play. It's just the deck killed me. I'll walk away saying, I ran really bad, and I didn't tilt, and I wasn't awful, but I, like, I'll think about things I probably could have done better and how, how maybe the losing affected me and maybe I should have left earlier. I'll think of all these things. And that's normal, and that's what happens to human beings when they lose. Now, a bot can play its A game when it's losing. It doesn't matter because bots have no emotion. It's very difficult to take the emotion out of poker if you are anything close to a normal human being. There are some people who are like emotionless robots, either by just nature or because they're on some medication, usually for uh, depression or anxiety, which turns them that way. When I had my psychological issues two years ago, I became emotionless in one way but not the other. I, I lost positive emotion. I couldn't have positive emotion. But guess what I did have? Negative emotion. That that was not affected, unfortunately. So I still couldn't have played poker without emotion there because I would have had negative emotion. I just would have had no excitement about winning. But the losing and the frustration would have all been there the same way it would always been because I did not lose the ability to feel negative. I have heard from people who've been on certain medications or who have certain psychological issues that they, they've told me they're just emotionless, good or bad. They just don't feel anything. And... I guess those people could lose money and not have their game affected. But I don't feel Negranu is one of those people. He's never claimed to be one of those people. I'm not one of those people. You're probably not one of those people. So losing like that, you should not celebrate a well-played session. You want to have a nice drink of an expensive bottle of wine or whatever because you just want to relax. You don't want to sit there dwelling on it or being depressed over it. I can respect that. I can respect that you don't have to have it ruin your day or your life, though, honestly, I'd have trouble enjoying anything on a day like that, but 
not everybody is me. Maybe the way he wants to cope is by having a positive rest of his day. And that's great if that's what he wants to do. But you don't say incredibly happy with how I played. You don't say it was a well-played session. It probably wasn't a well-played session, and he probably shouldn't be happy with how he played. He probably needs to look and say, why did I lose this badly? It was bad luck and A, B, C. That's what you should do. That's how you get better. That's how you come back against a heads-up opponent who is clobbering you. I know. I've, I've dealt with it myself. I've played people heads-up and gotten my ass beat, and I don't walk away saying, I played great. I, I'm, I'm patting myself on the back. I was a great player today. Just luck. Only luck. No, I, I look and say, okay, maybe I need to adjust something. Yes, I had bad luck, but I probably also need to adjust something. So that's – I don't like that tweet. I know he's trying to show how he's positive and not doubting himself, but that – it was kind of delusional. Okay, next one. He wrote, my ride or die. It is true. When you gamble high stakes, it takes a special kind of slightly sick individual to be able to handle it without issue. My mother couldn't handle my $200 swings back in the day, so I would lie to her and say I won every day. And I'll tell you what this was in response to in a second. But okay, that, that makes more sense. He can say that I'm a high-stakes gambler, I win more than I lose, and I've learned to not let big losses bother me or ruin my day. I've just learned to tune it out, and I know things will be okay in the end, and I know that big losses will occur, and not every day is going to be a winner. Okay, that's a great attitude to have, and if you can really have that attitude, that's wonderful. Well, as long as you can still be responsible at the same time. But the, the problem with some people with this attitude chunk off all their money. Sometimes, sometimes pain is good. Some people think pain is bad. Pain is sometimes good because it prevents you from doing something which you shouldn't be doing. It prevents you from making the same mistake twice. It, this is a very basic thing. This is why they put rats in a maze with le- electrified walls, and they see that the rats don't go to the walls anymore. That gave them a shock. So rats can learn this, and people learn this too. When they have a bad experience with something, they tend to not want to do it again, which is a good thing. This is a, that, that's why pain is good, whether emotional or uh, physical. It's good in some cases, not good always. If it's pointless pain or if it's pain you can't control or put an end to, then it's bad. But uh, sometimes pain can be good. This is a case where it's good. But he was responding when he said, my ride or die. He's referring to his wife, Amanda. So this is what Amanda tweeted. This is after the session when he had the beatdown. Sweetest thing ever. Daniel worrying that I'm not too stressed about today. I can handle the swings, babe. You got this. And she put a heart. Okay, that's a nice thing to tweet. I don't know if she really feels this way. I Let's face it. Uh, let, let's say Daniel Negrani was broke and had no way to make the money back. Do you think she would have had the same level of interest in him? And I'm not saying she only married him for money. I'm saying, do you think, do you think she would have married a broke guy? No. She would not have married a broke guy. I think we all know that. So, yeah, she can handle swings as long as he he still has money, as long as she can still have a high, uh, high level lifestyle. And as long as he can afford to still buy her nice things and live in a nice place and never worry about money. Yeah, she can put up with uh, bad days like this. Also, if if he's being backed by Bill Perkins, of course she doesn't care. Then she doesn't give a crap because it's Bill's money. Sure, she'd be happier if Daniel won and they'd win money, but it's easier not to care about uh, your husband losing $332,000 and and losing the, the sessions before that if somebody else is backing all or most of it. 
So who knows? But she's trying to come off as a supportive wife, and she probably put it out there because she figured there were going to be trolls that were going to mock Negreanu and say that Amanda's going to leave him because he's losing all this money. So she's basically putting out there, hey, I'm okay with this, I approve. In fact, I want him to know that I'm not bothered by this. You go play your game. You got this. So I mean, it's a nice tweet. I'm not going to criticize the tweet. It's a nice thing to put out there. Even if it's not true, I guess it's nice to put out there. To just be openly supportive of her husband. It's a nice thing to say. But I don't think she really feels that way. I think that if this really was a threat to their liquidity, if this was a threat to their lifestyle, I think she wouldn't be saying, yeah, you got this, no problem, go ahead and risk our lifestyle, go broke, it's okay, I'm going to stand by you. No, 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 not going to happen. Now, in her defense, most most women would not say that. Most women would not be okay watching their husbands gamble on uh, their lifestyle, that if he loses, then their lifestyle's done, and they've got to seriously downgrade. There are not many women who'd be okay with that. I can even say that my girlfriend would not be happy to see that. And she does not ever get involved with trying to monitor what I'm betting on. She just trusts me to do the right thing. Now, it's true I have a record going way back before we were together that would demonstrate that. But she does, she never attempts to monitor what I'm betting or questions it. Never. Like, it just, whatever I choose to do, she just stays out of it and assumes it'll be fine. Like, I'll tell her about it and she'll listen, but she doesn't try to monitor it or boss me around about it, which is good. But she also knows I'm not going to enter a situation where it can just destroy me. That's just not in me to do. But, you know, let's say I challenged Doug Polk to a heads-up match that could cost me millions of dollars. I think she'd have something to say about it. I think she wouldn't be very happy if I did that and that she saw me down 600K. I I think uh, this would bother her to see that if she thought that the a possible end to this would be me losing millions or me going busto. That, I don't think she'd just sit by and say, I support you. I don't think many women would. But you know, tweeting that out is fine if she wants to be publicly supportive. Even if she's got private reservations, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with the projection of being the supportive spouse. So I want you guys to understand that I'm not criticizing that part of it. I think that was a nice tweet. So I want to give you a history... Since we're talking about Daniel, I want to give you a little bit of a flashback history of Daniel and his other high-profile heads-up matches from a long time ago in the ancient era known as the 2000s. 2000s in poker were a very long time ago. In the 2000s, we could play on poker stars at full tilt. In the 2000s, uh, in the earlier part of the 2000s, in the middle part of the 2000s, you could actually play on Absolute Poker and UB without worrying about getting cheated because we didn't know yet that it was happening. In the 2000s, until early 2007, you could use NetTeller to freely move money around between gambling sites. Prior to late 2006, you could play on almost any poker site in the world and not be shut out for being American. There were a few that shut you out, but not many. You could play on Party. You could play on PokerStars. You could play on the iPoker network. You could play on the Cryptologic network. All these networks were open to Americans. And in the 2000s, poker was everywhere. It was all over TV. It was all over pop culture. It was a very big deal. And if you won bracelets, people would see 
who you wouldn't even expect to be poker fans. I had people come out of the woodwork in 2005 that I hadn't talked to in 15, 20, or you know, like that many years that remembered me from high school, from other places, and they'd contact me and say, hey, you know, I, I see you're doing well in poker. Yeah, I'm a fan of poker. That's really cool. And they'd start a conversation with me. They weren't even looking for anything. They weren't looking like for a loan. They just they just thought it was cool. Oh, hey, I knew Todd would tell us back in the day. Let's, let's see what's going on with him. I'd love to talk to him now that he's a bracelet winner. Like I, I was surprised who came out and and uh, messaged me. I think I've mentioned before that uh, one of the people who came out of the woodwork to message me was uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's older brother, who I used to know and then fallen out of contact with. And he he contacted me that he's a, a fan of poker and he was impressed to see I won a bracelet and we started talking again and then we kind of lost contact again and then unfortunately he died of drug overdose so uh, that was sad but uh, a lot of people came out of the woodwork when I won a single bracelet in 2005 that's the way the 2000s poker industry was in 2000s in the 2000s if you were a name in poker even a moderate sized name people knew who you were around Las Vegas you go to the store and people would recognize you people would ask you how it's going i'd go to the supermarket i had checkers asking me how it's going on how it's going at the table like it was weird very different era that doesn't happen anymore unless you're a real big name the interest in poker from the general public is much much less than it was in the 2000s and every Casino had a poker room. Every single casino had a poker room. They all wanted to get on the poker room, and these poker rooms were full. Not always full 24-7, but they were doing enough business to where they could stay open. Poker really was everywhere, and it was a very big deal. It has contracted a lot for various reasons since then. But this isn't about poker. This is about Daniel Negreanu in that era and some high-stakes matches that he was part of. And if you weren't around in those days or you weren't paying much attention, or maybe you just have a short memory, then you don't know about this stuff or don't remember it. So I'm going to tell you about Daniel Negreanu and his history with high-stakes matches, because it's pretty interesting, actually, back in the 2000s. So here's the two matches. There's two series of matches he had. He signed with the win in... 2004 or 5 it had to be 5 because they weren't open until 2005 he signed for the win in 2005 and they of course had a poker room and they decided to make him the face of the poker room so it was it wasn't called Daniel's room or anything but it was basically the win poker room with Daniel Negreanu it was where he was supposed to promote it he was only supposed to play there which I think was a cause of problems later on but he signed with a win, presumably for a lot of money. And as part of his signing with the win, he made an open challenge, which I, I have a feeling was backed by the win in some way. But he made an open challenge that anybody in the poker world could play a freeze out against him between 100K and 500K. A freeze out being where you each start with that many chips in the match and that uh, you cannot rebuy. That whoever, the, the match ends when one person gets it all and the other has zero. And that's it. Nobody can add on, nobody can rebuy. You agree to the stakes beforehand. It's a cash game, it's not a tournament. You just agree to flat stakes and you play that until one person's bust. So he said, I will do a freeze out of 100k to 500k. Your choice. Just pick any amount we're going to play for in that range. And you can pick the game 
of the following. So you can't just pick any game, but he listed a lot of games you could pick. And this is also back in uh, 2005 when uh, the selection of games people were playing then is a little bit different than today, which I'll get to shortly. But here's what you could pick from. Limit Hold'em, Omaha High-Low Limit, Stud High-Low Limit, Stud Limit, Deuce to 7 Triple Draw, Ace to 5 Triple Draw, PLO, Pot Limit Omaha, Pot Limit Hold'em, which nobody plays anymore, but back then there was actually something people played, and No Limit Hold'em. Now, at the time of 2005, PLO actually wasn't that big. It existed, but it just wasn't that big. The big games that were being played for the most part were No Limit Hold'em and Limit Hold'em, and then I guess third was Omaha High-Low, Limit Omaha High-Low. Stud had been around, but it was fading. It was already dying by then. The big ones were No Limit Hold'em, Limit Hold'em, and Omaha High-Low. And PLO was way down on the list. I don't know where it would rank then, but PLO rocketed in popularity later. So that would influence what people would choose to play against him. So, of course, you're going to choose your best game against Negreanu. Now, I doubt that he was so arrogant that he could believe he could crush specialists at all of these games for this amount of money. So I think the win was either completely backing this or partially backing this to where he felt it was positive expectation for him and the win wanted to do this to promote it because it was a very big deal to try to get your poker room become the, the main poker room in town. The win wanted to beat the Bellagio which was uh, the biggest room in town. The Mirage is still out there. There, there were, yeah, there were poker rooms everywhere. So they, they wanted to become the place to play. They wanted to be the biggest room. They wanted to become the most prominent room. And they thought by signing Negreanu and having him do these high-profile challenges in that room would draw attention. So, and it did somewhat. He ended up getting nine takers. Remember, you had to put up 100K minimum. And you had to be willing to play Negreanu heads up, who obviously was a very good player, especially these limit games. So in order to uh, do this, you have to be willing to risk that amount of money and also have it be against Negreanu. So nine different opponents – well, nine, there were nine matches. It wasn't nine different opponents because uh, four of them are played by Barry Greenstein. But everybody else played him once. So I guess that makes it uh, six opponents. Here were the nine matches he had, all in 2005, all between May and July. May 13th, he faced David Oppenheim, a very good cash player, in Limit Hold'em. They played 2004-4000, and they were doing it for a freeze-out of 200K, and David Oppenheim won. So, right away, the ground is down 200K. May 16th, Limit Hold'em again, 4,000-8,000, for a freeze out of 500k, the opponent, Mimi Tran. Mimi Tran was dating Barry Greenstein at the time. She's a middle-aged Asian woman. Actually, probably kind of past middle-aged by this point. But uh, at the time, she was a middle-aged Asian woman dating uh, Barry Greenstein. And you know, she's I've played her before. She's decent. But uh, Negranu definitely is a better player at Limit Hold'em. I mean, he, he, he came up playing Limit Hold'em. He's, he's a pretty good Limit Hold'em player, Negreanu. So against a, a really good cash player like uh, Oppenheim, who also has played a ton of Limit Hold'em, uh, Oppenheim would have been the favorite, I would say, there, and he won. Mimi Tran, I would have totally bet on uh, Negreanu. However, Barry Greenstein was very freely spending in those days and had a lot of money, and he probably backed Mimi here from everything I know at the time. 
I don't know for sure, but my guess is he backed Mimi on this and Mimi lost 500k. So even though Nick Rowney was one and one, he was now up 300k in the challenge. Next, Joe Cassidy put up $200,000 to play, just like Oppenheim played, uh, two, 2,000, 4,000. Now this is on May 23rd. So now is the third match that Negreanu had done in uh, 10 days. May 13th, May 16th, now May 23rd. He's playing Cassidy in the exact same circumstances as Oppenheim. And it was the exact same circumstances because he lost to Cassidy. Much like Oppenheim, Joe Cassidy was an excellent cash player who was uh, best at limit hold'em. And that's why he chose that game. So uh, it's not surprising that Negreanu lost. These were two excellent players he played there in Oppenheim and Cassidy, but uh, this was only for 200k. On June 4th, a stud match, 4,000-8,000 for 500K, Barry Greenstein, and Negreanu lost. So now Negreanu uh, was down, because he had won the 500K from Mimi Tran, but he lost 500K to Barry, 200 to Joe, 200 to David, so he was uh, now down 400,000 total, and was 1-3 in in these matches. Well, make that 1-4, in he played Barry again, 7-card stud, 4,000-8,000, First one was June 4th. This one was June 15th. Also, Barry Greenstein was the winner. So Barry Greenstein now 2-0 and here, up a million bucks. And Negranu now finding himself down almost a million bucks and 1-4 in, in these matches, looking pretty bad. Well, Negranu got it back. On June 16th and 17th, the next two days, he played PLO 1,000-2,000 for 500K against Greenstein and won, and then played Stud 8, that is Stud High-Low, 4,000, 8,000, 500K, and beat Greenstein again. So he ended up 2-2 two and two in Greenstein. They split it, ended up totally even against one another. Then on June 15th, he played PLO 1,000, 2,000 for 500K against Tony Bloom and beat him. Then Negreanu had his most embarrassing moment. Sometime in July, I'm not sure when, he played his final match of the series, uh, Pot Limit Hold'em, not PLO, Pot Limit Hold'em, against some unknown recreational businessman whose initials were JD. Unknown meaning like none of us would have known him even at the time. But some rich businessman with initials JD wanted to play him pot limit hold'em for $500,000 and beat him. (laughs) That is the businessman beat Negranu. Negranu actually lost to this businessman and he was really frustrated about it. At the time, Negranu wrote on his full contact poker site... Uh, he, has, he had a form, he still has it called the Full Contact Poker, but he posted a lot more back in those days. He said, I was sick about losing to the businessman in Potlum and Hold'em. I ran so bad it was creepy. He played very weak. He didn't raise pre-flop and never check-raised. How I lost, I'll never know, LOL. I believe him. I've had that happen before, too. I've played some awful people heads up, and sometimes they'll even stick with me for hours and hours, and I go, okay, if I just get like even below average luck, but not like way below average, I'll crush this guy. And it just never turns around. It just runs super bad and lose, 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 lose. And then the guy finally leaves. And I can't even say like the guy hit and ran me. Like he'll, I'll have like massive fish play me for like five hours and somehow beat me just because they ran just incredibly well. So I believe him here. I believe that this businessman just, just ran so insane that Negroni couldn't beat him. Uh, for a guy not to raise pre-flop ever <laughs> and not to ever check raise and to know the guy is never check raising. Like, it's hard to lose to someone like that. But he did. He did make excuses about why he lost to Oppenheim, claiming he was distracted, though he wouldn't say why. And then he said that uh, Oppenheim did play very well. I think Oppenheim was just the better player. 
He also said that he made mistakes against Joe Cassidy, that when Joe was uh, starting to get on a run against him, he started to become too aggressive, and Joe just kind of let him shoot off his money. So he did say that he didn't play the best against Joe Cassidy. In reality, these guys probably had an edge over him. These are both excellent uh, limit hold'em players. Daniel, very good, but uh, I think those two are even better. In Daniel's defense, uh, you know, he played a lot of tough players, except for this last person and maybe Mimi. He went four and five, so it's not bad. It wasn't great. He actually ended up winning slightly because even though he went four and five, and even though he lost to that businessman, the matches that were 200K, he went 0 and 2, and the ones that were 500K, he went 4 and 3. So this meant that uh, he ended up winning 100K in the whole thing. So that's not very much considering how much was on the line there. Why didn't this continue? Well, um, at some, I, I, they ended this, and then I forgot when, but it wasn't too long after that that he quit the win. I had heard at the time he was unhappy that he had to play there, and it was kind of a fail room cash-wise. It just wasn't getting going for high-stakes games. So there were, like, juicy games going on at Bellagio, and he couldn't play them. So I'm not sure if he quit or if he got fired or what happened. I, my guess would be that he quit, but all of a sudden one day he wasn't the face of the win anymore, and he was able to play elsewhere. So that was the end of that, and that was the end of those matches, which were definitely a promotion for the win. Now, there was a second match that he had that had nothing to do with all this, but also took place in 2005, at the very, very end of 2005. And this one, actually, I saw unfolding. A lot of people were not aware of when it happened. The, the thing with the win, if you were around then, you probably heard about it. This second one, you may not have heard of. But I heard of it because I was right there on Never Win Poker, where a lot of the drama took place. So, in uh, 2004, Never Win, Dustin Wolf started a lot of drama with Negranu, because... Dustin was bragging about how great he was heads up, which he was an excellent heads up player. There's no question. But Dustin was saying that uh, he could crush Negranu heads up and limit hold him. And, of course, uh, someone copied that over to Full Contact Poker where Negranu was frequently posting and saying, hey, look, look at this punk Neverwin challenging you to heads up. Do you want to do it? And uh, Daniel said, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll play him. But they, they never hammered it out. I'm not sure why. Like, I know Neverwin wanted to play him. I don't know if Daniel wanted to. It kind of seemed like he did. I don't know. It just never happened. And some people were annoyed by that. Like they they both talked a lot of trash and talked big, and then that match never happened. So this is not a Neverwin match, even though they talked about that. However, this kind of uh, set the stage for a match that did later happen. Before I get to that, I, I should describe what was going on with Neverwin Poker and Full Contact Poker at the time. Neverwin Poker started in May of 2004 by Brian Mikon and Dustin Wolf. It was meant as a fan site for Neverwin once he started winning a lot on Poker Stars. However, nobody cared about Neverwin enough, even during the poker boom, to want to go to an actual fan site and post on a forum about Neverwin. Like, uh, he wasn't that exciting. It was kind of interesting to watch, but he wasn't that exciting to revolve a forum around, and he wasn't exactly a, a great or uh, uh, very verbose poster. So this, this plan was never going to work. I showed up on Neverwin Poker to mock him and to say he was going to go bust and kind of troll him because he was like a rival of mine at the time. We weren't friends at the time. He wasn't like an enemy. He was like a rival on PokerStars. So I kind of showed up to troll him. What I didn't realize when I showed up to troll him is like people noticed that I was there. It's like, oh, Dan Druff, we see you playing and winning too. Oh, cool. Can you answer this question for me? Like all these people had poker questions for me and like uh, all these people were fascinated that I was there and, and that everyone was there. And so, so all of a sudden, like, a lot of people started posting, and then also they were enjoying the the back and forth me and Neverwin had, 
And also they were starting to notice that they could post things that wouldn't fly at 2 plus 2 and nothing was being censored. So it became like the free speech poker forum very quickly, kind of like the anti 2 plus 2. And uh, this was attractive to a lot of people, especially a lot of the younger people. And uh, never went poker quickly grew. So the reason I'm telling you this again, I, I've told you this before, that's kind of the origins of this community, which now some of those people are, are still on Poker Fraud Alert. And that's kind of the forum, the poker forum community where I began. I really wasn't posting much on 2 plus 2 prior to that. Uh, so a rivalry started between Neverwin Poker and Full Contact Poker once Neverwin threw down the gauntlet that he wants to play Negranu heads up. So people started talking trash about Neverwin over on Full Contact Poker. People were talking trash about Negranu over on Neverwin Poker. And there's a lot of trash talking back and forth to where the two forums started to hate each other. It became like a, like a battle between the two forums that people were emotionally involved with. Like if this were to happen, people were going to stake their own identities on which side they were on. It was, it was pretty crazy. And, uh, the two forums are also very different. Neverwin Poker was the free speech, degenerate place where pretty much anything goes and a lot of, uh, crazy stuff was posted and, Full contact poker, it was kind of the more of the sensitive poker forum. It was kind of where the, the quieter, more sensitive people went. And, uh, a good example of this, and yet you have to think of this in 2005 terms. In 2005, the whole concept of uh, accepting gay people, it, it, it wasn't quite there yet. It was going to take like another five years. So most people weren't for gay marriage. Gay marriage wasn't legal anywhere. And uh, especially in poker, if someone, if a male came out as gay, uh, they would have been looked down upon to some degree. So as a result, there were like no out gays in poker, at least not gay males in, in 2005. So uh, some guy on full contact poker was nervous, but he was like a regular poster there. He wasn't a well-known name in poker or anything. He was just a poster on full contact poker, but he nervously made a thread saying that he's bisexual and he hopes everybody accepts him. Well, not only did everybody there accept him on Full Contact Poker, but several prominent posters on Full Contact Poker responded saying, yeah, well, I'm bisexual too. And a lot of the male po- posters there ended up being bisexual or gay. It was a, it was, and everybody was so supportive and saying, oh, this is so nice. And like, it was the opposite of Neverwin Poker. Neverwin Poker, uh, it, it, someone actually did come out as, uh, well, I guess at least mostly gay, one step who still is on poker fraud alert and, but, but even when he did it, it was kind of like a more of a, uh, degenerate sort of way. Like, like he admitted it and people made fun of him and he kind of just rolled with it and just was an extreme version of this and would just like outright post about what, you know, he post pictures of naked guys and whatever and say, oh, this guy's cute. Like he would, he would just roll with it. That was the way he handled it. It wasn't handled in like a sensitive way. It wasn't like, oh, we accept you one step. It was more like, uh, um, okay, I'm I'm gay. What do you guys got to say about it? Here's the guys I like. Here's the naked guy I like. Like that's the way One Step handled it, and that's the way Neverwin Poker handled it. On Full Contact Poker, like, oh no, we, I'm like this too. I understand. And like, so the very different types of forums. And uh, if if you want to compare it to 2020 standards, you'd say that uh, Neverwin Poker was toxic masculinity, and Full Contact Poker was the social justice warrior crew. And so I fit in much better at the, at the Neverwin Poker forum. And I, I didn't agree with everything that was said and posted there. It was also a different time, you have to understand. But uh, I, but still, I, I fit in much better with that group than the, the group of uh, the social justice warrior types who were all sensitive. So anyway, that was another reason the two forums hated each other. And Neverwin Poker was full of uh, – also full of a lot of frontal nudity and gross pictures and, and outrageous statements. And it was pretty much the anything goes place. So those two forums hated each other. 
And uh, there is uh, an account that appeared on PokerRoom.com, which is a poker site at the time. One of the smaller poker sites, but nevertheless, it had been around for some years. And Daniel Negreanu had a skin to Poker Room called Full Contact Poker. He actually was running, which I, I thought could get him in trouble, but it didn't. But he ran a skin into Poker Room called Full Contact Poker, which you play against the same players as on Poker Room, but he had a skin into it and tried to promote it. Well, on that network, this guy appeared named Dream Clown. And Dream Clown was destroying everyone heads up at the high stakes. I mean, he just anyone who'd come and play him was just getting beat down. And... Nobody knew who it was. Who is this dream clown who appears out of nowhere and is killing everyone at high stakes limit? Hold him. So after a little time, dream clown revealed who he was. And it turned out it wasn't a single person. It was a group of people sharing the account. Now, before you go, oh, my God, that's awful multi-accounting. Back in 2005, there was a different view of this. The multi-accounting thing became a concern later on. In 2005, the community was okay with this, and it was fairly standard for people to share accounts. So there was no scandal in the fact that it was four people on one account. But uh, when they revealed who it was, it turned out to be four people that were a member of a group that they called the GCC, which I think stood for Get Crunk Crew. Well, if you remember those days, you'll remember who Get Crunk was. It was Brett Ritchie, who was still somewhat active in the community, though he doesn't really play poker anymore. Then the other three members of the GCC were Matt Woodward, also known as Woodrow, Eugene Leader, who is a Russian guy who went by Eugene Neal sometimes online. And there's a fourth guy named Tony. I don't remember that well. I met him, but I don't remember him very well. Those are the four members of the GCC. And the Dream Clown account was operated by all of them. How they split the money, I don't know. But uh, it was a group account that they rotated on as to who used it. And it was killing everybody. And they revealed this after not too long. That's that's who was running it. I think that it was actually Tony's account, Dream Clown. And I believe that Dream Clown, the name of it, was chosen as kind of like a friendly jab at Brett Ritchie's then rap group known as Dream Clone. So it's kind of like uh, Dream Clown, like a, a clown who runs Dream Clone. It was to make fun of Brett, but like in a friendly way. They were, they were all friends. So uh, Dream Clown... All the members of the GCC showed up on Everyone Poker in late 2005 and started talking trash about Daniel. Remember, because Full Contact Poker was on that network and Daniel played on there. And DreamCon started saying, okay, Daniel, this is your own site. When are you going to play me? Come on, big guy. Come on. Let's see you, Daniel. You want to face Dream Clown? Now, they were not covering up the fact that they were a cooperative of four people. In fact, at one point, Eugene claimed it was nine people, but I believe it was only really four. Uh, but anyway, they admitted they're going to play as a group, and they wanted a heads-up match against Negrani, which is a little unfair because it's kind of hard to adjust to different people's play styles. But Negrani agreed to this, but he did say that they would have to identify when they were switching. So they can't just rotate and not tell him, but that as long as they say, okay, this person's taking over now, then he was okay with them all doing it on one account. So they agreed to play. 501,000 Limit Hold'em. It was to take place on Poker Room, Full Contact Poker, whatever, you know, that, that network. And it was going to take place in December 2005. There was a lot of really, really nasty trash talk in the chat during these matches. This was not like the Doug Polk Negranu match where they can't chat anyway, but where it, in general, they've been pretty friendly. You know, there's been a few times that 
Polk has said that Negreanu is playing bad, or he has a bad pre-flop range, or, or he, there's a like, kind of mild trash talk. But I mean, this was really, really vulgar, nasty, very uh, like, yeah, I'm going to bust you and fuck your wife. It's th- that type of thing they were saying to each other. It was going both ways. They were both really very, very harsh toward one another. And uh, even between matches, they would talk trash, especially Dream Clown. So they would go over to Neverwin Poker and post that Daniel was a rag doll and saying he was a fish and that they don't know why anyone thinks he's good, that he makes all these terrible mistakes, and they post hand histories making fun of him. Uh, so th- this was not a friendly match in any way. So they're playing 501,000 Limit Hold'em. I don't believe there's any kind of uh, freeze-out involved. They're just going to play various sessions. I don't know if there's a hand limit, but whatever it was, there were five sessions that got played. Session number one, Dream Clown 112K, which isn't that much at 501,000 even limit. Session two, Dream Clown 122K. So after these first two sessions, even though they were only up 34K at high stakes, they were mocking him, they were posting hand histories, they were laughing at him. Well, Daniel then got a laugh back on them when he took the lead. In session three, he won 67K. Then session four, they played to mostly even, but Daniel won 6K. Well, in session five, Daniel looked like he was in very good shape, and this was going to be the last session. I forgot why, but this is actually on January 1st, 2006, the final session, session five. And Daniel took about an 80K lead in session five to put himself up um, over 100K. And then it happened, a complete beatdown. Daniel just ran super bad, and uh, Dream Clown won $147,000 straight off of him. So, Dream Clown ended up winning, despite the fact that they were down over 100k in the middle of the last session, which is pretty amazing. Uh, it wasn't a huge win. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, Daniel lost 28k in the whole thing, which at those stakes is nothing. So it was pretty much played to a draw, with a slight edge going to Dream Clown because of that monster ending they had. When the whole thing was over, Daniel did praise the pre- the play of one of the four members of Dream Clown. He didn't want to say very much about the others because they had been very uh, nasty and disrespectful to him in the trash talk. He was pissed at them. But the one person he kind of liked out of Dream Clown was Matt Woodward, also known as Woodrow. At the time, nobody knew who Woodrow or Matt Woodward was. They saw him on Poker Stars occasionally. Otherwise, he was a total unknown. And he was pretty young at the time, too. So Dan- this is Daniel's first exposure to him. And... Woodrow wasn't into the trash talk for whatever reason. Woodrow did not talk trash. Woodrow was actually respectful and didn't say anything bad to Daniel, so Daniel didn't say anything bad to him. So they actually got along okay. So at the end, Daniel gave him some praise. He said at the end of the match that uh, Woodrow was the best of the players by far and that uh, that he had a, a good future in poker, that he thought he was much better and much more mature and respectful than the rest, is what Daniel said at the time. Anyway, uh, I will say that of the members of the GCC, the only one that is still playing poker actively, to my knowledge, is Woodrow, Matt Woodward. And if you take a look, you can see he still has Hendon Mob results. So these guys were all young back in those days, but not anymore, of course, 15 years later. I believe they are all in their late 30s, and Daniel, of course, is now in his mid-40s. So that was the... uh, those are the two high-profile heads-up matches he had. The second one wasn't as high-profile, but uh, I got to see a lot of it because I was on Neverwin Poker. But they still a lot, a lot of people that back then were paying attention to Dream Clown. A lot of people 
kind of forgot about Dream Clown because someone did a lot more than Dream Clown, basically the same thing. On full tilt, Texas Limit King was playing like 2,000, 4,000 Limit Hold'em and crushing everybody for millions. So Texas Limit King won a lot more than Dream Clown did, but Dream Clown did it first. Dream Clown was like one of the first people who was like this weird account appearing out of nowhere who just crushed everybody heads up in Limit Hold'em. In No Limit Hold'em, the version of that later was Isildur. That happened, I think, around 2009. So those were some matches that Daniel had before that I paid attention to. Interestingly enough, uh, they both ended fairly close to even. He lost 28K in the Dream Clown one. He won 100K in the win matches overall. He put all that high-stakes action together. Daniel won 72K. Not chump change, but not very much compared to the very high stakes they were playing in all of these matches. So I hope you enjoyed that little Negranu history lesson. I wonder if I know more about this than he does. He probably forgot about a lot of this stuff. In fact, I had forgotten some of the details and had to research this before uh, doing this segment. I actually had to look into it and go read ancient forum posts on Full Contact Poker and elsewhere about these matches to remind myself of what had occurred. And uh, I still didn't even remember the name of this fourth guy in Dream Clown until somebody else reminded me his name was Tony. And I go, yeah, I think that's what his name. That was that was the one I knew the least of the whole group. They actually all all of Dream Clown, the GCC, they they were uh, on the infamous 2006 party poker cruise that I talk about a lot. All of them were there. Pretty much everybody was there. It was a weird cruise. That's all the Negranu and Polk news I have for now. I'm sure we'll have more next week. For my sake, I hope Negranu starts doing better. Otherwise, I kiss my 500 bucks goodbye. Okay, so we're going to take a break here. And when I come back, I'm going to do our Las Vegas and Mojave Desert History segment, our second segment of that in the history of the show. We're going to do this every so often, not every week, but uh, whenever I feel like doing it and think I have something I'd like to tell you about. Basically, just so you can learn about a lot of things that have happened over time in those regions. And if you're from out of the area, you may know very little about this stuff. And even if you're in the area, there may be things you learn about. Like I, I had a lot of people messaging me after the one about Zizix Road that they always passed it driving to Vegas. They had heard of it, but they never really knew much about it. They never really knew what was the end of Zizix Road and what the story was with it. And I gave you details in that one that are published nowhere on the internet. So this one I won't give as many exclusive details because I don't have them, but this is a, a higher profile thing, the MGM fire of 1980. That's a lot higher profile than Zizix Road. But uh, I'm, I'm going to give you as much information as I can, and maybe you'll learn something new about that if you don't know much about that story. And it's far-reaching consequences to this day. So I'm going to tell you about that when we get back. Eric Ben Zamokin is an attorney. He is my attorney. He is currently representing me in the Mike Postle matter. Bart Hansen is being sued there as well. But... Uh, Eric is not his attorney. I don't even know if Bart has an attorney. But uh, he is representing me, and I've got to see firsthand what his legal work is like. I strongly recommend him. If you don't believe me, you can go listen to his old segments here and decide if you think he, you know, if you think he knows what he's talking about. I think he'll conclude that he does. And he is now moved to Beverly Hills. His office has moved there. He doesn't live there, but it, he's an office in Beverly Hills now. And if you have any legal matter in California or one elsewhere that could be in federal court, then Eric can help you. Or if you need arbitration or mediation anywhere, 
Doesn't matter where you are, he can do that. So I'm going to run his ad once again. He's currently uh, still testing positive for COVID. But uh, I don't want to give away what I'm going to say there, but uh, I'll, I'll go as far to give the spoiler that you can email him and expect a response. He's not on, he's not on his deathbed, I'll tell you that. And I, I'm glad about that because I'd have to get a new attorney. So anyway, we're going to run his ad, then do a few things else in the background, and I will be back to complete this show. And we will also finish off with a few other topics, including the coronavirus stuff. Hopefully my throat will be able to take it because I am starting to feel it. It's starting to affect me. I'm starting to notice that my throat is sore from all this talking. So let's take a little break. Refresh. I'll be right back. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money. He's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, we're back. I want to talk about the MGM fire of 1980. This is Las Vegas and Mojave Desert history, segment number two. When you are in a hotel, there are a number of fire safety features that you've probably noticed. You probably noticed the smoke alarm. You probably noticed something on the door telling you where the nearest exit is. There is advice on the door. 
telling you not to use the elevator in the event of a fire, to use the staircase. You've probably also heard advice, it's not always up on the uh, door of the hotel, you've also probably heard advice that what you need to do is not break the window, and also to try to block the crack at the bottom of the door with towels to prevent smoke from getting in. You've probably heard that as well. All of these lessons came from the 1980 MGM Grand Fire of Las Vegas. There has been no fire, to my knowledge, that caused more of a change to the way things are done than this fire. This fire completely changed the way they deal with hotel safety. This was the deadliest disaster in Nevada history, still more deadly than the Stephen Paddock shooting on October 1st, 2017. That one, I believe, killed 57 people. This fire killed 80 people. It is also the third deadliest hotel fire in modern U.S. history. And when I say modern, I mean it goes pretty far back. The two deadliest fires in U.S. history were the Weinkauf Hotel fire in Atlanta in 1946, where 119 people died, and the DuPont Plaza fire in 1986 in Puerto Rico that killed 97. Now, Puerto Rico is not part of the continental U.S., so I guess they didn't have the same... Uh, standards over there. That it, it's, it's part of the U.S. technically. It's a t- U.S. territory, but it's not a state, and a lot of things are done differently over there, especially back in 86. So they must have not made the modifications that other hotels did after the MGM fire. But most hotels changed, and, and in fact were required to change, their fire safety procedures and also their uh, information given to guests, and also their safety features. They, they had to change all these things as a result of the MGM fire, which really opened everybody's eyes the fact that they were putting their lives in danger when they would stay at a hotel, that if a fire broke out, there was a decent chance that they were going to be screwed. So this really changed everything. Actually, I said 80. It's actually 85 people died. So 85 people died. And this was uh, a big tragedy. And in fact, it started not in the casino, not in the hotel, but in one of the restaurants. Of all things, the hotel started from pastries. There is a there is a refrigerator pastry display that they had in one of the restaurants in the first floor. And somehow that malfunctioned, that display case is refrigerated. So there was some electric, electrical element in there that malfunctioned and caused a fire, which then quickly spread through the casino and then traveled to the hotel tower. At the time of the fire, there were 5,000 people in the MGM Grand. This occurred on November 21st, 1980, almost exactly 40 years ago, which is why we're doing this segment. We should have done it last week, but almost exactly 40 years ago, 40 years and eight days ago, this occurred. So there were 5,000 people that were in there. Uh, the MGM Grand was very large. This is not the same MGM Grand, by the way, as stands today. The, the MGM Grand in Vegas was built in 93. This MGM Grand in 1980 is what currently is known as Bally's. So if you go into Bally's, that's the old MGM Grand, where the fire took place. This had opened in 1973. It was seven years old. There were 2,000 hotel rooms, which was considered very large at the time. 
It's one of the biggest hotels in the world. At 7.07 a.m., so most people were sleeping, on Friday, November 21st, 1980, in a restaurant known as The Deli, creative name there, had that uh, display case catch on fire. And uh, what happened was... uh, a, an employee noticed uh, what they thought was a flickering light, which was actually a wall of flames. So just after 7 a.m., they saw that happening. And then smoke started coming from the ceiling and the lights went out. And at uh, 7.17 a.m., 10, 10 minutes after the fire began, they reported to the fire department. I don't know when they noticed it, but... Uh, probably burned for several minutes before being noticed, and uh, they reported it to the Clark County Fire Department. And uh, they got over there very quickly. They got there within two minutes because they happened to have an engine that was across the street. I'm not sure why, but the, they had a fire engine across the street already, so in two minutes they were able to get over there. You'd think they'd be able to put this out, but uh, unfortunately this spread very fast. So it Whipped through the casino. I remember seeing as a kid, I was, I was eight years old when this happened. I remember seeing as a kid pictures of this in the newspaper and seeing these slot machines, these old school 1980 slot machines, which then were not old school, but just if you're picturing the slot machines, it's not the electronic looking ones like today. It was the uh, bar on the side that you pull, mechanical slot machines. I remember seeing those burnt up and like melted. Really weird picture to see. So uh, the fire spread through to the lobby of the hotel. And it was able to spread so quickly because of the wallpaper, the PVC piping, the glue, the plastic mirrors that were all over the hotel at the time. These things were not flame retardant in any way, so they, they were fueling the fire and, and making it grow very quickly. They It was believed that the fire spread through the casino floor at a speed of 15 to 19 feet per second, which is a lot. Think of a fire moving at 15 to 19 feet per second. It's a a very fast-moving fire. And then a massive fireball blew out the main entrance that was facing the strip. So imagine you're just like standing on the strip and a fireball just comes out of the entrance of the MGM at 7 a.m. You go, what the hell is this? Well, they had no fire sprinklers. There were no fire sprinklers anywhere in the hotel. So... uh, That was bad because the uh, fire was just spreading with nothing to stop it. And it was not required to have fire sprinklers in November 1980. In the casino itself, 18 people died. So even, I'm not, forget people trapped in their hotel room. 18 out of the 85 that died were in the casino and the fire moving at a rate of 15 to 19 feet per second, which is, by the way, translates to about... um, Anywhere between like uh, 13 and 21, uh, 10 to 13 miles per hour, which for a fire is really fast. That 18 people couldn't get out and died in the casino. Now the fire actually uh, didn't get out of the first floor, which a lot of people don't realize. Some people picture the whole building ablaze. That's not the way it was. It would have killed a lot more than 85 if that were true, especially most people were sleeping. But uh, the fire actually stayed in the first floor. But the problem was that this material that was being burnt by the fire, the wallpaper, the pipes, the glue, 
the plastic, that created toxic fumes and smoke, which then went through the elevators and stairwells. And uh, the very quickly, the smoke got throughout the entire building. And uh, not only that, but because the electricity went out, firefighters were having a hard time being able to fight the fire. There was no light in there. So they, and of course, there's no windows in the casinos. So they're, you know, they're trying to put it out in the casino, but there's a, they're, they're crawling through the dark over, quote, mounds of stuff, they said, trying to get to places where they could uh, fight the fire. It turned out the mounds that they were talking about were actually people that had died. At least some of those mounds were actually crawling over bodies, which is disturbing. The Las Vegas Fire Department was actually uh, different than the county fire department. And unfortunately, the Las Vegas City uh, Fire Department wasn't familiar with MGM's layout, which uh, made the rescue even tougher. The evacuation of hotel guests was also a problem. Remember, they had to get everybody out of there with the smoke having you know, spread like it did. And they also didn't know if it was going to get past the first floor. It never did, but they, they were concerned that it would go up the whole building. There was uh, no easy way to force the elevator to come back to the first floor and stop. Because that's what they do nowadays. When, it, when a fire starts, the elevators automatically return to the first floor, open and stop. And you cannot operate them if you want to. Well, they hadn't thought of this. There was no thought about don't use the elevator in a hotel fire. So they never had a mechanism to do this. They actually had no way to make the elevators come back to the first floor and stop. So... Some people attempted to flee through the elevators and died of smoke inhalation. Ten people were found dead in elevators. Some uh, hotel guests went out on the balconies, which they had back in those days. Most hotels in Vegas don't have balconies. They don't want people jumping to their death. But uh, in MGM Grand in 1980, you could get to the balcony. So people went to the balcony and hung bedsheets over the balconies to alert people that there was a problem. However, people found that, uh, you know, that, that they, they saw that the fire department was aware, but there's another problem. The fire department brought over ladders to reach people, but it was found that the fire ladders were only able to reach the ninth floor. And that uh, beyond the ninth floor, your choices were stay in the room, go to the roof, or uh, and that's pretty much it. You didn't have so you or, or try to get to the bottom on the, uh, the staircase, but there was no way to escape on the balcony or through the window if you were above the ninth floor. The closer you were to the roof, the better chance you had up there. But some people did not want to chance going out into the hallway and up into the, up going way up the stairs in a smoke filled. Uh, Stairwell. Believe it or not, one guy actually got out by lowering himself via a rope. Somehow the guy had a rope with him and actually was able to tie the rope to the balcony and got out. Some people thought that what they're supposed to do was break the windows to get fresh air since they were noticing uh, smoke was getting into the room through the ventilation system. However, there was thick smoke coming from the bottom floor of the hotel rising, so guess what it did? It rose into the hotel rooms, and this killed some more people. Also, 
there were people below who were hit by shards of broken glass from a lot of people breaking hotel windows, people standing right below, and all of a sudden sharp shards of glass are coming down at them. That didn't cause any deaths, but people were injured from that. So that that was all going on there, and uh, there were no sprinklers in the rooms, Nobody knew what to do. Nobody even advised what to do. There's no nothing in the room, no, nothing posted in the room telling you what to do in case of fire. Very few people did the right thing. As a result, 85 people died. And uh, there were 650 people who were injured. Of the people who were killed, 78 were guests, 18 of them being casino guests and uh, the other... 60 being uh, hotel guests. Seven employees died. And then of the injured, there were guests, employees, and 14 firefighters injured. The hotel deaths were all on the upper floors of the hotel. The 19th or 24th floors. And uh, all the doors except the ground and the Except the roof and the ground floor were locked, so the uh, there were the, the smoke concentration was the highest there. There was no way to uh, get out there because uh, <clears throat> this was in the, this is actually in the stairwells where people died. They actually did not die in their uh, in their hotel rooms. But what happened was that. Uh, in the stair, well, actually, not some died in the hotel rooms, but uh, most of the deaths were in the stairwells between the 19th and 24th floors, where they could not get out. The, snow, the smoke got very thick, and there was no way to open a door to the other floors because it was locked to the inside of these other stairwells, uh, to the inside of these uh, other floors. So you could go out, but not in. So once you were in the stairwell, you were trapped unless you were on the roof or the or the, or the ground. So people were in the 19th, 20, 21st floor. The smoke had risen. It was very thick. They tried to open the door to get out, and they could not. And they could not make it up to the roof to get out there, and they died. That was actually most of the deaths in the hotel were a result of that. Some had died in the hotel room from smoke inhalation. Remember, nobody was burnt up in their hotel room because uh, the fire did not make it past the first floor. Tragically, there was a young couple that died of smoke inhalation in their sleep. They never even woke up and smoke entered their room in some way, maybe through the ventilation system and killed them before they even woke up. It's possible it was carbon monoxide poisoning, which also was happening. Though uh, some also died only from smoke inhalation. Of uh, all the deaths, of the 85 deaths, 75 were from smoke inhalation and carbon monoxide poisoning. Four were only from smoke inhalation. Three were from burns and smoke inhalation. One from only burns. One from massive skull trauma jumping from a high window. I guess that person felt desperate that they had to get out of there. And uh, and one of, of a separate cause that uh, they had some kind of pre-existing health condition that this uh, brought on and killed them. So uh, this woke everybody up to the fact that when a building's on fire, smoke inhalation is much more dangerous for you than burning from the fire, as we have learned probably happened to Tony Shi on November 18th. Most people were not 
blocking the bottom of their door with towels. They didn't really know to do that. People were smashing windows, as I mentioned, not realizing you're not supposed to do that either. As I said, 10 people died because they tried to use the elevator, and the elevator stopped when it lost power, and then smoke overwhelmed it and people died, which must have been an awful way to go. So they decided to uh, change a lot of stuff about fire prevention, not just in Las Vegas, but everywhere, because this was a very, very big news story in 1980, this hotel fire that killed 85 people. And it became very clear that the hotels, not just the MGM, but hotels everywhere, lacked enough safety features to keep people safe during a fire, especially given that this fire stayed on the first floor, and yet most of the deaths were way above there. So uh, there were some fire sprinklers, and that actually helped keep the fire out of the remainder of the building, but it was there was no fire there was no fire sprinkler system on the casino floor. Uh, there was some concern from the county fire chief that uh, such a fire could occur because the casino did not have any kind of sprinklers, and uh, there actually were some fire safety features already required in the 1970s. However, hotels that were built prior to 1979 were not required to have... I guess, I guess the law was actually passed in 1980. They, they came out with uh, new features already in 1980 that were required, but if the hotels were built uh, before 1979, they did not have to have it. It was more of a new construction requirement. The governor at the time... Robert List said you can't you can't force people to bring hotels up to codes that didn't exist when they were built. And that ended up being something that killed a lot of people because, yeah, you should. Because it's either safe or it's not safe. You're just saying, well, we're going to keep an unsafe hotel because well, at the time it was built, it was considered okay. No, it's either safe or it's not safe. So that was a big mistake to just excuse these hotels and not force them to put in these fire safety features, which were felt... It was felt these were necessary in uh, either 1979 or 1980, and the MGM was exempt, as were most hotels, because this was 1980, and if the hotel was built in uh, prior to 79, then they didn't have to do it. The fire itself happened because of a ground fault, an electrical ground fault, inside of that uh, pastry case. And uh, this was not a self-contained a pastry case, which you'd see today, where the compressor is actually in the bottom of the case. This was like a, a walk-in cooler or central air conditioner with a, a pair of copper refrigerant lines connecting it uh, to its evaporator to a condensing unit located outside the building. So, uh, unfortunately, this uh, the evaporator was not properly secured and was vibrating a lot when operating, and then... Uh, this caused pipes to rub against the electrical conduit and in, in the wall, and that vibrated as well. And then uh, the conduit eroded over time, and then eventually it was re- rendered ungrounded, and the fire easily happened. They were bare electrical conductors, and they, they got very hot, and they ignited the fire. The way the smoke got around was, as I said, it went through the stairwells, the elevators, and also through the ventilation duct network, and they filtered through the hotel's air conditioning system, 
And uh, also the smoke got quickly into the resort's telephone switchboard room, and therefore the operators there couldn't stay around to receive phone calls and tell people to get out or call people. They had to run away themselves because it became dangerous to be in the switchboard room. The uh, MGM itself was actually granted an exception regarding the uh, the fire sprinkler system, even though there were rules at the time that any area that's occupied 24 hours a day, uh, not only was... Uh, was there's, a, there's an exemption that existed in uh, for buildings built before 1979, which this was. This was built in 73. But that also, the it was thought that there was no point to have sprinklers required in the casino because since the casino is always busy with a lot of people, there's no way a fire could you know, just show up in the casino and not be dealt with immediately. There's no way no one's going to see the fire. Uh, was what was not considered was that maybe an already large fire and fast moving fire would show up in the casino from elsewhere at which point it's too late to just grab an extinguisher and put it out there they were thinking more along the lines of what if a fire ignites right in front of somebody at a blackjack table yeah that's not going to spread because you can quickly get an extinguisher and put it out they didn't think about what what if a massive fire just runs into the casino uh, you're not going to be able to stop it so that's exactly what happened that was not uh, considered and what had happened was this deli restaurant was not open. It was only it was at 7 a.m. when this occurred. This was not a 24-hour restaurant, so the, uh, the the fire got to grow to be very large. And w- and by the time it got to the casino, it was out of control. The MGM, of course, was closed after the fire. And uh, first of all, they had to rebuild the casino that had really gotten beat up badly. And then they also had to fix a lot of the hotel and they decided they're going to rebuild the MGM as a fire safe hotel. I stayed in the MGM shortly after it was rebuilt. I also stayed there before it was rebuilt. I I could have been there when the fire happened, but I wasn't. I stayed there very shortly after it opened back up and I was a little nervous. And I said to my mom, are you sure you want to stay here after what happened? And she said, this is the safest place to stay. And I didn't understand, as a, as a kid, why it was safe to stay in a place that just had this massive fire. She said, because they have rebuilt it with the best fire safety features that exist right now. That because this already happened, they're not going to let it happen again. And that all hotels are starting to change, but this is the first one since they had to rebuild a lot of it anyway. So they put four sprinklers in most hotel rooms. They, they put up 30,000 sprinklers in the whole, in the hotel. 30,000. And they ended up with uh, four in most rooms, as I mentioned. And they also had an automatic fire alarm system throughout the property, which uh, didn't exist before. They also had a TV channel, I remember, and when I stayed there, you'd watch the TV channel, and you turn on the TV, you would jump automatically to the fire safety channel, and it was a channel just about fire safety, which they had running for many years before finally disabling, but uh, they had a fire safety channel where it would default to when you turn the TV on. They would tell you what to do in the case of a fire. They had posted instructions of what to do in case of a fire. They made it to where the elevator would automatically go down to the first floor and, and stop in the event of a fire. And would not operate. 
there was a big notice throughout the hotel not to take the elevators in the event of a fire. The air conditioning system was heavily modified to prevent smoke from entering hotel rooms, and large exhaust fans were installed with the capability to get fumes out of the exhaust system within 10 minutes. They got rid of the PVC piping and the wires, which had contributed a lot to the fire. The fire safety program, which I remember I, I watched, I used to watch it over and over for some reason as a kid. I was, I found it interesting. The, it was hosted by Gene Kelly, obviously a big star at the time. And uh, it was said that the MGM, the new MGM, was the safest hotel of the world. New meaning rebuilt. The, the actual new MGM was built in '93. But this, this MGM, now Bally's, was then considered the safest hotel in the world with all these features. Uh, however, after reopening, uh, they did find that it wasn't quite as safe as they thought, because uh, just two weeks after reopening, uh, another fire happened because they had insulation material that was apparently uh, flammable, and a welder's torch had run into it and, and caused the fire to occur. <laughs> so like, hey, we have the safest hotel in the world. Come stay here. Oh no, another fire two weeks later. Nobody was hurt in that fire. It was extinguished quickly, and in fact, it demonstrated that the safety features worked because alarms sounded immediately, and the sprinkler system put it out. So they're like, well, maybe this isn't so bad that it caused the fire because we got to see that our features are were actually successful in stopping it. So that fire didn't hurt anything or anyone. There were a lot of lawsuits against MGM. One attorney uh, actually said that uh, they should not have reopened yet and that uh, it still the resort still had defects and that people could die in another fire, though there was not another fire other than that one I just described. The MGM made a number of settlements with victims three years later, and then, uh, again, another settlement in 1985, which is five years later. In uh, 1998, it was found that there was $440,000 left over from the Victim Settlement Fund, which uh, so they made some direct deals with victims in 83, and then they came up with a fund of $76 million that uh, came from insurance companies in 85. So of that second settlement, there was... Uh, uh, $440,000 left that wasn't, I, I don't know how that happened, but somehow what they agreed to pay everybody, there was still $440,000 left and uh, nothing further to do with it in, in 98, is 18 years later. So they actually donated that to Clark County for victims of fires and burns. So I guess it got donated to a burn center or whatever. What happened to the original hotel tower? Is that gone? No, it's still there. It still operates today. It is, uh, that is Bally's. Uh, they have a second tower now, built in 81, that was, of course, built after this fire, had nothing to do with it. The MGM Grand was sold in 1986 to Bally Manufacturing, and they changed the name to Bally's Las Vegas. And then the new MGM Grand w- opened uh, further south on the Strip in 1993. That had nothing to do with uh, the original MGM other than uh, the name. The 
the Bally's Hotel then was eventually uh, it be, eventually became a Caesar's property and still is today. So Bally, even though it's still called Bally's, it's not owned by Bally Manufacturing anymore. I stayed there at the, in the eighties, both with it being called MGM and Bally's, and then I also stayed there in the two thousand tens as Bally's. They also quickly changed the fire code in the state of Nevada. The governor formed a commission to determine whether other hotels in Nevada should be required to operate to adopt these new rules, even though before he said that that's not necessary. In February 1981, less than three months after the fire, another fire broke out that killed people. That was in Las Vegas Hilton, where I also stayed frequently, and that killed eight people. Boy, I, I really dodged bullets here. <laughs> Those are the two hotels I was staying at at the time. I was a kid, but uh, my parents would take me to the Las Vegas Hilton and to the MGM Grand. That was the two places we went to in the late 70s and early 80s. Wow. So uh, there was a major change of the safety guidelines and codes, and they took away the exception that allowed buildings that were older not even that old at the time, to get away with uh, not having to adhere to the new strict codes for fire safety. All buildings open to the public in Nevada, not even just hotels, but all buildings open to the public were required to have fire sprinklers, smoke detectors in rooms and elevators, and exit maps in all hotel rooms. That was another thing added to be posted of how to get to a staircase. The That law went into effect in 1981, so Nevada actually became the safest state to stay in a hotel back in 81. But quickly this became, became adopted throughout the United States and eventually throughout the world to where the standards that were decided upon in the early 80s in Nevada became industry standard for hotels everywhere. So when you see these hotel safety features elsewhere, you see the posted uh, map on how to get to the nearest staircase, the warning not to use the elevator, the uh, ventilation systems that can get smoke out of themselves, the, uh, the sprinklers that you'll see on the ceiling, the fire alarm system, often which annoys you because it goes off with false alarms at 3 a.m. All that stuff was because of the MGM fire in 1980 that killed 85 people. That all sprung from that. Now, is it possible these regulations would have existed later if this fire didn't happen? Yes, because there would have been another fire that would have eventually occurred, especially without these uh, safety features, would have killed a lot of people, and they would have come up with these regulations. But better earlier than later. It would have been nice if this existed first, but often something bad has to happen before it gets people's attention to make certain safety features, really in any industry. Think about the auto industry. Think of how unsafe cars were in the 70s and the early 80s compared to today. Uh, most cars in those days didn't have airbags. Most cars in those days were not crash tested very well, and there were very uh, lax requirements as to how the car will perform in an accident. The number of people who die in auto accidents uh, per capita has gone way down in the U.S. because of uh, those changes that were made. Uh, somewhat thanks to Ralph Nader, who made a big deal about this, and rightfully so at the time. But uh, really, things have to happen to make people aware 
that there is something that they have to be concerned about. And unfortunately, a lot of times you can say such and such is a danger and people will go, ah, you know, I don't really see it as a problem. You have to wait till it actually happens and something shocking occurs. And people go, oh, wow, we have to stop that from ever happening again. And that's unfortunate. I mean, it's even true somewhat of, of this current pandemic we're going through. Uh, Bill Gates said years ago that the biggest threat right now to humanity is a pandemic they're not going to be able to control. And uh, here we are. <laughs> I would say that this is COVID has been the biggest threat in modern times to the world. So people didn't really take that very seriously when we first started hearing reports of it. It just, especially because we had previous pandemics that didn't really amount to anything like the swine flu. So people didn't picture something like this occurring the way it did. But now the next time something like this happens, once we're past COVID, if another one seems to be uh, coming our way, people aren't going to dismiss it. There's going to be a lot of uh, quick action taken. I can guarantee you that. And that's true for every country. But getting back to this fire situation, there have been other hotel fires, but, but nothing like this ever since in the United States. And this is why. So you may wonder which fires of any note have occurred since the MGM fire. Well, there really have only been uh, five fires of note since the MGM Grand Fire in November 1980. There was the Stouffer's Inn of Westchester, which... That had a fire in, uh, it was in December 4th, 1980. So this is before any, any safety regulations would have been changed. This was very shortly after the MGM fire. It's a bad time for hotel fires late 1980. But, uh, the Stouffer's Inn was a newly built hotel in Purchase, New York, and 26 people died. And it, it actually started in the conference center. And, uh, that, between that and the, MGM fire, which had occurred a few weeks beforehand, there was a lot of push industry-wide and also among uh, governments regulating the industry to really reform hotel safety. Then, a little bit more than a year later, there was a Hilton in Houston called the West Chase Hilton. That uh, There was a fire that killed 12 people. That fire had opened in 1980, and there was a there's criticism that there were inadequate escape routes and that the stairways were located at the end of the corridor so that uh, with the hallways filled with smoke, people just couldn't get to the stairways and uh, either just couldn't get there or died of suffocation trying to get there. And uh, apparently there was an issue with the alarm system there. There is an arson fire at the Alexander Hamilton Hotel in Patterson, New Jersey in 1984. There's an October that killed 15 and injured 60. And a resident of the hotel, Russell William, Willen Conklin, Russell William Conklin, was convicted of arson and sentenced to 20 years in prison. And then he served only 12 before being released in 1997. Isn't that nice that this guy set a fire on purpose, killed 15, and was in prison for only 12 years? In, eight, in 97, he was a free man. And I don't know if he's still alive, but if he's still alive, he's been free for 23 years. Isn't that nice? How did this guy not get like life in prison for that? Okay. That should be life in prison or the death penalty if you set a fire on purpose and you kill 15 people. How do, you, how do you get out of prison in 12 years? But there, there's a lot of stuff like that happening in the 80s, which resulted in – and before that too. It resulted in a backlash 
to where there were tougher minimum sentencing uh, requirements that were passed, and that was uh, the reason. I mean, not this itself, but there were a lot of egregious short sentences for horrendous crimes where, frankly, bleeding-heart judges were listening to stories of uh, what a bad childhood these people had or whatever, and then we give them uh, sentences that weren't uh, appropriate for the really, really nasty and horrendous crimes they committed that uh, really warranted a minimum of life in prison. A fire broke out in San Juan, Puerto Rico, I mentioned before. That was on uh, New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1986. And... It killed 98 people and injured 140. That was worse than the MGM fire as far as the number of deaths. The second worst hotel fire of all time. This is the fourth major hotel fire since the MGM fire. These all occurred in a period of uh, six years. And uh, it turned out this was also arson. And three people were convicted for that. This was in Puerto Rico. And, uh, again, a place with a casino where people died there. I'm not sure if they had made modifications to this hotel because it was in Puerto Rico. The 1990s had zero major hotel fires. That was good. How many major hotel fires have there been total in the U.S. since 1986? since December 31st, 1986, when they had that uh, Puerto Rico fire? Just one. The Mizpah Hotel, October 31st, 2006, happened in Reno and killed 12 people. And this was also arson. Valerie Moore set the fire, and she got life in prison without parole. That's what should have happened to that guy who did that in 84. But uh, by 2006... You weren't going to be able to get away with a 12-year sentence when you set a fire on purpose. So she was actually uh, a cook in the hotel, and I don't know what her problem was, but she set a fire and uh, 12 people died in the Mizpah Hotel in Reno. That was an older hotel, by the way. It was built in the 1920s. But other than that one arson fire, there has not been a major hotel fire, from what I can see here, since uh, the beginning of 1987. That was the only one. That's a pretty good record in 33 years. Shows you how good the fire safety has become in these hotels. Have there been fires in Vegas hotels? Yeah. yeah I, it happened sometimes when I was living in Vegas. I'd see fires, I'd see smoke, but they, they were able to put these out without people getting injured or killed, and they were, they'd evacuate people pretty well. So there were fires, but nothing that was uh, resulting in, in this type of death. So I, I read you all the ones that have happened since then in the U.S., including Puerto Rico, since the MGM fire. And this this is a lot more common. To give you the comparison, prior to the MGM fire, let's look at the 1970s. There were 13 major hotel fires causing uh, death, causing a good deal of death in all of them, in the 1970s alone. Thirteen. Since 1987, since January 1st, 87, there has been one. So in 33 years, we've had one. In the 1970s, there were 13. Think there's a big difference? That's not a coincidence. So the MGM fire, I guess kind of along with the one at Stouffer's Inn that happened a a few weeks later, that really 
kick the hotel industry into gear to make things safer. You probably don't think of this very much when you're a hotel. You just take this for granted. You just kind of think, okay, I'm at a hotel. Like You don't really fear for your safety. Every once in a while, you may look how high you are and think of, like, if something happened here, how would I get out? I actually had that feeling the morning of the World Series main event in 2019 when I was woken up by a big earthquake rocking the Rio. It was actually rocking back and forth. And I felt helpless. I felt like, okay, if this building crashes down, then it does. Then I'll be dead. But I have to hope it doesn't. But I can't even think of running out because I'm not on the first floor. And there's no way I could get out before anything would happen. So I've just got to hope it's okay. And everything rocks back and forth, but we were we were fine. Then there was an even bigger one. That was That was lovely. Like, uh, the next day. Nobody got hurt. Nobody died there. This was a little bit of an unnerving moment for those staying in the Rio. But I've, I've thought about fires, too. For a while in the 1980s, people did not want to stay floor 10 or above because of the limitation of fire ladders that usually could only go up nine floors, sometimes 10. But people didn't want to stay above that because they wanted to be able to climb down the fire ladder if there were to be a fire and the fire department came to rescue them. And that obsession kind of went away after the 80s passed. People just stopped worrying about it as much as hotel fires became less common. In the 90s, people thought of it a little. By the 2000s, nobody was asking for the 10th floor or lower for that reason. And I admit, I even don't think of it anymore. It just kind of went away. I don't think it's any different. I believe the ladders still go up like 9 or 10 stories, but... For whatever reason, this has fallen out of people's minds, maybe because there's hardly any major hotel fires anymore. If a hotel fire does happen, you should not break the window. You should attempt to notify someone. Don't just assume that someone's reported it. If you see fire trucks coming, you don't have to notify them. You'll, obviously, they're aware of it. But if you don't see any indication that they know it's happening, then let them know. If there's an alarm going, you can assume someone probably knows but uh, I would suggest uh, put towels at the bottom of the door, preferably wet towels. You should wet towels with cold water and, and put them, stuff them into the bottom of the door. Then do not break the window. Try to uh, close up the ventilator if it'll let you. you know, sometimes there's a, something you can do to close whether the ventilator's open or not. If you can't... Uh, then just turn off the air conditioner, turn off the vent, just make sure that's not blowing. One thing you should do is you should feel the door to see if the door is hot. If the door is hot, that means uh, you don't want to open it. If it's not hot, quickly open and look if there's any danger. If you don't see smoke in the hallways, or if there's very little smoke, then you probably want to run to the stairwell, look where it is on the door and the map on the door where the stairwell is. Run to the stairwell, and then try to get downstairs to the floor. If you're near the roof, then try to go upstairs to the roof. They have modified it to where you can get to the roof and you can get to the... uh, I'm not even... You know what? I I would like to say that you can get out to the other floors, but I've seen it where that's locked before. Not for fire reasons, but like I try to go between the floors for the ice machine and I can't get between them. Most hotels do have that unlocked for that reason because people did die because of that. 
I don't know if that's a requirement. I, they really shouldn't lock the door between rooms. I know I, the, the door between floors. I, I know that they're trying to prevent people from, uh, you know, who are doing bad things to use that as a way to quickly get between floors without having to use the elevator. But uh, there's not much benefit they're gaining from that. It's not like elevators are usually restricted. So uh, usually that should be open. But go into the stairwell and try to get to the floor. If you're close to the roof, try to get to the roof. The advantage of the roof is you'll be out in open air at least. The problem with being in the room and smashing the window is that it's only a little bit open and the smoke will rush in, but the the room is mostly closed. So you're going to get smoke, smoke coming in, not smoke going out. That's why you don't smash the window. If the door is hot, obviously don't open it at all. If the smoke is bad, don't attempt to get to the stairwell. You should quickly slam the door shut and put the towels under it. But the best thing you can do is just get out through the stairwell and run out of there. Don't be too concerned with your stuff. If you want to grab something quickly like your laptop or your iPad or your phone, that'll take seconds, then that's fine. Just don't pack up all your clothes or <laughs> if you think there might be a fire you should just uh the, the the main thing you should worry about is is getting yourself out you're pretty safe though pretty safe from fires nowadays in hotels because of the modifications that have happened to fire safety since this fire so that has been las vegas history and mojave desert history the next segment i'm not sure what it'll be about but Maybe something about the Mojave Desert again. We'll see. I try to find this. Try to find topics I think will interest you guys. Seven seven five fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. If you want to call. Okay, so we have a report brought to us by a user named Binks on the forum, and. He is bringing up a concern about something, which, if true, I agree, is something very concerning. And it's a reason why you should be careful about trusting any kind of machines in states that are not known for gambling. When I say known for gambling, I mean states with a major casino presence where there's some kind of thought put in to regulating the way machines work. So Nevada, of course would be the first one to come to mind. New Jersey, another one. California, another one. Any state where there's a lot of casinos or the presence of a few big casinos, you can say, okay, I think that they probably have some pretty strict regulations as to what they can and can't do. But what about Virginia? Do you picture Virginia being a place that has very mature gambling law? I'll tell you. The answer is probably no. So this is what Binks wrote. I was catching up with a gaming friend I had not talked to in a while. He was telling me about his new job servicing gas station slots in Virginia. So Virginia has these gas station slots, uh, which are technically considered skill games, since to hit a win on the spin, you would have to swipe the final number on the real on the real in the direction of your desired number. I'm not sure what he means by that, but it's something you have to do the machines to where it's it's. There's some small skill elements. So these are heavily taxed by the state, otherwise relatively unregulated. So from what he said, the machines are programmed not to let jackpots hit or even other smaller wins hit 
unless a certain predetermined amount of play has gone through the machine. Oh, no. Now, what does that mean? That means they're guaranteeing themselves a win. They, they, they don't want to chance it. Even if it's positive expectation for the owners of the machine, whether it's the gas station or whoever's contracted with the gas station, even if over time the machine's definitely going to win, let's say like a, a 90% payback machine, well, that's, that's going to be very profitable for the owner. But what if the owners are still worried that people are going to hit wins just and get lucky? What if they're especially worried someone's going to hit a jackpot and get lucky, and they don't want to take the loss and wait for people enough people to come through the gas station to break it even? Well, he claims they've come up with a scheme to where it just simply will not let the machine really pay very much out until a certain amount of money has already been wagered in it. So it's saying, okay, this jackpot won't hit until it gets to a certain amount of coin in. There's no indication to the player. The player won't know how much coin ins come into the machine, but the machine knows. And the machine absolutely will not let the jackpot come until that amount has gone in, which means the machine can guarantee itself a profit. So basically, people are going to lose, lose, lose no matter what until a certain amount hits. Then it'll start giving out big jackpots and small jackpots. Otherwise, you're going to win very little on it. It's going to be lose, 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 lose. So basically, the machine's always running positive. The machine's never down. It'll only loosen up once it's already made a huge profit and it'll just give some of that back, and then you'll start losing again. <laughs> so if you could see when that's going to happen, you could use this as an advantage play opportunity, but you can't. There, there's no way to see this. So he claims there's a way to program this. Now, this may remind you of a type of machine you've been seeing in casinos recently called must-hit-by machines, where it'll say, must-hit-by 5,000. And that means that uh, when the counter reaches $5,000, that it will have to hit by then. There's no way the jackpot will fail to hit by the time the counter says 5,000. So some people like that because they'll see the counters like at 4,782, and they'll think, oh, there's a good chance it's going to hit. Well, in reality, the counter moves very slowly, and that... Uh, they also heavily weight it to where, even though it's semi-random, it's almost always going to hit after 49.90. So it'll be 49.91, 49.93. It'll be something like that when it hits. So you'd be a sucker to play those machines when it's 47-something, 48-something. That's the problem with those uh, must-hit machines. That shouldn't be legal, but it is. But this is even worse because they're not saying must-hit by this to where you can see it. Here you can't see it. It's like playing a must-hit machine without knowing what the counter is. So... You don't even know if you're playing when it's it's, it's almost never going to hit, or it, it actually is never going to hit. Binks compared this to the claw machines in arcades, where they actually make the claw limp until enough money has gone into the machines, so and this way they can afford to give away the better prizes, which the claw can grab. He said, the big jackpots advertised will never hit unless the specific machine has collected enough to cover it. Here's where the rigging comes into play. Well, wait a minute. I thought that, that sounds pretty rigged to me, but okay, this is this is what he goes on to say. On machines with internal components labeled "quote fusion," a large portion of machine, which is a large portion of the machines, uh, he does this on every machine that he services. I got the impression that this is standard practice for his company. In effect, he is resetting these internal hidden progressive counters so large jackpots hardly ever hit, regardless of how close they were actually to hitting threshold. 
He said this was not considered illegal because Virginia has a gray market. This is scammy as fuck for these operators and wanted to share it here. So yeah, that, I mean, I agree. That's really bad that they say you can hit such and such jackpot and in reality the jackpot's actually disabled until it's made enough money. That's a lot different than the odds just being very long for the jackpot. If the odds are long for the jackpot, you still have a chance. You still have a chance to hit it, even if not a, a big chance, even if not a, even a small chance, even if it may be a tiny chance. And if the odds to hit it are always the same, whether it hasn't hit in a long time or has just hit a minute ago, then at least it's consistent. Here, they're advertising a jackpot that is actually impossible to hit. And that's the problem. The actual, the actual chance of hitting a jackpot most of the time on that machine is... Zero point zero. And, and that's really bad. That, that's really bad. So uh, <laughs> I'm pretty surprised that this is even allowed there. And this is where there needs to be some common sense in regulating these type of machines. Because if there is not regulation of gambling devices and of casinos, this is what happens. People say, oh, we shouldn't have regulation. It should just be up to the industry. People can police the industry themselves. The customer can decide where to go. No, with gambling, it doesn't work that way because most gamblers don't know what they're doing. Most gamblers don't understand the odds. They don't understand what's a good machine, what's a bad machine. They just think, oh, if I'm lucky, I win. If I'm unlucky, I lose. That's what most gamblers think. So you have to have some sort of regulation by the state to not allow things like this. This should be absolutely illegal. There should never be a way that a machine can be rigged. I still even feel that the must-hits thing should be illegal. I'm surprised it's not. But definitely something you can't even see to where you have no chance to hit is really bad. That's worse. So I believe the story. I think it's really bad. The reason people play slot machines is because they think there's a very small chance that they're going to hit something. You can sit there and dream. You can put a dollar in, $10, whatever, and say, I'm probably going to lose this, and maybe I'll hit something small, but what if I hit this jackpot? How would I spend the money? Wouldn't that be amazing? Can you imagine the feeling I'd get if I just put in this money now and I hit this jackpot? Maybe it'll be me, even if the chance isn't very big. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! <laughs> that's that's pretty much what the gamblers hope when they sit down. But they can't even hope for that. You can't even hope for that. It's not even one in a million. So thank you, Binks, for bringing that to us. Sometimes you got to find these things out from the insiders. And apparently he has a friend who is an insider. Pretty ugly. Okay, I'm going to do a topic that was by request. That is about the death of greyhound racing in the U.S. I bet a lot of you don't think very much about greyhound racing. I don't think very much about greyhound racing. I I know it exists. It's something that's not very present in the West. In fact, I don't think it exists at all on the West Coast. But it's really associated with Florida, if you think about it, in the U.S., and then it uh, it spread to other parts of the world. But really, Florida is, is where you think of greyhound racing. In fact, if you go look at the opening of Miami Vice from 1984, 
you will see they quickly show Greyhound racing. So that, that's how associated with Florida it is. And there's a listener to the show who really, really wanted me to cover the Greyhound topic. And for a few weeks I was putting him off, but I agreed. And I, I read this article he sent me on uh, National Geographic, which was a, an article from September 2020. And it's actually very interesting. The article is called The Era of Greyhound Racing in the U.S. is Coming to an End. And it's uh, it, it covers it pretty fairly. I expected to read uh, kind of like an animal rights piece. And I'm not even saying it's wrong. Like, I, I'm not one who, sa- who dismisses animal rights concerns. And I, I think it can be easy to dismiss animal rights concerns until you actually see the animals suffering in front of you. It's easy to think, okay, this isn't really my problem. I can just uh, put it out of my mind. Or I'm sure the animals aren't fried. I'm sure the, the, the activists are exaggerating. But the truth is there's a lot of industries where animals are being uh, abused. And it's been long alleged that this is happening in the greyhound industry. And you know, some have agreed with that and some have said, no, we think that the activists are just finding excuses to criticize it. And they're, they're very, very much making it sound worse than it really is. But I've always thought that those type of concerns are valid. I know that circus animals haven't always been treated well. I know that uh, the greyhounds haven't always been treated well. I know in a lot of these cases, the animals are seen like objects. They're seen like equipment. And when they're not useful anymore, you throw them away. You, You work them to the bone. And then when they are not useful, you toss them away, much like you would an old machine that breaks down. And that's kind of sad to think about with having animals used that way. And I, I would say that uh, those type of industries really shouldn't exist. You know, the animals shouldn't be abused for people's fun. And if you disagree with that, think about animals that you love. Think about your dogs. Think about your cats. Think about even animals you'll have like, like fish that uh, aren't even animals. But... <laughs> Any pets you have, you, you get to care for some and, and uh, think about them being tortured or being just worked beyond their capability and, the, the, and then they're uh, quickly put down when they're not needed anymore. It's pretty sad. So I hadn't thought about greyhound racing in this way. I know I'd heard a few things about it, but I hadn't really thought much about it until I read this article. But the, the article is also fair in that it's not an animal rights piece. It's actually a, a pretty fairly written piece about the entire greyhound industry in Florida, and they interview both sides of the matter. And it's also about how greyhound racing has just been in decline in general. So, as I've mentioned, this is this was a very big industry in Florida at one point, and it has declined. A lot of the reason it has declined is because of the rise of casinos in Florida and also the rise of poker. That a lot of this has replaced the greyhound racing as a source of amusement and gambling in the state of Florida and elsewhere. A number of uh, rooms in Florida, a lot of poker rooms in Florida, are associated with these dog tracks. And that seems to be their main revenue, and the greyhound racing has become secondary. 
this began in uh, 1997, before the poker boom, so they were perfectly situated. There have been uh, a lot of criticisms over time of greyhound racing. There's been talks of uh, how greyhounds, which are one of the fastest animals in the world, they're not as fast as cheetahs, but uh, they're behind that. They can run up to 45 miles per hour. But they don't have very good endurance, and they're not very sturdy. And that's the reason for that is because of the way they're built. They can run so fast, but they're really made for sprinting. And they, the way their body is isn't very uh, hardy. It can, they can break bones very easily, and they're just uh, not dogs that last very long, who are, uh, which are tasked to do this. And what happens is uh, when these dogs are unable to run anymore, either from age, because they they don't run past five years old because they're not competitive anymore after five. Much like a, a human being stops being competitive in racing after like in, in, into their 30s. They, unless you're racing against the same age group, you're not going to be on an absolute basis a very competitive runner once you're over 35. With dogs, if you look at the 7 to 1 ratio they like to talk about with dog years, after five they don't race anymore. So those dogs are often put down, even though they have a long life ahead of them at only the age of five. There's also ones that are put down that break legs or have other health issues that are brought on by the racing. So this has been long criticized. There's been animal rights groups that have pushed for a long time to shut down greyhound racing. However, greyhound racing goes way, way back and was somewhat of a tradition in Florida and it was not easy to get this removed because a lot of people really enjoyed it. The it, this goes this goes so far back that uh, when they were able to get the license to run these tracks at night, people started showing up to see the greyhound racing because people who were working during the day wanted something to do at night. And back a long time ago, there weren't that many options for nighttime entertainment. It's not like you could just go get on your iPhone or watch TV. Uh, there, uh, a lot of people would go to watch this and uh, just, so yeah, they, they just, it was just something they would watch as, as uh, something for fun, just watching a competition, except it's dogs competing. A big innovation in greyhound racing actually occurred in the, early 1900s and this is with the rabbit they chase if i'm sure if you if you've seen dog racing i'm sure you've probably noticed that the rabbit isn't real the rabbit is mechanical and it zooms around the track and the dogs chase it so basically the greyhounds are chasing what they think is a rabbit running in the early 1900s a man named Owen P Smith was actually an animal lover and because uh, greyhound racing was getting popular and they were actually running a real rabbit that the <laughs> greyhounds would chase, they he didn't like that the rabbit would then be attacked by one of the greyhounds. And he said that the screaming of the dying rabbits reminded him of a child screaming, and it really bothered him. So he actually worked to invent a mechanical rabbit that would just go around the track and was made of metal and was not a live creature that the dogs would be killing. This, along with the fact that the, that uh, he and his partners made a greyhound track, 
because they didn't have a full Greyhound track prior to that. Uh, that really, re- that, those were the big innovators to Greyhound racing. Before that, uh, pe- they had Greyhound races, but they were very informally put together, and there was no track involved. You just see a bunch of Greyhounds run across a field chasing a real rabbit, and whoever got there first killed the rabbit. So they uh, they they had real tracks with these mechanical rabbits going around, which was a big deal in the early 1900s. This was a impressive device back then. They didn't have many things like that. The tracks did not have gambling, however. It was illegal. And for that reason, it failed. Uh, there there was some illegal betting that went on in these places, but there was no licensed betting that could, that could take place, and they failed. The industry exploded in the 1930s when gambling at these tracks was legalized. It was discovered that people just really didn't want to come in mass numbers unless they could bet on these matches, and the illegal gambling wasn't cutting it for most people. Most wanted some sort of uh, actual legal gambling they could do through the track. So once they uh, got that going, then it exploded, and uh, tracks started popping up all over the state. So the 30s and 40s and 50s, Greyhound racing was huge, and the stands were constantly full. You can see in this article a picture of a 1950s dog track, which looks like uh, what you'd expect at a baseball stadium with how many people were there. It was a a big deal. If you think about it, what what was there to do at night in the 1950s? I guess they had TV, but you'd watch the, you know, it's like tiny 10-inch TV in black and white with limited programming and honestly wasn't very good. I mean, people wanted to go out and do things, and this was something to do, and you could gamble. Also, the dog tracks were promoted as just a fun thing about Florida. So not only could you go to the beach and uh, go to the Everglades and everything else like that, you you could also come and watch the dog races and bid on them. It was something that was ingrained as part of uh, Florida culture, especially aimed at tourists. But uh, locals enjoyed it as well. Mickey Mantle actually got into betting at the dog tracks. He not only went himself, but he also uh, did commercials for uh, one of the dog tracks. And other stars and athletes were showing up at these tracks in the 50s and 60s. They also started uh, having more movies in the 50s and 60s take place there. So it became very big in Florida. And most of you probably weren't around in those days, or if you were, you were probably very young and didn't pay attention to that. But this this was a big deal in Florida in the 1950s and 60s. They established a state racing commission because there was concerned. There was some concern that the mafia would show up and basically take over the whole betting side of things. The problem was this wasn't very effective. The mafia did show up, and they did take over. And there was some concern at the time that there were fixed races, that in some cases the mafia would put a lot of money on uh, a certain race, and then they would uh, get the trainers to overfeed the dogs they wanted to lose, the ones they were bidding against, so they'd run too slow. Or in some cases they'd even uh, tie their toes together so they couldn't run as fast. Uh, in some cases, they also would drug the dogs, either with drugs to make them run faster or make them run slower. They could basically control who was going to win. And it was a, it was a paramutual type of betting where you're betting against the other people there. So 
the mob was always winning because they knew who to bet on because they could fix it. So there was a lot of concern about that, and there's a lot of bribery going on by the mafia. So the attempt to prevent that didn't really work out very well. Famous mobsters uh, Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky were very big in the dog track industry. And uh, it was said that they fixed a lot of matches. So unfortunately, even after the mafia was kind of pushed out of there, the problem with drugging the dogs persisted. Remember, that was done at first to fix races, but uh, even when races weren't fixed, some tracks were drugging the dogs simply to either make the races more exciting or to, uh, or, or certain trainers would do it to give their own dogs an edge. As recently as 2017, Florida State racing officials revoked a trainer's license because five of his greyhounds running at Derby Lane, which is one of the bigger racing tracks, uh, had tested positive for cocaine. It was found that if you give the dogs cocaine, that they run very fast. And then uh, only a few months later, uh, a trainer was suspended after 12 of his dogs tested positive for cocaine. So that uh, that was one concern. There's also been concern over the years that when the dogs aren't racing, that they're confined to small cages. And that, uh, as I mentioned before, that they race under conditions that they'll often get injured. There's There's been... Greyhounds that have been found that uh, that had broken legs, broken backs, fractured skulls and spines, and uh, even in a few cases, they would attempt to bite the rabbit zipping around and electrocute themselves. But the bigger problem was what would happen to the greyhounds after they were done racing. After age five, as I said, they would be put down. Sometimes they would be put down in inhumane ways. For example, uh, in one case, uh, a trainer was charged for allowing 37 dogs to starve to death after the racing season ended. And he actually got uh, five years in prison for this. This was in 2010. In 2002, a security guard for the Pensacola racetrack was arrested after it was found, after they found an Alabama junkyard where 3,000 greyhounds remains were on earth and the security guard said that he was paid ten dollars for each shooting where he'd shoot a greyhound dead whenever it got too old he said hey take care of this and he did so he killed three thousand greyhounds that were five and couldn't race anymore they just say here's ten bucks get rid of this dog and he would that uh got everyone really angry they were going to put him on trial for animal cruelty, but he died. I'm not sure what of, but he died before his trial could come, so that was the end of that. But this opened people's eyes, this is 18 years ago, to the type of stuff that was going on. People didn't really think about what happens to these dogs after they uh, are done racing, after they're too old to race. You would hope they'd be given away to families that want them, but in reality, they were mostly put down in some ways uh, inhumanely. So there, there kept being reports in Florida about things like this, and people stopped going to the dog tracks as much. In the meantime, more and more Indian casinos were opening in the area, and poker started going 
and becoming popular in the mid-2000s. So people started going more for the poker than for the Greyhound gambling. Basically, people wanted to gamble, and once there were more attractive options than betting on Greyhound racing, people said, yeah, you know what, screw Greyhound racing, I just, I, I, I prefer the poker. So what happened is it started skewing very old. You think poker's getting old. Uh, Greyhound racing got really old, because what you had was the people that stuck by the Greyhound racing and still wanted to go and still were very into it were the ones who had remembered when it was a really big scene in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s, and like in those days, the people who were around in those days were still very into it, but uh, the younger crowds, like, okay, now this isn't that appealing anymore, especially with the animals being mistreated. Let's just, let's go play poker. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, let's go play some slots. Let's go play some blackjack. So, the interest in dog racing started to very much decrease. This was even reflected in Ocean's Eleven. Remember that movie, two thousand one, that started that whole series. The when they were trying to uh, recruit someone, they went to a dog track and recruited the character played by Carl Reiner, who was 79 years old. And that was not an accident. Apparently, the, that uh, the casting calls for a guy around 80 years old and to find him at the dog track. That was the reputation that the dog tracks had. It was going to be very old people. So that it started to be a problem that the uh, dog racing became less interesting to people who were young. Part of the reason was that uh, it was too difficult to figure out which dog to bet on. When gambling wasn't as easy, you don't just sit down and play poker. You don't just sit down and play slots. You don't just sit down and play blackjack. When, when this was really the option, then you would start learning about the dogs that are going to race. You'd research it. You'd, you'd bet on the dog that you liked best. You'd think you, maybe you have an edge because you figured out that uh, this dog is the, the odds on him. It, it should be uh, he should be a bigger favorite. Whatever, whatever it is, people back in those days enjoyed researching it. As time passed and people's attention spans went down, and when people wanted to put less effort into gambling, uh, this became less appealing. People didn't know what they were doing. They didn't want to learn about it. They just wanted the, the instant gratification of sitting down and doing something that's relatively easy. This has been a general trend in gambling over the last few decades. I've talked about this before. The reason we have things like 6 to 5 blackjack and terrible video poker pay tables and things like that at casinos, the reason that this can occur now and this type of thing would have been a terrible failure in the 1980s is that gamblers back in the 1980s were pretty educated, they knew their games pretty well, even if they weren't able to play for an advantage. The gambler today just wants it as a distraction. They're not gamblers, so to speak. They're just people who enjoy gambling. They're people who don't want to put effort into learning anything. They, just, they want something that's simple, something that's easy, something they can understand quickly, and that's what a lot of them do. That's what a lot of recreational players do, even ones that gamble at high stakes. I'm not saying that's all of them, but there's a much greater trend towards this, and that's why if you go to the average uh, blackjack table and ask someone, hey, do you realize this is a 6 to 5 table and why this isn't good, that most couldn't even explain to you what that means. Most couldn't explain to you the difference. You ask them, you ask them what, what does 6 to 5 blackjack mean? They, they'll say, what? Six, what do you mean 6 to 5 blackjack? You'll say, well, you know, I used to pay 3 to 2 on blackjack. Oh, yeah, that would have been cool. That, that would have been nice if this one's like that. Well, do you realize this is, like, horrible for the player and this really, really makes you lose fast? 
Uh, I mean, I'd rather it's three to two, but uh, like, like all the tables are like this. Like that would be the conversation you'd have with a typical gambler today, where if they brought a six to five table in 1985, people would have said, "What the hell? We're not going to play this crap. Get us out of here." So just a, a different type of mentality of gamblers now than back in the 80s and before. And same with the dog tracks. People just didn't want to learn it, and it was much more appealing to just go play poker, go play slots, whatever. And the fact that there was publicity in Florida about the mistreatment of the dogs was the other factor that was bringing the industry down. On uh, In 1986, there was uh, a record crowd at a uh, at, at Derby Lane. They got uh, 12,779 people to see a dog win what they called the Distance Classic. Nowadays, even without COVID, they will get about 700 people at the track. I mean, a, a tremendous difference. Went from 12,779 people to 700. They just, they, they have other things they'd like to do. Now, there is satellite betting where you can bet on these races without physically being at the track, which didn't used to exist. So that they, they do have more betting on these races than there used to be. Like, I should say there, there's a lot more betting with 700 people in attendance than there would have been in the old days of 700 people were there because there was no satellite betting. But still, there is an overall big drop in the amount wagered between uh, 2001 and today. There's a big difference. In fact, it, the revenue from these tracks peaked around 1990 and then steeply fell after that and, and continues to go down. But uh, the end of the racing is coming in Florida. And that, as I said, this is not the only place Florida, this is not the only place where racing takes place, this is Greyhound racing, but uh, that's the place mostly associated with it, and it's one of only a few states in the U.S. which actually still has it. So uh, for a while now, pretty much every dog track has a poker room, and the poker room is really what's driving the action now. The Greyhounds are just not the main event anymore. Some people will do the satellite racing while they're there, but people are really showing up for the poker, and uh, and this is starting to become less and less relevant. But regardless, there was a ballot measure to ban all Greyhound racing in Florida, which which would have been unheard of for a long time. Because this was a very, very big thing in the state. If they tried to have this uh, e- even just uh, you know, 20 years ago, this would have flopped badly. But in 2018, there was a constitutional amendment, not to the U.S. Constitution, but to the Florida Constitution, called Amendment 13. Amendment 13 would ban betting on greyhounds at the end of December 2020, which is coming up. So that means January 1st, 2021, it would be illegal to bet on greyhound racing, even at a licensed track. And a lot of people two years ago, they didn't really believe this was going to pass because greyhound racing had been so ingrained in Florida for so long. It had been almost 100 years that this was a big part of Florida. So how could you get more than 50 people, 50% of people voting to ban the greyhound racing? So what happened was the racing industry just kind of ignored it. They didn't spend very much money. They just... We're sure this would fail. Why waste our money on this, the, the industry thought. In the meantime, 
the animal rights groups were spending a lot of money and raising a lot of money to run commercials on and, and showing images of greyhounds that had been abused and killed. And this really tugged at people's heartstrings. But still, the industry thought, okay, yeah, there'll be some people who vote to ban it, but we're not going to get 50%. Well, they did. They didn't just get 50%. They didn't just get 60%. They got 70% voting to ban it. So it had two more years. This was in the November 2018 election. They had two more years to wind it down. And the end is now coming very soon, December 31st, 2020. And it was also hampered by COVID, like everything has. What's going to happen to the dogs? Well, believe it or not, the dogs that are not going to be able to race anymore, they're just going to close the tracks because people aren't going to come just to watch dogs run around in a circle. The people that were coming were really only coming for the gambling at this point. So they're just going to close all these tracks in Florida. They're going to be giving the dogs away. And there's actually a lot of people who have signed up to take in these greyhounds that are not going to be racing anymore. It turns out that greyhounds are not bad to have as pets. That they're good-natured, that they're warm, and that uh, despite the fact that they have a reputation of very active dogs, because they are sprinting dogs, they really don't want to run long distances. There are dogs, there are dog breeds out there that if you get that a certain breed, you are expected to exercise the dog a lot every day, like miles of running. So if you are not a runner who runs every day, there are certain breeds of dogs you just shouldn't get because they don't get enough exercise. Now, I guess if you can take the dog to the park and let it run around with other dogs for like hours, that'll be okay too. But there are certain breeds which you are not advised to keep in your house unless you're going to act, exercise it very actively. Otherwise, what the dogs will do is destroy your house because it's, it's, they've got to get their pent-up energy out. So greyhounds are perceived to be like that, but they're actually not because they are not distance runners. They don't want to run a long way. A lot of dogs actually want to run a long way. A lot of them enjoy doing 10-mile runs. Greyhounds would not. They're not built for that. They're built to be very fast and then quit running and just sit around the rest of the day. That's the way they naturally are. They're described as 45-mile-per-hour couch potatoes because they can run really fast for a short time, and then they're like, eh, I'm done. I just want to sit around all day. And so someone who wants a dog that sits around all day and doesn't want to have to exercise it, that's a good dog to get. They'll go out and have fun with you and run really fast, and then they'll be tired and say, okay, I'm, I'm happy uh, – sitting inside all day. And they seem to be nice, and there's a lot of positives to owning a greyhound. So once this got around, people started to line up to adopt them. So at least it looks like a lot of these dogs, or maybe all of these dogs, which are not going to be in service anymore once these tracks close, or at least uh, stop offering racing, they may still offer poker, that uh, they will find homes, which is a lot better than I can say for the dogs that reached five years old or got injured and were just killed. Now, is there going to be any other racing in the U.S. once it leaves Florida? Well, Iowa and Arkansas are still going to allow it, but only through the end of 2022. They also had a similar measure, which had a 
end date two years later. So December 31st, 2022, Iowa and Arkansas, which have a much smaller dog racing industry, much, much smaller, those will still have dog tracks for the next two years. West Virginia has two dog tracks, but that's all they have, and that's uh, they are allowed to remain. So really the only active tracks that will be open after 2022 will be the ones in West Virginia, and who knows what those fu- those have in their future. And I think there's only like two in Arkansas and two in Iowa anyway. Most of them are in Florida. That's going to be pretty much the end of dog track racing in the U.S. Apparently it's big in other countries. I guess it's uh, big in New Zealand and Australia with uh, racing almost every day of the year. I actually saw Greyhound racing in the early 90s in my one trip to England. I went to England and I I briefly saw Greyhound racing. I forgot why I was even there, but I think it was in London or somewhere near London. I went to some dog racing. I don't know if I ever went in Florida. I haven't been to it very often. It also previously was in uh, Arkansas and Arizona. But it's it's gone there. Or I guess it's still in Arkansas. But it was it was in Arizona and uh, Alabama. That was it. Alabama and Arizona used to have it, but it is now gone. It's now not legal there anymore. So it's being done away with pretty quickly because of the concerns for the dogs. I guess the industry could have modified itself to prevent this. They just didn't see this coming, and now it's too late. So that's uh, going to be the end of the dog racing. These tracks will survive because they have poker, so they can they can just become poker rooms, provided life poker stays a thing in the COVID days. But if you want to see Greyhound racing, it's pretty much done. You can text me, 775-372-8355. Got a text from the uh, 602 referring to what Bart, Bart Hansen was talking about before. He said it's uh, uh, it's easier to clear the bonus with bigger bets. They want a better shot at your money. They wait till the bets are graded because the pushes don't count. Interesting. I was talking about clearing bonuses on sites like my bookie. Yeah, I know it's much easier to clear the bonus with bigger bets. That's a, a trick used by a lot of advantage players to clear bonuses on uh, from online promotions where people understand that if you just bet small, even if you want to spend the time clearing the bonus, that eventually the negative expectation of the games you're playing is going to grind you down to zero. That the only way you have to clear the bonus is by playing a very high-variant style. Let's take this call here. Hey, Drew. What's yeah. up? Hello. So uh, go ahead and identify yourself, who you are. Um, I post on the Drawing Dead as a forum. On Drawing Dead as a forum. Drawing Dead. Okay, so you said you wanted to uh, bring up a concern. I saw you were texting me. So what, what's yeah. going on? All right, so um, this is about Fox Poker. And an issue I had, and then an issue that my like several of my friends told me they had. So I'm going to start with mine and then go into theirs. I'm not, like, the best online player. Um, I generally play, like, 50 cent, um, dollar, or 25, $50, just screwing around, whatever. But it was the weirdest situation playing on there. It's like I'd get on there, play really well, you know, run good, whatever, and then I'd sit at these tables and just get crushed. Um, 
it'd be these weird hands where like I'd have King King and I'd get called five ways all in like how the action would work out. And people would have like a six queen nine Jack four, but like none of the cards were ever overlapping. There was not, nobody ever called me when I had pocket aces, pocket Kings, Jacks with the same card as me, or they had the same cards. So the final hand, I remember this really well. Um, I get pocket aces. I, I have three bet. It gets to me. I have three bet. Call, 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 four bet. I five bet. I'm pretty much all in. I get called from everybody, and it was the same situation. Nobody had any of the same cards. Nobody had an ace. And I ended up losing because it was like, it was pretty much five ways. So I, I message Andy and I'm like, Andy, there's something going on here because this is happening way too often. I get there's people on there that, that'll play like that, that'll just call down, but to call like a hundred bucks in that, that game, that's, you know, that's a lot. Well, for, let, let me stop you here. So, so, so tell people who, who is Andy? Um, Andy runs or manages whatever the room. Um, I don't know his last name. It starts with a T. You go through him for for everything. Like if you want to get in, you want to deposit money. Um, okay. And to my understanding, Fox Poker. For those of you that don't know it, Fox Poker is running that uh, Briggs software, like the Poker Fraud Alert room does. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It is. Okay. And and uh, are you aware of the uh, people who came forward at the beginning of the year who actually approached someone approached me to sell me uh, a tool to be able to see all the whole cards on Fox poker. And uh, I, um, I, I feigned interest just so I could see the tool working. And so, and we actually had a guy on here who wrote that tool and, and he explained it. It was a guy, a guy actually in Lebanon. And what, uh, Basically, the conclusion was is this wasn't a magic tool to be able to hack it or anything, but if the operator was shady, that it was very easy with this tool to either to have the owner of the room be able to see all the whole cards as soon as they're dealt or anyone he gives access to being able to see what they're dealt. So uh, that's why I advised over and over, and, and the author of Briggs Software actually came over to Poker Fraud Alert to comment on this, and he even confirmed that, look, if you can't trust the person running the room, then there's a lot of things they can do, and yes, this is one of them. If you, you have to, no matter how good the software is, if you can't trust the actual person operating the room, then yes, they can write or they can hire someone to write third-party tools to harvest information from the software to give people like his friends an edge. And he said, that's just the way it's going to be. And I agreed with him. And, and the, the Lebanese guy who wrote this tool agreed with that as well. So, um, so what I'm saying here is that uh, on Fox poker, we've seen this tool demonstrated, not for Fox, Fox poker, but for the identical software it runs. So to play on there, you have to trust the ownership of Fox poker. That, that's, that's the first most important thing. So go on. Um, I heard I I've listened to all those episodes. I stopped playing last year before all that came out, and I didn't really think it was going to be that secure. I never kept or spent a lot of money on there. I think um, overall I lost like two to three hundred dollars, something like that. But it was like I would run it up to six hundred bucks. I never had a problem with cashing out. But 
like I said, then it'd be like, I run it up and then all of a sudden I just get crushed and, and I'm in the negative again. But, um, so I message Andy and I go, Hey, I can, I can show you this is collusion. Just watching the play, watching the hands. There's been more hands than this, that, that specific pocket aces hand. There's collusion going on. And he responded and goes, well, these are the people you want in your game. And I'm like, that's true, but not when there's five of them working together. It, it's clear these guys are working together while I was sitting at this table. So he banned me. <laughs> I came to him with, like, collusion stuff, and, and he banned me. So I cut my losses. I was like, whatever. Lost a couple hundred bucks. Not a big deal. Thanksgiving Day, when I text you, I was talking to my friend Dave. And he asked me if I still play on Fox. I tell him no, and I tell him what happened. He tells me about about six of our friends and him have been playing on there, and they're having the exact same problem. And these guys actually have been playing poker since like 06, 07. They kind of got me into it. Um, and they're really good players. And he's like, dude, there's something going on there. Um, we are getting killed. So he tells me they're like, they didn't even have a chance. They just got crushed. I'm like, well, it happens. He goes, Scott, Dave, his brother, and about five of our friends sat at one nine-handed table. And they were like, something's going on here. We're going to figure it out. They all buy in. They get on a conference call, and they're sharing whole cards. Two people sat down and busted all seven of them. So he's like, um, his brother messaged Andy and said, hey, Something weird's going on here. This site's bunk. Andy bans them. Yeah, that's, that doesn't so, sound good. Well, let me let me stop for a second here. Was was the accusation that they are doing this pre-flop all-in thing where they just all have different, they all have unique whole cards, and that they and they don't match any of the whole cards of the people who are raising someone like with aces, where no everybody calling doesn't have an ace or and don't have each other's cards. Is it just that, or is it also a weird post-flop play where they seem to know what to do? Dave said he ran into a, a lot of weird post-flop play. He, he said that, like, my, my I picked mine up from the, the pre-flop. He said they were just getting, like, the weirdest, crazy runouts would happen. And that, you know, that happens in online poker. They all played on stars and full tilt. But he's like, every big pot, it was the craziest runout. You'd be like way ahead, and then all of a sudden, magic card every single time. So, yeah, I mean, the, the tool I've I, seen, I the, the tool yeah. I've seen, uh, that wouldn't quite explain a runout. However, it could partially explain it because remember, being able to see the whole cards means you can see what everyone has, but not what's coming. However, it becomes more valuable to take draws off that are kind of uh, harder to hit. If you can see where you are, so if you uh, if you can see, if, like let's say, let's say you have uh, queen ten, and the board is uh, two three five. Well, if if you're facing a decent sized bet, or maybe not that big of a bet, just a queen ten sucks on that board. And if the person has pocket nines, who's betting? If you don't know he has pocket nines, you're going to bail out a two three five usually with queen ten because there's nowhere to go with it. But if you know that the guy has nines and, you, and your overcards are going to be good if they hit, then it's worth it to take something off, especially if you know that you can charge him the maximum money and you can find out, ex- you can figure out exactly what to charge him, not too much, not too little. If uh, if you do get the queen or ten, you don't have to worry about him having a better hand than you. You, you know once your queen or ten hits, you've got him. 
and and you know exactly what type of pressure to put on him. Whereas if you can't see his whole cards, then you can't. So it became it actually becomes uh, more correct to make weird post flop decisions, even when you've totally missed the flop, if you're not drawing dead. So that's a that, that's a type of advantage to be gained. Or there could be a different tool. It may not be this tool that could be running. There could be a different tool where it, perhaps it can see the entire uh, runout. I don't know if when it shuffles the card, I don't know if it's a continuous shuffle or if it already decides the entire deck. If it decides the entire deck in advance, like when when, when it starts dealing, if it already knows all 52 cards and the, and the order, then a tool could be made very easily to just present the entire deck and tell you exactly what the board's going to be. And then that's what I call clairvoyance in, in poker. That's uh, clairvoyance poker cheating, where that's even more powerful than seeing the whole cards because you can see uh, exactly what hand you're going to end up with. And if you can see that plus everybody's whole cards, then you know exactly when to put money in because you know when you're going to ultimately lose. Because even what I call super users, the ones that can just see all the whole cards, they can occasionally lose if they run bad, like if uh, a lot of money goes in and a bad beat happens to the super user. But if you can see the way it's it's all going to run out, then you can never lose if you don't if you don't want to ever lose because you know which hands you'll win and which ones you'll lose uh, every single time. And there there are no bad beats to you at least. So so uh, there's a lot of possibilities if the person who is operating whoever has whoever is operating the computer for Fox Poker forget who the owner is whoever is operating this on their PC they can install any of these type of tools. They can write it themselves if they have the technical capability, or if they don't, they can either hire people to do it or buy packages that were meant, like the one that was offered to me. When the, someone just found I ran the No Fraud Online Poker Room, they didn't understand what type of site this is, and it was someone who was foreign. They didn't quite understand what Poker Fraud Alert meant, so that's why they offered it to uh-huh. me. They just saw that we, we had a room like this here, but uh, and then I just feigned interest so I could get the story here. But uh, maybe that someone came to Fox Poker or whoever has the computer at Fox Poker. Maybe the person who has the computer at Fox Poker seeked out one of these tools. Who knows what it is? And that's why I've always told people the smaller the site, the smaller the operation, the harder it is to trust that you're going to get paid, that the site is run fairly, that they're going to investigate collusion. All the, There's all these problems that can come up that will plague small sites and you're going to get screwed and having an initially good experience with, oh, I played there for a while and the player sucked and I won and they paid me, that doesn't mean anything because they, you may have problems down the line and, and be sorry that you played there. So I, I don't know what's going on at Fox Poker. I, I agree that this does sound pretty suspicious. Now, did they do any screenshots? Did they save any hand histories? Do we have anything we could post here? Um, I don't have anything because mine was from last uh, last year, but... Um, I could ask Dave if he has anything or if he can get the hand history off there. Yeah, that would be interesting to see. To, to be honest, like, one, my, like, our friends are better than I am at cards, which I'm like, I'm not that good. <laughs> but for seven of them to sit at a table and get busted by two people, that's just really suspect. I know they were colluding and it's a scumbag thing to do. I wasn't part of that, but. But I don't know. That's just kind of unreal that they're sharing seven of nine hands with whole cards and they still lose. Yeah, and and uh, if they also have to look how they lose and if and see if there's any kind of pattern and also if there's just uh, totally nonsensical things that happen, like like someone with what I call clairvoyance would be able to see that they're going to get an insane run out on the turn and river. So if they call some huge flop bet with nothing and then hit some kind of weird runner runner to beat you. 
where it would make no sense otherwise to call unless you could see that's coming. And yet other times they, they won't do that. Other times it seems like they just fold uh, and they just never seem to f- do the, one of those big all-in calls where it doesn't uh, eventually run out well for them. That becomes very suspicious. That becomes when it, The more this happens, of course, the more suspicious it becomes. So uh, did this Andy give a reason why you were banned and your friends were banned? Was it explained why these bans occurred? Um, well, I got th- I got the story from Dave, not from his brother. I haven't talked to him in a while. Um, Dave just said that pretty much Andy just cut him off. That they got into like a little argument. I don't know the exchange, and then he just banned him. For me, our whole conversation was what I said. He said, "Those are the players you want in the game." And I'm like, "Well, no, they're colluding. Like, I want people to call me down with garbage, but there's something up." That was it. Done. So, but what, did, what what was the reason he gave why he banned you? He just said, "Well, you're banned." Or he, what, no, why did he claim you're banned? No, he, no, he didn't give me anything. He oh. just stopped returning my calls. Oh, so I see. He, he can't deposit without going through him. He just ghosted me right after I said those collusion. Completely ghosted me. Yeah, so that means so, one of two things. It means either that he's in on it, or he just uh, doesn't want to deal with this and is afraid that uh, if you continue playing there, you're gonna you're gonna trash talk the site and make it look bad and. And it's a, so maybe he doesn't want you to find collusion. If there is, he doesn't. He doesn't want you there, continuing being there, discovering it. Or maybe he knows. Maybe he's getting a piece of it. It, it could be any of these things. And I, I admit it's, it's it's very very bad form when someone reports collusion to ban that person who is uh, who is reporting it. So that's I I would recommend everybody stay away from Fox Poker. And I recommended this before. When uh, I hadn't heard anything bad about it, I just knew the nature of that site that it's something you can't trust because it's being run by individuals who can do anything. You don't know them well. You don't know if you can trust them. And the, and especially when I saw earlier this year that I was offered a tool to see everyone's whole cards, which worked. I, I operated it myself in a demonstration, and it worked. So, uh, and and then the developer came on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. The developer of the uh, of the tool came on and explained the whole thing. And and the developer of the software came on and said, yes, this can be done. So, I mean, that's that. Yeah, if, if you yeah. are playing on one of those rooms, and, and really any of these private rooms, not just Briggs, and that's what the, the guy who wrote Briggs, which that's the software they use, he wanted everyone to understand because he didn't want to make his own software look bad. He wanted everybody to understand that this can happen to any software. And he's right. Like, he wasn't just saying it to defend his, his what he did. He's saying, uh, if you can't trust... The person running it, they can do this to any software running it. So I said at the time, early this year, just don't trust those sites. And it can be tempting. You can hear there's a lot of fish. You can go on there and play a little bit and see there's a lot of fish. It can be very tempting to be part of it. And people end up regretting it a lot. And then there's also the situation where if you do lose to where fish just make bad calls against you and beat you, you just never know. Then you have to start second-guessing, going, oh, wow, maybe this is rigged. I don't know what to think. And who wants that? You, you, you want more confidence. It's kind of like when I'm playing live poker, provided there aren't Cubans in the game. When I'm playing live poker, uh, if I have a bad run and I go, wow, I can't believe the board went out that way, short of any kind of suspicion of card marking, which I usually don't have, uh, I just know I ran really bad. And I don't have to go away thinking, hey, maybe I was cheated. But... Online, you never know, and at least on the bigger sites, you have a little more faith that this isn't happening. But it, it could be. I mean, we saw the big scandals in the 2000s of, of, and in the early 2010s, but 
it's especially more likely at these small sites, and that's why I've always urged stay away from that, stay away from poker bros, stay away from all this stuff. There's so many things that can happen. Forget the, the cheating. They can also just not pay you. They, they can, I've seen it where people don't get paid because they're accused of cheating when they didn't. They just find it a way to steal from, from their players. Uh, not on Fox necessarily, but, but I've seen, uh, uh, I, I've seen that before. So uh, it's just not a good idea. Lisa, I know you're not there anymore, but I would, uh, if your friends aren't playing there anymore, then that's good. And definitely you, you, you can call them out all over the internet and they'll, Maybe they'll be forced to answer to it. Well, my thing was like I just thought, all right, maybe I, maybe I just played bad, whatever. He cut me off, but then to find out my friends played there, get the exact same story, and and completely independent of each other, about a year apart. Then I was like, all right, I got I got to bring this like up to somebody. <clears throat> so that's why I texted you and was trying to get everything going. Yeah, well, and wanted to get on, go and at least say it because I'm not good at writing this. And then having people respond, I'm not going to get on the forum and read, you know, a hundred posts and try to respond to everybody and clarify my story. I just want to give people a heads up, you know, don't end up in the same situation or potentially in this situation. Also, I got a question for you. Would you rather play poker with two Cubans or Mike <laughs> Apostle? <laughs> um, I, I had to say the Cubans because Mike's suing me. I, I don't want to play with poker against people who sue me. So I, I, I prefer the Cubans there. That's all I can. That's all, that's all I can say right now. But that's uh, <laughs> at least <laughs> the Cubans. At least the Cubans don't have a lawsuit against me. I'll give them that. Though they might soon because we we talked about them. Actually, I don't think they can sue me because I didn't even mention their names. I just said Cubans. So maybe maybe, uh, maybe the the country of Cuba can sue me. <laughs> no, but thanks, man. Just appreciate it. Just wanted to get it out there, and I'm sure there's a lot a lot of people that play on. I know their Facebook page was huge last year when I was on it. So. Yeah, well, they, they used I mean, to promote it. Well, this is interesting. I want to, Speaking of Facebook, you reminded me. Uh, Ray Davis, who's uh, not exactly uh, in good standing with much of poker because of his uh, non-poker-related uh, legal issues, so to speak, uh, and his conviction for uh, sexual activity with, with a minor, that uh, whatever the actual conviction was. Uh, he's persona non grata with a lot of people, and understandably so. But when he returned to Real Grinders, which was once a very big promoter of Fox Poker, he posted there that uh, he's not involved with, Real, with Fox anymore. That they've uh, they've gone their separate ways. Something it was not even like it didn't even look like it was like a friendly departure. It really looked like, the, I, I, in fact, I think this may have happened before he even went to jail. So something where where they just they completely went opposite directions and. I don't know who left who. Like maybe, maybe Fox and Ray split because of Ray's problems, or it, it could have also been Ray heard bad things about them and said, "Screw it, I don't want to have this scandal on Real Grinders because Fox is screwing people." And so, who knows what happened there? But they had some kind of bad separation too. I'd love to know what the story is there. So, uh, wouldn't that be funny? Uh, a pedophile turning down a poker fight. <laughs> yeah. What if they both? What if they both like like were embarrassed by each other? <laughs> Ray's like, hey, at least I, I at least I wasn't okay. cheating, and they're like, yeah, well, at least we weren't touching little girls. Like I, I could see, like uh, I, I can only imagine. That's so quick. That's I, awesome. I can only imagine. Real, real grinders is still a thing. No, no, it, no, it's still it's still a thing. Yeah, it's, it's still going. It has a very diminished, uh, a very diminished user base now. I, I don't know how many people are still t- technically part of it, but the, there's not much posting there anymore. I don't post there anymore. I just kind of observe, but I, I don't post and 
a lot of people have moved over to Action Sports Poker, which is Terry King's uh, new group that uh, you know she defected from there a while back, and then a lot of people just quit entirely. Like Action Sports Poker is not nearly as big as Real Grinders was when it was most active. It also died down anyway. Forget Ray's conviction. It died down anyway just because he was in jail and couldn't keep the conversations going. It was it was very much uh, and also then they were. Uh, they were requiring all posts had to be approved because they didn't want people starting uh, drama all about Ray there. So they, they were only approving posts that weren't about that. And that, that really killed activity too because people had to get their posts pr- approved and they were much less uh, encouraged to post. So all that really deadened real grinders. It went from a, such an active group, I couldn't keep up with it all, to something that just didn't have all that much activity at all. It had like 17,000 members, but there wasn't much going on there. And since Ray came back, he tries to get it going again, but now he's got this huge stigma attached to him, and I just I just can't see people wanting to join the group anymore, given what he got convicted of. And I know he's saying, "Oh, you know, I I only, I only agreed to this because I you know it was that, or or, or possibly spend uh, decades in prison." And blah, once you're convicted of that, it's too late. And then if you watch the uh, the evidence that people are that they said they're going to present, like you can watch in these videos where they're saying, you know, we're going to show this in court, this and this and this and that. It looks very bad for him. It looks like it doesn't look like he was just like totally wrongly accused and got screwed. That I, I do agree that procedurally the court didn't treat him very well. He also didn't do himself any favors the way he behaved there. But as far as the allegations against him, I, I have I, while all the evidence didn't get presented because he quickly agreed to a plea deal, as they were saying they're going to present it, but. I can't imagine the DA was going to say, we're going to present this, we're going to present that, and then if it proceeded, like, oh, actually, we're not. We really don't have this. Like, clearly they said they're going to present what, what they said they, they were going to show, I'm sure they had. And uh, so the whole thing didn't look good. And, uh, you know, I, I, I whatever it is, it, he doesn't have the look of someone who was wrongfully convicted. And everybody can kind of see that. And even if, even if he was wrongfully convicted, once you are convicted of that, like, in most people's eyes, then you did it. It's, it's it's not very common that people wrongly get convicted of that sort of thing anyway, because there's a usually a, a fair amount of uh, burden of proof the state has to show to even get to the point of uh, going through a serious prosecution where your attorney is going to recommend, yeah, hey, maybe you better take a plea deal. Like if if there's like nothing against you, the attorney is going to tell you, yeah, you might as well take a shot here. It's it, it's no jury's going to convict you with with basically nothing. So. I'm not saying you never get wrongly convicted for this sort of thing, but uh, it's uncommon. Usually when guys get convicted of something like this, they've really done it. And uh, so I, I can't see his reputation ever recovering. And therefore, whatever he does with the real grinders, it, as long as he's leading it or as long as it's called real grinders, it's going to be forever tainted. If uh, I said the biggest value it has is just the user base. Like if, if he were to sell this to – and I think there's someone else involved who owns it too. So like it's not that simple for just him to sell it. If it were to be sold for the user base itself and then just a new group popped up and said this is a totally new group, nothing to do with Ray, he's not part of it, he's not here, and we have nothing to do with him, we just bought the user base and here it is. And if the group looked like kind of like semi-interesting, it could have some value, but the, the, the brand is dead and, and his brand is pretty much dead, which prior to this wasn't. Prior to this, he was very good at getting activity going there and people liked him there and he was uh, – uh, he made a lot of entertaining posts, and he he, he did a, that was one of the most successful things he's done in 
probably in his life was was real grinders and and the way what he had going there with uh he, he was well as i said when i was talking about his conviction he was very well suited for running that type of group it just happened to match perfectly with his personality and skill set and unfortunately the uh other things going on in his life uh, took him down and that was that. So you never know with these people in poker. I mean, I, I got along with them well, uh, but, uh, and then, you know, I, I kept an open mind through this whole thing. And I even admitted that he wasn't treated particularly fairly by the court. But on the other hand, I will say that the evidence I saw was uh, pretty damning. And I'd be pretty surprised if he was innocent and wrongly convicted. So regardless of how he's treated, regardless of how he's treated me, which has always been good, you know, the fact is if you do something like that, you, yeah, you got to look at the person very differently. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, a lot of people just don't even want to deal with somebody like that. But wasn't there something weird where they let him like walk around with a warrant for him for like two years or something? Yeah, that was finally arrested. Yeah, this was this is incompetence, is what it was. There was the, the police were incompetent. They they actually uh, laughably because he had a California license, they got confused and thought he was an out of stater, even though. The detective involved, like who's who was questioning him, went right to his Las Vegas apartment to do it. Somehow they still thought he was a Californian, and then they gave this to a department that is tasked with finding out-of-staters who committed crimes in Vegas and arresting them. But this task force is so effective they couldn't even use Google to see that he was really in Las <laughs> Vegas. Like a simple Google would have shown everything. Like he, he kept raising that point of like, what the hell, you guys? Uh, you knew where I was. I was public where I was. I played poker tournaments. I went to the Real Grinders Lounge and said where I'd be there. Like a, I, I made no attempt to pretend I was outside of the state. And it's true. Like it was just pure incompetence. And even the court admitted that. Uh, see, he tried to get this dismissed based upon uh, a similar case where somebody was told that, the, like their mom was told they're going to be arrested very soon, and then they didn't arrest the guy for another year. And uh, it was also like a child molestation case, and uh, the guy got. The case dismissed for that reason. It, it, it was considered to be like a violation of his right to a fair trial. But uh, this one, they said, because they didn't tell Ray he's going to be arrested, they said he's being investigated and he heard nothing more, that uh, that's not the same thing because for all he knew, they could have just investigated and found nothing. So just because they said you're being investigated and never contacted him again, that doesn't mean he has to uh, – that, that, that he knew that they had a warrant out for him, that even by his own admission, he had no idea about the warrant – for all that time until they actually arrested him during a traffic stop. And I, and I believe that. I think that he didn't know. And I, I think that he had no idea. He probably just thought the whole thing went away. <laughs> and then it turned out that the, the moron just thought he was in California when a simple Google search would have. I, mean, I talk about someone who was obvious where they were. I mean, they, they, it shows you how incompetent the police can be sometimes. You, you, you watch police on TV and you just you picture it's going to be like that. And then often you see the reality and there's some very smart and talented detectives out there, but then there's other ones. You just go like, how are they, how do these people even get through the Academy? I mean, it's, it's, it's sometimes amazing stupidity you'll see with some of these departments. So that, that definitely happened here. And that's, that's what caused the delay, but it, it didn't really affect you know, whether he was guilt, guilty or, or innocent. That's just why he was dealing with this now when the crimes were alleged from 2014. So if if I remember right, right after um, this stuff happened, it came out that like he he was kind of broke. He really didn't have much money outside of real grinders or anything like that. Did, was he ever a big like tournament winner, or poker player, or anything like that? I'm not was, sure. I know he had some successes here and there, and I know he's a cash player sometimes. I, I don't know 
if he was one of these guys who ran up a lot and lost it, or if he was someone who just kind of always got by and just made it seem like they're more successful than they are. And that's it's very common in poker. Like you never know a lot of these names in poker, even some of the big names, like some of the guys you'd picture have a ton of money. Don't like Olivier Bousquet. He did a, an interesting podcast where he came clean about the whole thing and said, uh, you look at my hand in mob and see the massive amount of money it shows I've won. Uh, I'm actually broke. I, and I've, I've been broke. I think, I think, it, I think he had recovered somewhat, but like he said that throughout most of this, he was broke, even when he was doing really well. And it was from a variety of factors. And he said, you'd have never guessed this, but I've, uh, I've wanted to be honest about this the whole way because people had this impression of me that I was so rich from all my poker winnings. And it's been the opposite. There's so many things in poker, which aren't what they appear to be. And, on the reverse end, there are people who are who've done incredibly well in poker that you've never heard of. That just grind cash, don't play tournaments or barely play tournaments, and win a lot of money. And they are very quiet, and they're not known to be big cash winners. They just kind of keep their head down and win. They don't want the spotlight, and they win a whole lot, and you never know their names. I, I know a few people like that too. So uh, that's yeah, I know a few guys in Milwaukee that are like that. that... It's like you're up there and constantly like, geez, that dude's got to be killing it. Um, that, that's where I was going with it. It's it's crazy how many people just try to put off that perception that they're just rolling in money, and the minute something happens, they're like completely under, you know, distress and having financial hardship and can't function and starting GoFundmes and shit. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, how many people? Make it in the poker industry, and and really everywhere. But I I don't know. Like I'll go up to Milwaukee, and those guys are sitting there. Oh, I'm looking at a second house and doing this. And you see them go out the garage, they get in a piece of shit car, and they're playing one three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's a, there's a lot of that, and uh, and then what's also misleading is because there's a lot of backing deals out there. So you'll see people at high games. You'll see people with a shitload of money in front of them and you go, Oh man, I wish I was that guy. And then in reality, that guy has to give all his winnings back to his backer and gets a small percentage or maybe he's in makeup. He gets none of it. So you like, you, you never know what's going on. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's always something that, and then they won't give you a straight answer. I mean, if you hear it and ask them, Hey, you know, I, I heard you're having problems. And, you know, are you back for this? They, they'll either say none of your business or they, or they will lie about it. So a lot of people that are in poker that appear to have a lot of money don't. And uh, also something people don't think of is you look at tournament results, you look at you know who, who won the event, who came in second, who came in third. You see all this big money and you go, okay, wow, these guys, uh, they just got a lot. Even if they were down before, you know, they, hey, they just won $1.2 million. That's, that's got to be great for them. Well, what you don't usually think about is where did all this money come from? The, up, the, the big money up top for these tournaments. What funded this? All the people who are losing. And when someone plays and loses, you don't see them on the list. You don't uh, even know they were there unless they happen to be part of a poker news update. So there's a lot of people who go through a long stretch of lose, 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 or maybe lose, 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 min cast, lose, lose, lose. And that eats a ton of money, especially if they're playing higher buy-in events. And you don't even notice because you only notice who's winning. You don't really notice who won a few years ago and then you haven't heard of. Then you go, what happened? Did they just leave? No, no, they've been playing the last three years. They're just losing every time. So that that, that eats them very fast too. Then there's other uh, leaks people have, sports betting leaks or, or uh, spending leaks. 
or, or other or degenerate gambling leaks, which are most baffling, where people just decide to sit down and play negative expectation casino games and chunk it all off. You, you, you think, think like a great poker player would be smarter than that, but uh, they're not. I've even known some who really surprised me. I won't name names, but I've known people who are very, very good at poker and have a very deep understanding of the game and the right moves to make and all that. And they just, they don't even seem like the, the crazy degenerate types. They seem like the types who would bank the money or invest it well or whatever. Instead, you, you hear that they have a pit habit and they take the money they win in poker and just shoot it off at blackjack without counting cards or, or, uh, just uh, shoot it off at craps. There, there's so many different stories of her. Then they're the ones who just assume if they can beat poker, they can beat sports betting. And they don't even do the sports betting like like in a uh, a sharp manner. They just go say, oh, I like this game and fire big on it. And they just assume, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know sports. I'll win. And they they don't even look for the best line. They don't, they, they don't do any of the things that are advisable for winning sports bettors to do. It's it's crazy, and that's why so many of them go broke. And no matter how much they've made, they, they there's always ways to blow it. There's always ways to lose, and that's uh, and some people are are just always going to be like that. Some will never change. Some will will go through it, chunk it all off, and then they will uh, go broke, and they'll say, oh, "Crap! I learned my lesson. If I ever get money again, I'm not going to let this happen." Then, yeah, maybe three years later, they run it up again. On, on a backing deal, and then they are able to play for themselves, and then they run it up even more. So now they're now you'd think, okay, great, I, I've got a lot of it back. I'm back in shape here. I think, thank God, I got out of this. You'd think they'd be careful at that point. No, back to the same habits, and they they chunk it all off. So that's uh, that's the nature of a lot of this. Is poker does attract a lot of degenerate gambling types who. That that aspect of their personality takes over, and and not even just gambling. You know, it's, it's that people lose it from overspending or uh, making terrible investments for a lot of money, or uh, drug habits, or drug habits which cost them, which cause them to make dumb decisions. I've seen people who are great players, but when they're high on drugs, they're terrible, and then they go play high stakes when they're high on drugs, and they chunk it all off. So I, I've I've seen so many things over the years, and that's why most of them don't stand the test of time. And if they do, a lot of times they're being backed by somebody. They're not even standing the test of time on their own money. And a lot of the people who stand the test of time either have outside income or they uh, are the unknowns, the people who are not really the ones you think of as, as the successful poker players. They're just kind of no names that know what to do with the money. So it's, it's uh, interesting when you look at the whole thing and, what the image is versus the reality, and uh, that's 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 one thing to think if you if you were just a lower stakes player, whatever, and you look you look at some of these guys who are just winning these big tournaments and everything looks so great and so fun, and you get jealous. You go, you know what? I may actually have more money than that guy. <laughs> if you're not rich, you may think, you know what? You may if if you just have like an average amount of money of, of just a middle class person in the U.S., you know, you're probably doing better than most of them. Well, you know what? You said something perfect that last last episode was. You're like, I know these live players that do really well live, and they get online and they just get crushed, or they just can't can't string together wins. And I'm like, right on that teetering point where I float just a little bit in the uh, in the red, and it's like, but I go play live, and I do so much better just being able to talk shit to people and you know just call out cards and just I don't know needle them, 
do stuff like that. Not really be arrogant or, or an ass about it, but like just feel them out. And I do so much better than than playing cards. That's why I play such small stakes. It's not even worth it for me right now. Because yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Those, those those guys are good, man. And then you get into HUDs and all that stuff. I don't use any of that. I just play straight up and watch betting patterns and. Yeah, and, and some people some people are just naturally better live players than than online players, and and uh, if that's what you find, if you find you're just uh, much better live, and that online just can't seem to work for you, then you know, maybe you shouldn't play uh, online, or if you only play very small stakes, and and uh, just accept that that's uh, that's where your strength lies, and that that's something else in poker. I've told people that you you also have to figure out what you're good at and what you're not good at, and not be in denial about it, and stick to what you're best at and and you you can try to branch out and become good at other things and see let me try this and see if i can become good at this game or see if i if i'm a good online player let's see if i can translate it to live or vice versa you can try this but if you see it's not happening then uh the smart thing to do is just not do it or do it at such low stakes it's not going to matter otherwise uh, people get arrogant and think they can just beat everything then that's sometimes what destroys people too so all those things are important well Oakville shut down in the Midwest at this point. Milwaukee hasn't been open all year. Like, there's nothing in Illinois to play. I don't. I haven't even checked out Indiana. I haven't gone down there. That's a two-hour drive. Like, it's that's a little far just to go play cards if it's open. Yeah, and I, I don't go right. because of the coronavirus. So I'm still waiting for. In fact, at the end of the show, I'm going to talk about 2021 and what I think is coming. So. I'll describe oh, okay. what I think is yeah. happen with that. So, all right. Well, thanks for calling. I got to finish the show here. Got a lot to do here, and it's almost five in the morning. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right. Thank you for calling. Bye. That was drawing dead. Interesting uh, story there about Fox Poker. I would not recommend that site. Let me say that, or any others like it. So this, uh, the guy who wanted me to talk about the Greyhounds, uh, was happy with it. He texted, "Unbelievable." On a scale from one to ten, that discussion merits an eighty-nine. Just incredible, thank you, Todd. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you appreciated that. You, you, you actually brought me a good topic. I was uh, when I read this today, which admittedly was on the toilet. I was actually on the toilet reading this, but still, when I read the article sitting on the toilet, I thought, okay, this is interesting. I, I will talk about the Greyhounds today. You've, you've inspired me. I, I would have not found this otherwise. So, thank you for presenting that to me. From the 916 Druff residential crime in Las Vegas is going up and getting worse. Another negative to living there. Correct. In fact, the, what's even getting worse than residential crime is the strip crime, as we've talked about. Boy, is that getting bad in Las Vegas. Not safe on the strip anymore like it used to be, like it was all the way through 2019. Uh, I lived in Vegas in an area where there was a lot of crime in the 2000s. And that was after crime had dec- declined a lot over the past like 15 years, but... In the mid-2000s, I moved into an area a little bit east of the Strip, which, while close to the Strip, was not a good neighborhood. Not like the worst, but it was not a good neighborhood. I, I was careful over there, let's just say that. I, I hope Jeff Dimes bet. He had a bet, a golf bet, that was starting at 1 a.m. in Los Angeles. So I, I wonder if this is resolved. I hope that uh, Jeff Dime won. Anyway, let's move on here. Talk about the coronavirus. Finally, onto the coronavirus. Okay, we know two people associated with the show who have COVID nineteen. One is Master Ken Scaler. The other is Attorney Eric Benzamokin. 
We revealed Master Scaler earlier this month. He first showed symptoms on November 2nd. And Eric Benzamokin, we revealed near the end of the show last week. What happened was uh, Brandon revealed it without revealing that, like, I didn't want him revealing it. Like, Eric didn't say not to reveal it. So, like, Brandon did nothing wrong. But I, I had just decided myself I'm not going to mention this until Eric says okay. Brandon just kind of said it. And then I'm like, oh, I may have to edit that. Well, then Eric was listening at the time because it was like early morning and Eric was up already for the rest of the day. And he said, uh, no, no, that's fine. You, you, guys, you can say it. I have no problem. So it, it turned out Brandon did the right thing by saying it because Eric had no problem. So at that point, it, it became public. So Eric tested positive on uh, – let's see. I'm scrolling back on the text messages he sent me about it. He tested positive – on November 16th. Today is now November 29th. The show started on the 28th and now it's the 29th. Last I heard from Eric, and now it's been close to two weeks, but last I heard from him, he is done with the symptoms. He, he said that uh, as of Friday, the 27th, that he had no symptoms whatsoever. In fact, he had them for four, no symptoms for four days. So all the way back to the uh, 23rd, he had no symptoms. That means he only had symptoms for a week. However, when he went to go test, he found that he was positive. So uh, he was, he just wanted it to be, he wants to get a, he wanted to get a, a, negative result. He supposedly uh, took a test uh, yesterday, Saturday, so he doesn't. He presumably doesn't have the results yet. But uh, the previous test he had taken still showed that uh, he's positive. And that same thing is happening to Master Scaler, but on a larger scale, because Master Scaler got it two weeks before Eric Benzamokin, and Master Scaler took a test on November 25th and it came back positive. In fact, uh, Master Scaler actually had them text me with the results. So I got a text and I clicked on the link and it said positive. So Master Scaler, 23 days after first seeing symptoms and probably about 26 days after catching it, still showed positive. But like Eric, Master Scaler felt no more symptoms. So what does this mean? Well, believe it or not, the CDC is okay with both of these guys going out into public. I don't know if they are, but the CDC's own guidelines say that if you have shown symptoms for 10 days or more or have been asymptomatic the entire time and if uh, your symptoms are either gone or severely lessening, then it is safe for you to go out. Then you're not going to infect anybody. They, the CDC has determined, and hopefully it's correct, but they believe that you're no longer contagious if symptoms are very much on the decline and at least 10 days have passed since symptoms showed up. And if you never had symptoms, if 10 days have passed since you learned you were positive, that's also okay. That's according to the CDC. You can check it out yourself. So Master Scaler first had symptoms on November 2nd, and obviously way more than 10 days have passed and his symptoms are gone. So while I would not feel comfortable seeing him, the CDC claims it's okay. 
Eric Benzamokin had symptoms on the 16th. And now it is the 29th. And his symptoms are gone. So according to the CDC, that's okay. CDC also says that if your only symptom remaining is loss of taste or smell, and that hasn't improved at all, then don't worry about that part. That that can sometimes take a month to go away that has nothing to do with how contagious you are. So they're saying that uh, the symptoms they're talking about that you need to see lessen are everything else. The fatigue, the cough, the fever, all the stuff like that. So as long as all the other symptoms besides the taste and smell are on the decline or have vanished, and you've had it for at least 10 days, you can go back out. So it looks like they're both going to be okay, which is good because neither of them are young. And I can say that because I'm that age too. Eric is the same age as me, 48. Master Scaler's 50. They both ended up with a less than average in severity COVID case. And while it still remains to be seen if either of them had any kind of permanent damage from it, uh, my guess is that neither of them did. And uh, the only way to test that is for them to try to go out and uh, engage in physical activity that they did before and see if they can do it. And if they can do it, then they're probably going to be okay. There's some reports of things that come up months later, but... For the most part, if when you are better, if you can engage in physical activity without any difference than before or without a noticeable difference, then you're probably going to be fine as if you never had it. So hopefully that'll be the case for both of them. I'm glad that uh, both Master Scaler and Eric uh, did not have a terrible case. And uh, I think Eric did lose a uh, taste, but I think that's back. Was it smell or taste? Either smell. He lost smell, not taste. Ken did not lose either. But he says he doesn't have symptoms anymore, so I assume that means that the smell is back too, which is good. In most cases, it actually takes three to four weeks to get back the smell and taste. There have been reports with a small percentage of people with those symptoms that they do not come back at all. There's also been some who have gotten back their smell and taste only to have it return and uh, not work properly. For example, some people who've lost smell or taste get it back, but then certain things which should not smell or taste bad all of a sudden smell or taste awful. And uh, that's because it, it does something to the uh, the neurons or the neural pathways to the brain, and it, it it kills some something over there. I, I, I'd have to read again what it does, but it uh, it actually causes some damage like that to where maybe when your brain repairs it, it doesn't do it uh, completely correctly, and your brain can start getting incorrect signals about what you're smelling, and that can make something smell bad that really shouldn't. Because remember, when you're smelling something or tasting something, it's actually your brain telling you if it's good or bad. There's no inherent good taste or bad taste. It's what your brain is telling you it is. Like if you ate dog crap and your brain told you it tasted great, then dog crap would taste great to you. It's just your brain tells you it tastes terrible. So that's <laughs> it, it's all about the way your brain interprets it. And uh, sometimes you don't think about that. It just seems like it's obvious what would taste good or smell good or not smell good or not taste good. But when this gets messed up, then you start getting uh, incorrect signals. In fact, 
the tension headaches that I deal with, the 250 tension headaches I deal with per year, including what delayed this show by a day, it's not known exactly why these happen. There's some theories, but it's not really understood very well why these happen. But one of the theories that it's actually an incorrect signal that is being sent from the nerves in your neck, that there's an incorrect signal that something's wrong when it's really not. And that it's basically your mind is imagining that there's a problem. And so your your head is hurting when it actually shouldn't. That's one of the theories. It's very interesting how the brain works. Okay, let's move on to talk about the ugly winter that is coming involving COVID-19. The days are getting shorter. In the Northern Hemisphere, the shortest day is still over three weeks away. That would be December 21st. And it's also getting colder in almost all of the country. This means COVID is probably going to get worse, and that is because people are going to be spending more time indoors. People don't want to be outside when it's dark, when it's cold, or especially both. So the fewer hours there are in the day to go outside, the more time you're going to want to spend inside. And if you are wanting social activity, the opportunity to engage in such social activity outdoors has decreased, both hours-wise and weather-wise, especially in parts of the country where it gets very cold. But even places like Los Angeles, there's a noticeable difference. You have the sun setting in Los Angeles uh, near 5 o'clock. You have uh, the temperature dropping very rapidly when that happens, and sometimes even during the day it's, it's cool. Soon we'll have uh, rain showing up a, a number of days in L.A. And then the rest of the country, a lot of it's getting snow, very, very cold days, of course the short days. Bottom line is if you want to socialize, for the most part, it's going to be indoors. A lot of things you just don't want to do outdoors anymore. So with people spending more time indoors and with the coronavirus, it seems like every day they come to more and more of a belief that this is transmitting indoors. I read a stat the other day, I don't know if it's accurate, but I read a stat the other day that you're 20 times more likely to get the virus indoors than outdoors doing the same thing. So if you hang out with someone who has COVID outdoors... I guess unless you get right up to their face, you have a, a 20 times lower chance to catch COVID from them than if you're with them indoors. I don't know if that's the exact number. That's what I read somewhere. But it definitely is true to a large extent. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but the bottom line is you should avoid socializing with others indoors especially when there's a COVID spike and more and more people have it, then there's a higher chance you're going to run into someone who has it. Because, of course, if you're if you're somewhere where nobody in the room has COVID, then it's safe. It doesn't matter how many people are in there. You could have a 1,000 people in the room if they're all COVID-free. If God could come down and say, all these people are COVID-free, I guarantee it, then it's safe. But if even one of them has COVID, it could be a big problem. So the more people that you encounter and the more COVID cases are, that are out there, then there's a higher chance you're going to get it, especially indoors. Also, don't be fooled by temperature checks or surface cleaning. This isn't very useful because uh, usually people only get the fever once they're already feeling crappy anyway and kind of have an idea they have it. And 
a lot of times they're not even in the mood to go out anywhere. So those that are transmitting it the most are usually pre-symptomatic, ones who are going to get symptoms within a few days but don't have them yet, don't feel bad yet. And, and in fact, that's how Master Scaler transmitted it to his friend Ryan. His Ken felt fine the day he saw Ryan. He had no idea COVID was coming. And Ryan caught it, and then two days later, Ken showed symptoms and felt like crap. So temperature checks aren't going to help with that because they're only going to show up when you've had COVID enough to start making the, the fever appear. And by then, you probably don't want to go out anyway. It will keep out the few people who say, screw it, I'm going to show up anyway, even though I'm sick, and F everybody else, and I'm selfish. But other than that, uh, it, the, the temperature checks don't do very much. It's kind of a false sense of security. So really, it's very tough to know who has COVID and who doesn't have COVID around you, because they'll feel fine. When they're most contagious, they're going to feel fine. So the more people that you have indoors with you, in, I'm talking about people who don't live with you from different households, the higher chance it is that you're going to catch COVID from them. And with people spending more and more time indoors, that's what's going to happen. That's why the flu gets worse during the winter months. That's why colds spread more during the winter months. In fact, here's a bit of trivia for you. Why is a cold called a cold? You might think it's because you often have chills with a cold. And maybe that's why people started calling it that. No, it's not. At first, it was believed that the cold weather itself was somehow getting you sick. It was not a virus, they thought, a long time ago. They just thought cold weather makes you sick. And the way this was determined was that it seemed to mostly happen in the winter. So, okay, it's winter. What happens in the winter? It gets cold. What happens, people seem to catch this illness where they uh, their nose gets stuffed up and they have a sore throat and, and everything else that comes with it. So it's got to be that. When the weather gets cold, it'll, this will just spontaneously happen to you. Well, that was learned to not be true. But it is true that people get colds more often in the winter, and that's why, because they're indoors more and colds spread more often indoors. Though it seems like colds spread uh, both by surfaces and through air transmission, where it seems like COVID is much more of, a, of an air uh, virus than something that tr transmits on surfaces. But other than that, the, you know, the concept's generally the same. What can you take away from this? Well, first of all, we can expect that the increasing numbers are going to get worse, especially in areas where people are going to spend more time indoors because it's uh, very cold and dark. And it's kind of a vicious cycle that with more people having it, it then causes even more people to have it because there's more people spreading it. Now, eventually, this kind of uh, burns through those it's going to spread to and then there's fewer people for it to jump to and the numbers go back down. But don't expect that to happen for a while, especially in areas which haven't been hit that hard yet where there's a lot of people still who don't have it and who it can easily spread to. The way it starts to go down is when a bunch of people who are going out are the ones who already had it and then they can't spread it to each other. But we are seeing some spikes again in some places that were hit very hard by it. And I'll explain shortly why I think that is. I still believe that it mostly runs through places very badly once and then goes down a good deal. But uh, it also 
can have second and third spikes later on for reasons I'll get into shortly. But these are important things to know, and you've got to take it seriously, and you've got to understand where the real risk is and isn't. But an ugly winter is coming, and I'd be very surprised if it doesn't. I'd be very surprised if we didn't have a very bad January and February and December with COVID until the vaccine comes out and maybe we'll start to put a dent into this. But that's gonna the, the vaccine's going to have its own issues with people not wanting to take it or not wanting to take a second dose, especially because the news has come out that the vaccine is not very pleasant. It's not like you get a shot and it hurts a little bit and it's gone. Basically, it feels like you have COVID for a day or two, <laughs> especially the second dose. Apparently, the first dose is uh, you, you feel it, but it's not terrible. And the second dose uh, is pretty bad. And there's a concern, though, that after the first dose, which already makes people feel sick, they'll say, you know, I, I don't want to go back for the second one, especially when they start hearing the second one's worse and people aren't going to get the second dose, which is not going to protect them as much. It's, apparently, the second dose is very important, that once you get that, you're in pretty good shape. I'm talking about the two that are with uh, the two best ones, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. So there may be a problem with cooperation. People who don't want to get sick, because you will get sick from it. Apparently, a very high incidence of people getting sick from it. And people who get sick the first time and don't want to continue with the second time. So that's, uh, they, they didn't want to announce this at first. They were like Pfizer and Moderna was like, oh, look how well we're doing. Like, uh, doesn't it make people sick? Uh, yeah, it, it does, but it gets better in a day or two. What does it feel like? It kind of feels like you have COVID for a day or two, but it gets better. It doesn't kill people. It just, you know, it just makes you feel really sick for a day or two. <laughs> so I'm not looking forward to that. That'll be crappy. At least you can look forward and say it's going to be gone. At least, like, you know, like one of the, wisest things Tom Petty ever said is the waiting is the hardest part. And when you don't know what's ahead, that's the worst. Like you just don't know when it's going to be over when you're sick and you don't know how bad it's going to get. If you have an idea of that, at least uh, it's more tolerable. And at least with that, with, with a vaccine, you'll probably have an idea that it's going to be gone in a day or two. I guess that has been what happened to most people, but yeah, you'll probably get sick from taking the vaccine. Anyway, uh, the numbers in the U S They're consistently getting more than 150,000 verified cases per day, consistently more than 1,000, and one day actually 2,000 cases per day, which result in death. And uh, states that are particularly hard hit at the moment, Illinois still pretty bad, though not quite as bad as before. You have the Dakotas getting slammed, even though their raw numbers don't look that bad. You have to realize they have a very small population. And uh, Minnesota is not good, Tennessee, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, they're all getting it pretty badly because these are places without giant populations where they're getting very big COVID numbers. Alabama, pretty bad. A lot of states are getting it badly. California's had a spike, but they still have a huge population. So per person, it's not... uh, it's not horrible, but it's, it has spiked up and it's starting to become a problem again. California never had a tremendous COVID problem. It spiked up somewhat in the late summer, then went back down. Now it's gone back up. Uh, the deaths seem to be happening in uh, Illinois, Michigan, and Texas for the most part. That's where, for some reason, a lot more people are dying. Florida, too. In case you believe this is because of governors not enforcing mask mandates and shutdowns, uh, no. 
Like, Illinois has been pretty strict, and they're having a horrible problem. And, and people aren't being honest about that. Like, uh, Illinois has been much worse than Florida. And uh, recently they've been much worse, and even overall. If you want to say, well, Florida had its problem earlier, so it's spiking up again, but Illinois didn't have that first wave like Florida did. True, but deaths per million population, Illinois, is worse than Florida. But you hear in the media how awful Florida is because the media wants you to think any Republican-controlled state is mishandling this and isn't taking it seriously, and the Democrats are very responsible in following the science. Well, explain why the worst states hit are Democratic states. New Jersey is the one that's the absolute worst, with almost 2,000 deaths per million. New York, right behind it, 1,772 deaths per million. Illinois, 1,013 deaths per million. So these these are Democratic-run states. And uh, I'm not even blaming the Democratic government. I'm just saying that there, there isn't a simple answer to this. This isn't uh, uh, have mask mandates, have shutdowns, do well. It's, it's not that simple. And anyone who thinks it is, is wrong. So it's going to be tough everywhere. Some places worse than others, but it's going to be tough everywhere over the next few months. And you have to be careful on a personal level, unless you've already had it, and I guess you're okay. But if you haven't had it yet, then be careful and understand that the danger is getting it through the air indoors. So you can go into a place. They can be great about cleaning. They can have 20 people wiping everything down with disinfectant, and you can have temperature checks, and you can have social distancing. You can have all this stuff, which looks so safe, and then you get COVID anyway and go, how did this happen? It happened because there's a lot of people in there, and it transmits through the air, and it transmits through the ventilation system, and when a heater kicks on, and spreads it around the room, that's going to happen to you. Everybody could be wearing a mask. It may still happen to you. So the solution is just to avoid it. Just don't put yourself in those situations. And if you must occasionally put yourself in that situation, then fine. Had some idiot ask me on the forum, if, if you care so much about this, then why did you go have a root canal? Well... I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I had to. The root canal couldn't wait until COVID gets better. But where I do have a choice, I do not want to put myself at risk. Which brings me to my next topic. Why is this getting worse? Aside from what I just said about the winter time, the shorter days, the colder weather. Aside from that, why is this getting worse? Why are we not seeing people behaving responsibly. And I have an answer for you. You may not like the answer, but I have an answer for you. That is, the messaging from the government and the media has been dishonest and confusing. And when you have that, then you start to notice contradictions, and then people tune it all out. Because if you keep lying to somebody, and then they hear nothing but lies, or they can prove lies, or they think it's highly likely you were lying to them, you can't say, oh, 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 no, 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 now I'm telling the truth, or oh, I've been telling the truth the whole way, you just misunderstood. Like, if you get the, if the belief about what you have been saying is that you've been telling a lot of lies, they don't have to prove this in a court of law that you were lying. If the impression was that you have been lying, at least somewhat lying, they're just not going to trust you. They're not going to believe you. They're going to tune out everything you said. It's like, the boy who cried wolf. Remember the story of the boy who cried wolf? That every time he kept saying a wolf was there and nobody believed him because he kept lying about it for attention. 
And then when he finally saw a wolf and tried to warn everybody, everybody's like, ah, there's no wolf here. This guy's pulled this on us so many times. We're not falling for it this time. And the wolf came and ate people like that. That, that, that was the story you heard as a kid. Well, it's kind of happening here. Not exactly like that, but the same concept applies. The problem is that this virus has been politicized. And it has also been manipulated because they're trying to get the public to do what they think is right. And sometimes they feel, well, the only way to get people to act the right way is to lie to them. Because if we tell them the truth, then they're probably gonna, they're probably gonna act in a way that we judge as irresponsible. So we, we have to tell them what we think will make them react in a way that uh, will be best for the public good. And while that can seem noble and that can seem like the right thing to do before you think about it too much, what happens is eventually people realize the lies and then they don't want to listen to you anymore. And then they really do stupid things. So that's why when you want to get good behavior out of people, especially the mass public, you need to be honest with them. You need to level with them. And you need to not politicize it. And if you do that, if you if you don't do that, if you if you do politicize it, if you lie, if you mislead, you may think you're tricking people into receiving the message you want, or voting for the political candidate you want, or behaving in a certain responsible manner that they otherwise wouldn't. But as soon as they realize you're lying, that's all at the window. So let me be more specific. The problem is we've had a lot of contradictory messaging, confusing messaging, and people haven't been leveled with. And every time they find out something new that contradicts what they were led to believe, they get pissed off. Let's look at masking. I've talked about this on the show before, but let's look at masking. I will agree that masking is probably effective, that masking does prevent the disease from transmitting as much and may or may not prevent you from getting it as much if you're wearing one. But even let's say it does help a little bit with that too. Masking has been pushed so hard by the media as the end-all be-all of virus prevention. And, you know, Trump didn't push it. Trump has been mocking people wearing masks. So therefore, people haven't been masking and this is spreading around and it's all Trump's fault. He's awful, awful and bad. And this is why he lost. And this is why we all had to vote him out of office. And you know what the problem with that messaging is? It makes people believe that you wear a mask, you're safe. So I talked about this on a previous show. That's happening somewhat. People believing that the mask protects them rather than it's something to lower your chances of getting it and of transmitting it, but it uh, is by no means something that's going to stop you from getting the virus. That you're, It's still very dangerous to be around people who have the virus if you have a mask on especially a cloth mask, not, not a, an N95 mask, which very few people have. You, you have just a, a regular mask like most people wear. That's not going to stop COVID from infecting you, if, if, if for the most part, if there's somebody nearby who has COVID or if it's transmitting in the air in some way. The media doesn't want to say that because then people will say, well, if, not, if it's not stopping it from infecting me, well, F it, then I'm not going to wear a mask. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. I, I don't feel like it, so screw it. You know, it's not doing that much for me. I'll go without it. So they they feel, well, the smart thing to do, the, the responsible thing to do is to put out the message, masks are so important, they're going to keep you healthy. And then, unfortunately, you get the people who think once they have a mask on, they're supermen and they can't get infected. That causes them to take more risks. Oops. But there's other problems with the messaging. What about the hypocrisy? of a lot of the politicians who say, don't do this, don't do that, and then 
news reports come out and you see that the politicians are actually doing what they told you not to. Gavin Newsom in California was putting on all these restrictions for Thanksgiving and shutting things down. And then you see he is at a very, very, very expensive meal with lobbyists of all people in a closed room with a sliding glass door, nobody wearing a mask. He says no more than three households together during Thanksgiving and everybody should eat outdoors. And then you see him at a restaurant with like a dozen different people from all different households with no mask on in a closed room. How does that look? Does that look like you could trust Gavin Newsom telling you what's safe and not safe? Why, why isn't he abiding by his own guidelines? He Also, a lot of the schools in California were shut down for a long time. And lo and behold, Gavin Newsom's kids attend a very expensive private school where they have an exemption. And those kids could go to school while the public ones were closed. Well, how does that look? And there's examples of this all over the country. So you start seeing hypocrisy with politicians and you say, I don't believe them because if what they're telling me, what I have to do to be safe, if they're not doing it themselves, then obviously they're lying to me. It must actually be safe. But for whatever reason, they're not telling us the truth. Now, what's really going on is that they just, that these politicians just think they're special and they think, well, It'll be safe if we can get everybody to do this except me. I don't, I'm just one person. I'm not going to affect it. So I, I, I don't want my life affected. And you know, if it's just me and everybody else is behaving properly, well, I've done a good thing. I've, I've got millions of people to do the right thing and I'm just one person doing the wrong thing. So overall, I've done a great job. I deserve, I deserve to get that haircut. I deserve to go to that restaurant. It, it, you can't have that because the word gets out. It spreads like wildfire on social media and it looks awful and people say, screw it. I'm not going to listen anymore. I'm not going to listen to Gavin Newsom. I'm not going to listen to Andrew Cuomo. I'm not going to listen to Lori Lightfoot or Bill de Blasio or any of these politicians who are caught doing hypocritical things. They're just not going to listen. It's another problem. We also have the politicizing of what's safe and not safe. The biggest example, of course, are the riots. The protests, forget the riots. Let's just talk about the protests. The protests, the mass protests. Let's pretend there's no rioting. Let's just say it was all safe and all uh, very peaceful. Okay, mostly peaceful. You see 60,000 people crammed in the streets, shoulder to shoulder. Some have masks on, some don't. And we hear the media say how beautiful it is, how wonderful it is, how lovely it is that these people are all getting together to protest racism and police brutality. You say, well, what, 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 what about COVID though? Oh, it's wonderful they're out there. It's safe. Most of them are wearing masks. It's safe. No one's getting sick out there. Well, that's not true. In several cities, including Los Angeles, the protests were blamed for upticks in COVID. And common sense will tell the observer that if you're not supposed to get together in huge crowds, then why is it okay if people are protesting something that they think is a good cause. It's, a, it's not a woke virus. COVID doesn't say, you know what, I'm not going to affect these people because they're protesting racism and racism is bad, so I'm going to take a holiday from infecting these people. We're, they'll, get, they'll get a pass here. It doesn't work that way. So if getting together in a crowd of 60,000 people shoulder to shoulder is okay for these protests, then 60,000 people shoulder to shoulder should always be okay. Either it's okay or it's not. And you have people on the left saying, well, 
wait a minute, this is outdoors. We're not talking about indoors, we're saying outdoors. So this is safe. You say, okay, then why aren't sporting events open? Why, why can't we? Why, why couldn't uh, fifty-six thousand people go into Dodger Stadium and watch them play the World Series? Why isn't that okay? That's outdoors. And the, yeah, they they start running themselves in circles trying to explain why one is okay and the other is not okay. Why don't we just have tons of outdoor events then if this is safe? The truth is it's not safe, and they know it, but they don't want to admit it. They don't want to criticize people on their own side. They don't want to criticize their own party of being irresponsible. They don't want to take away from this beautiful moment of people getting out there to protest racism. They can't They can't bring themselves to do it. They can't say, yeah, we agree with the cause, but we agree with these people are saying, but we disagree. We, it's just not the right time to do that. If there wasn't a pandemic, great, but they really shouldn't be doing this now. They should be staying at home and protesting on the Internet. The media doesn't want to say that. So instead, the media praises it as great, and it doesn't take a genius to look at that and go, yeah, we can't trust anything they say. If this is safe, then everything I want to do is safe. So you've got to be consistent. The messaging has to be consistent. Now, you can also say the same thing about the right in certain circumstances, that uh, you had uh, the Trump rallies were in an attempt to get reelected. He was holding these big rallies, many of them indoors. Many people not wearing masks. That's not safe. And Trump can't really defend why that's okay. It doesn't make any sense to me why that's okay. And it's not leading by example. It's not leading by behaving responsibly. You've got to, as the president, you have to behave responsibly and you can't hold rallies which are dangerous. And these were dangerous. The left was very dangerous too with their uh, giant protests. That's for sure. But you're also being dangerous holding your rallies and you're the president. So that's a mistake too. So again, people see President Trump holding rallies indoors. They go, wait, what? I don't understand what, then I guess this is all safe, right? We also have the problem with restaurants and other businesses reopening. And they'll try to do performative things like, oh, but only till 10 p.m. You have to close everything by 10 p.m. or 50% capacity. Well, the problem is this sends the wrong message. This makes people believe if they show up wearing a mask and if they have 50% capacity, then it's okay. The restaurant can be open. You can go indoors. You can dine indoors. You can go to a bar indoors. It's okay. As long as, long as these, these little uh, modifications are made, then it's safe. And some people have been asked, like, why are you going to bars? Why are you going to restaurants? Why, why are you doing this? Well, they wouldn't be open if it's not safe, they reply. Well, the truth is that these reopenings were done to save the economy. These were done because these restaurants were going to go under, that people were not going to have jobs that there was an economic disaster to keeping everything closed for months, which is true, and that has to be considered. That can't be ignored. So I'm not even saying everything should be shut down. The problem is, when they reopen, they don't want to admit, hey, we're reopening, but uh, it's kind of dangerous to go in these places. <laughs> There's a good chance you're going to get COVID, even with a mask. Because being indoors anywhere is, is dangerous, and you should know that, but we'll let you guys decide. It, it, they can open if they want, but Know when you go in, there's a much higher chance of getting COVID than not going in. And then from there, see what happens. But instead, there's this, it's like a sin to speak that we're letting them reopen, but it's really not safe. So when things reopen, people 
think that public officials are only reopening things because it must be safe. They wouldn't do it otherwise. Well, yes, they are. They're doing it, but they don't want to admit why they're really doing it. And again, if they're just honest with people, then people could make their own informed decisions, such as a healthy 25-year-old can say, okay, I'm going to go to that bar anyway. You know what? Because I'm 25 and almost nobody my age dies of COVID or even has a very bad experience with it. So I prefer not to get it, but it's not the end of the world if I get it. So I'd rather have a social life. I'm going to go into that bar uh, because I'm 25 years old. And maybe the guy who's 55 years old will say, hmm, they told me that this is open, but to people my age, it's pretty dangerous. So I don't think I'm going to go. Or maybe you'll take the uh, the position, I'm 55, but I want to live life. I'll take the chance. I realize I could die. I realize I could get permanent lung damage or, or other permanent damage that will be very unpleasant or dangerous. But I'm going to take the chance. I just, I'm tired of hiding from it. But at least give everybody the full information about what their risk really is and isn't. And also, which brings me to my next point, be honest with the age groups. I would love to see a survey. I, I don't believe one exists, but I'd love to see a randomized survey where you ask people, how bad is COVID compared to if you're 25 versus 45? And then give them choices. Is it pretty much the same? Is it a little worse than a 45-year-old? Is it somewhat worse? Is it a lot worse? Is it tremendously worse? Like, like have them answer it. And I, I bet a lot of them would say either it's the same or a little worse for a 45-year-old. It's not true. It's very far from the truth. But the media has not wanted to be honest about this because they want the young people to cooperate. The media has felt, look, young people are, are just, they're going to ignore this. They're not going to socially distance. They're not going to cooperate with lockdowns unless we scare them. We have to scare them into submission. Otherwise, they're going to say this doesn't affect us and we're going to be selfish and we're going to do what we want because we don't like being locked down. So the only way to get these 25-year-olds to comply and these 20-year-olds to comply is put out horror stories of these healthy 22-year-olds who were super outliers in reality that uh, all of a sudden got COVID and either died or came close to dying or uh, had a horrendous experience and really scare them into believing that they're vulnerable too. And I've had so many idiotic young people tell me, and like I'll say to them, hey, I, I wish I was you. I wish I was 23 like you. I wouldn't be worried about this. What? No, anybody can be affected by this. Anybody can get this. Anybody can really have a terrible experience and die from this. And I go, no. They can, but it's very unlikely at your age. I go, do you have a pre-existing condition? No. But uh, yeah, anything can happen. I go, yeah, anything can happen exactly. But your chance of being like really sickened or damaged from this or killed by this is tiny. And mine is reasonable. So it's a huge difference between me and you. They, they just haven't heard of this. They just don't know that there's a tremendous difference. Because most things, it's not that way. Most other illnesses, it affects both age groups about the same, 25 and 45. Not this one. Be honest with people. Why? So they can make informed decisions. If you're not honest with them, this causes everybody to start doubting that what you're saying is true. Anything else you say, they start to doubt. This has had, unfortunately, the reverse effect of what they were intending. By trying to scare 25-year-olds into not taking risks because they don't want them spreading it and trying to get them to cooperate with lockdowns, they have not wanted to say the tremendous difference between young people and middle-aged people. And this has led middle-aged people to believe, okay, well, uh, not much is happening to people who aren't old, so I'm safe. 
and middle-aged people underestimate their risk. And I, I talk to people my age all the time who underestimate their risk, and I, I try to insist to them, you do not want this if you're over 40. You may end up fortunate and not get it, and not get a bad version of it and escape without any permanent damage. And hopefully Master Scaler and Eric Benzamokin are, are two among that. But you also may not be. And it's not super, super unlucky if you're not. There are a lot of middle-aged people who now have permanent lung damage because of COVID. Healthy ones. Formerly healthy ones. And many of them did not know that that was something that wasn't too unlikely. That wasn't a fluke that they got that. Had they known it beforehand that this was a real risk, then they might have behaved more responsibly. But they just didn't know. Or if they heard, they kind of dismissed it because it wasn't pushed enough. Why? Because they want the young people to cooperate, so they don't want to uh, say, young people, th- this is what happens, middle-aged people, this is what happens. They didn't want to say that, so it's just kind of like, okay, if you're old, you're going to die, watch out, everybody else, uh, um, horror story, horror story, horror story, but then you don't know anybody personally who died from this your age, so you, then you start to say, I'm tuning this out. That's the problem. You, you're, you're 45, and you don't know any other 45-year-olds who were critical and, and almost to death or who died from it, you go, yeah, I, I don't even know anybody my age who died from this. So, or who had a really horrendous experience that they, uh, um, to where like they, they came close to death. So you know what? Screw it. And you're not covering what the reality is of the situation of what the average person who is middle age, who gets this, who like what effects they can really expect long term and, uh, short, medium term. There's other, there's also the issue of blame Trump. And I, I talked about that a little bit before, but I, I, I want to say this again because it's so important. If the basic message is that Trump caused this, we have this situation because of Trump, then if you behave opposite to what Trump wants or has said, then you're safe. And it misleads people. It misleads people into thinking that they're safe. And it misleads people into hoping that, uh, uh, into believing that once Biden takes office, this is all going to change. And yeah, if the vaccine comes out and is widely adopted and widely used, it will change somewhat, but uh, maybe go away. But not because of Trump being in office or, or Biden being in office. If Trump won again, uh, we would have the same situation. But there, there's too much politicizing. Anything Trump says, then the media wants the opposite. We also have people behaving in irresponsible fashion because they're on the right and they want to go against whatever the left says. So if the left says to wear masks, they say, no, I don't want to wear a mask. It's a violation of my freedom. If the the left says COVID is very serious, then people on the right say, no, it's not serious. It, it's just, it's, it's nothing. It's kind of like the flu. It's being exaggerated. They're exaggerating the numbers. It's all a big lie. It's all a big conspiracy. It's a conspiracy to eventually inject us with a vaccine with with 5G receptors in it. I mean, I've heard so much nonsense. I've been sent videos that are nonsense. And a lot of that comes from the right. And it bothers me because I'm on the right and I don't believe these things. And it's stupid, stupid stuff. So there has been a tendency on the right to want to go against whatever the left says. And then the left goes against whatever the right says. So each side has their point to prove. The left has their point that Trump messed everything up, masking is the end-all, be-all, lockdowns save lives, 
and can pretty much be done with very little consequence. And uh, since Trump doesn't want all this stuff and he's an evil, horrible, no good, bad, no good, bad, bad man, then do what we say here, which is the opposite of what Trump wants, and everything will be great. And also the riots don't spread it, or the, the, the protests don't spread it, because, uh, you know, it's, it's a woke virus. That's what the left says. The protests are beautiful. That's not what's spreading it. The Trump rally is doing it. That's the idiocy out of the left. The, the right's idiocy is, no, it's no big deal. This is being exaggerated. That's a, it's got a 98, 99.8% survival rate. Why are we panicking? Why are we shutting down the economy? This is a hoax. This is uh, a, an extreme exaggeration. This is something that was pushed by the media to make Trump lose. It's a minor thing that's being greatly exaggerated to beat Trump. That's not true either. We shouldn't wear masks because it's a violation of our freedom. No, it's not. It's just a smart thing to do. And I try to reason with people on both sides, and I get nowhere. I try to reason with the people on the left. I say, explain why there's no correlation to places where masks are enforced and where lockdowns are taking place and the amount of COVID death they have. Or people saying, well, the U.S. is the worst everywhere. Look how bad the U.S. is and how great the rest of the world is. No, look at, look at Western Europe. Why is it so bad in some of these places? And look, look at Illinois. Why is that so bad if they've been locking down so much and, and have mask mandates? Like, why, why is that? How's that happening? How come Norway didn't wear masks and they, they've had great results? Like, you, you've got to admit you don't understand a lot of this. And then, yeah, I, I just get stupid responses that won't acknowledge this. Or I'll ask them what, what, uh, what was suggested that we do early on that Trump didn't want to do that would have saved lives. And nobody can answer that either. Then I ask people on the right, uh, why are you citing this 99.8% survival rate when this is not just about survival? This is also about permanent damage to people that will leave them with very unpleasant or dangerous conditions for the rest of their lives. So you, you live through it, but you have permanent lung damage and you're, and you're 45 years old. That's a crappy way to live the rest of your life. You can't just say, well, they survived. It's like nothing. It's not like the flu. You get over it and it's done. And, and also, uh, this 98, 9.8% survival rate is not even true. If you look at number of cases uh, and number of deaths, that's not even the right number. And this is not the uh, a trivial matter like you're making it out to be. And there's a lot of middle-aged people who are getting permanent damage from this. And this, this, and and why are you not wearing a mask? Why we, we don't know for sure how much masking helps, and I'm sure the left is exaggerating. It. I agree with you there, but uh, you're saying it doesn't help at all. I don't believe that either. Why why not just wear it? Forget whether it's uh, a violation of your rights. Why not just do it voluntarily because it's the right thing to do? And if it, if it can help with the matter, then people should just do it. So like, I can't reason with that side either. And then about the vaccine, I'm being told all this this conspiracy nonsense with the 5G, and I've, I've tried to reason with these people saying this is BS. I said the only reasonable objection to the vaccine is that there has not been enough time to test how safe it is. And that pe- young people who don't want to take it are completely reasonable. Parents who don't want to give it to their kids are p- completely reasonable. And middle-aged people who want to wait and see and see how uh, what happens to people who take it, that, uh, that it really is safe, they want to give it a bit more time, they are reasonable too. That's a reasonable approach. 
it's not reasonable to say that uh, there's all kinds of things in the vaccine that are put there on purpose to, for the government to control you or change your DNA or, or put in uh, 5G receptors to monitor you. I mean, that's uh, that stuff is not true. It's absolutely not true. But you know how all this happens? It's, it's because there has been poor messaging. It got politicized. It was used as a weapon to try to make Trump look bad. It was used as a reverse weapon by the right to oppose anything that could possibly make Trump look bad. So they had to completely deny that it's a big deal. And the media tried too hard to manipulate people's behavior and impressions by constantly telling lies or doing contradictory things or saying contradictory things. And, you know, you you don't give consistent messaging. You say things that don't make a lot of sense. And people just tune you out. Some of you may remember while growing up that sometimes your parents would not want you to do certain things and you'd say, well, why can't I? And they'd give a really piss poor reason. Well, I just said so. Well, I just don't like it. I, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's safe. Whatever it is, if, if you're not buying into their explanation, like if you're a very little kid, there's not much you can do. But once you're like a teenager, if, if you don't buy what your parents are telling you, you think they're full of crap, You'll just do it anyway. And in fact, you'll start to give them less credit when they tell you not to do other things because it seems like they're just completely unreasonable. And that's the way people are treating COVID. And if, if you don't agree with me here, no matter what side you're on, you've got to ask yourself, why do you have the views you do? And is it possible that some of the things you say or you believe or you support uh, would seem to be contradictory or fail the sanity check. If you if you say that uh, you shouldn't wear masks and this is nothing and this is like the flu and then all available data shows that's not true, why should anyone take you seriously? And why should anyone take anything that people who are agreeing with you say seriously? And if, if you're trying to say that the protests with 60,000 people shoulder to shoulder, someone not wearing masks and yelling and screaming, are not spreading COVID, but that somehow every other event outside is, and that it's not safe to return to this stuff, and we need to shut down everything, including things like parks, but somehow 60,000 people jammed in the streets of, uh, of New York and L.A. and Philadelphia and, and, and Minneapolis, somehow that's okay. Because that's a good cause, and somehow that's not spreading COVID. How does that make any sense? And how come the media was saying that? How can people trust this? It's insane. It's absurd. And if you if you believe all this crap, and I, I've seen idiots try to say, "Oh, look at the study out of UC San Diego that shows uh, that this actually yeah, didn't spread the," and, and and you read it, and it's it's such garbage. And even someone who's not uh, college educated could read it and see all the flaws in their methods. You could see that everyone started, they started the quote study with a conclusion in mind before they even did the study and then massaged it to end up that way. There are so many errors in the way they did this. There's so many uh, false conclusions they jumped to. There's, there's so much uh, that's uh, scientifically and statistically incorrect. The whole thing's a joke. If you're, if you're sharing those studies just so you can say the protests were great and not dangerous, then you're being just as dishonest as the COVID deniers. If you can't criticize your own party 
and people within your own party and the way they've been handling it, then you're not being honest. And if you think the left is the one that follows the science all the time and the right are dumb rubes who just do dangerous things because they're stupid or, uh, or, or believe it's their right to be stupid and they're too conspiracy-minded and ignorant, and if only people could follow the science like your left-wing heroes, you're, you're also a fool because that's not true and the left hasn't been following the science. They follow it when it's convenient and when it's not, then they make excuses. And if you look carefully, you'll see that's what's happening. If you think I'm wrong, then explain this to me. Text me, 775-372-8355. Explain to me why it's okay to have 60,000 people outside protesting for shoulder to shoulder, but why we can't have mass outdoor events. Why not? If that's safe, we should have mass events outdoors. We should start reforming life to where we can have mass crowds of people outdoors and it'll be safe. Why not? It'll improve the economy. It'll help people be uh, less depressed during all the lockdown stuff. If it's totally safe to have mass crowds outside, let's do it. Why can't we? Explain the difference. You can't, because it's not true. That's not what the media said. If you wonder why we have people acting stupid, it's a combination of not understanding and just not believing anymore. Because the media hasn't been honest. And I've said at the very beginning... Give us all the numbers, give us all the stats, give us the truth about what's dangerous and what's not, not what feels dangerous, not what feels safe, but what actually is what is dangerous, what is safe. Tell us which behaviors are likely to get you COVID and which ones are not. It doesn't matter if, if it's a woke protest and if, if the cops are racist and awful and we've got to protest them because they, they hurt or kill black people and uh, it's okay to say, I totally agree with everything in the cause, but... This is not safe to do. Totally okay to say that. But a lot of people don't feel that way. And it's totally okay to say this is a very serious matter and people should wear masks and not worry about their rights and people should be careful and they shouldn't just dismiss this as the flu or something that was uh, pushed by the media to hurt Trump. It's okay to take this seriously. You can be a conservative and take this seriously. I'm not any less conservative because I'm taking this seriously. And if you think that just because it was used to hurt Trump that it means it's not really happening, then you're not being honest either. But there's a lot of people are very unreasonable about this. Oh, and if you, if you think you can trust fact-checkers, going back to our discussion we had with uh, Bart Hansen, if you think you can trust fact-checkers to show you the, the true information about COVID and the false information about COVID, I'll ask you again this. How come you've never seen a single fact-check against the left? It never a single warning label on social media about someone from the left saying something that's not true. Not one. Show me one. You, you think it's because it's only the right that lies and, and, and spreads misinformation? Or you think maybe there's some bias here? So forget the fact-checking and the, the labeling and all this other nonsense. It's BS. When we start getting uh, neutral fact-checkers, if such a thing can even exist, then I'll consider it. All I'm asking is for honest messaging. I don't care if it helps Trump, hurts Trump, helps Republicans, helps Democrats. Put out the damn truth. Okay, we're going to do a final topic here. I want to talk about the WSOP 2021 and what we're likely to expect from it. It's kind of strange to think about. We're going to have a main event, stupid main event, mostly online, a little bit live. For some reason, a second main event in 2020. 
And it's hard to think of 2021 because we're actually sitting here in 2020. World Series of Poker 2021 is many months away. And probably the vaccine will be widely distributed by then, whichever vaccine it is. I'm guessing it's going to be the Pfizer and Moderna ones, but who knows. The vaccine will probably be in wide use. We'll probably be in better COVID shape by that point than we are today. So, so uh, maybe you're thinking of WSOB 2021 as the grand return of the World Series of Poker when everything's back to normal. And I'm here to tell you, no, it will not be. Too soon. It's kind of hard to think of the timetable under normal circumstances because we didn't have a regular World Series this year. But do you know that we're not that far away from the time of year when we hear about the WSOP 2021 schedule? Do you know that in some years that uh, in December they actually start putting out some information about that? Not like a full schedule, but they start putting out some information and then it starts uh, getting disseminated in the coming like month, month and a half after that. We're not that far from that. And that's what makes the World Series seem closer is when they're already giving out the information for that year's upcoming events or the next year's upcoming events. Remember, the World Series would typically begin in late May. So once we get to January 1st, we're less than five months away from the World Series of Poker. And we're almost at December 1st. So, okay, it's, it's about six months until the World Series of Poker 2021 would normally begin. Maybe it won't be on the normal dates this year. Maybe they'll delay it by a little bit. But let's just go with the assumption that they're going to do it on the normal dates. That would be only six months between now, when COVID is pretty horrible, to six months from now, when it's gone? I don't think so. It's not going to be gone. Even with a vaccine, it's not going to be gone. So it's likely going to be a gigantic mess. Now, let's say the vaccine is out and is accessible for everybody. And let's say it had been for a month or two by the time this World Series of Poker starts. What do you think will be a requirement there? Do you think it might be that you are vaccinated or have a positive antibody test to show them? which I'm sure there will be some sort of system in place that uh, people can use to prove that they're either vaccinated or have the antibodies. So do you think that there will be something like that in place and that this will be used to make people feel confident that they can go there and play with other vaccinated or people who already had COVID and got over it to where they won't feel sick, so where they won't feel that uh, they're playing against those who aren't vaccinated and never had it before and could easily be spreading it? Of course, they're probably going to require that. I'm not sure about this, and they're not going to talk about it now. But there's a good chance that there will be some kind of requirement to show either vaccination or antibodies. And that if you can't show that, you can't play. That already is going to be a logistical mess. And I think that's going to add another layer of big lines and other problems there. But it's not just that. I don't know if by that point it can run normally with nine-handed tables. It may be some of these awful tables where you have those stupid uh, dividers between every seat and only six-handed, and people have to wear masks the entire time they play. Because if we still have some kind of COVID problem, if it's like pretty much eradicated by then, yeah, this won't happen. But if we still have some kind of COVID problem, which is very likely because I think we're going to have a healthy portion of the 
population that will not have taken the vaccine. Healthy meaning a large portion, not that they're healthy, but that there's going to be like maybe half the country that will refuse the vaccine. And therefore, COVID will still be spreading. And even the best vaccines have uh, you know, 5%, 10% in the best case scenario that can still get it even when they're vaccinated. So it's not like we can just ignore COVID at that point. So there's going to be all kinds of precautions and all kinds of rules and all, probably some laws in place. And you're going to ha- probably have to sit there the long tournament days with a mask on, which sucks. The whole thing's going to be a mess. And if I haven't already had COVID by then, which I hope I won't, I'm not going to go. One, because it'll be a crappy experience, even if I don't catch COVID. And two, that's still like a place where there's a good chance you're going to get COVID. I mean, it's just even with the vaccines and you have to prove you have the vaccine and you have the, uh, the antibody tests and all that, there'll still be those there that are not uh, helped by the vaccine and will be able to get COVID and spread COVID. And all it takes is for them to go somewhere else after the World Series, like a strip club, whatever, catch it there, and then uh, then bring it right back to the tournament, and then uh, I can get it there. And even with the dividers, that, that prevents people from sneezing on me or breathing on me, but not COVID hanging in the air or being spread through the ventilation system and getting me sick. And sitting there hours after hours after hours after hours in these events, I think that there is a decent chance I could get COVID there, and I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to play the World Series of Poker if there is any kind of realistic COVID danger. And I think even if they delay WSOP 2021, maybe two, three months, let's say they even hold it in October, I don't think it's going to be quite ready then. I think this mess is going to continue throughout 2021. And I think in 2022, we're going to see one of two things. Either COVID is under control and pretty much taken care of, and it'll be in the rearview mirror, much like the swine flu is, and we can breathe a sigh of relief, or it will have mutated and uh, it will be around forever. And we're not going to be able to get rid of it. It'll also be part of life we have to deal with. And at that point, everyone's going to have to decide what do we return to, what don't we return to. Like, what what is life living with, with COVID forever where you have to take a vaccine each year and hope it works? What is that like? And we'll have to cross that bridge when we get there. Right now, we're kind of in hope mode. Like, maybe the vaccine can do away with this. Maybe we can just get herd immunity, and this is just gone and done. And we can just look back and say, wow, that was a crappy time. But I think we're not going to be able to do that until the summer of 2022. I think even the beginning of 2022, we won't even be there. I think it's like mid-2022 is realistically the earliest time we can look and really be done with it and not worry about COVID and say, this is completely over. Which again, it may not be, but if it is going to be, I think it's going to take that long. So... WSOP 2021 is not going to look anything like WSOP 2019. That is my prediction. And I think it's going to have a smaller crowd. It's going to have a lot less participation, a lot of people who are not going to come play. Keep in mind, the average age of the players at the WSOP is around my age. It's not a young series anymore. It's a middle-aged series on average. There's some younger people, there's older people, and you're going to start seeing a lot of people staying home if COVID is still something that they have to worry about, or if the things you have to go through because of COVID, such as wearing a mask all day while you play and having everything be six-handed in those stupid uh, plexiglass dividers, if that's the way you've got to play, a lot of people are going to say, no, this isn't the type of poker I want. So I would not count on the 2021 World Series being normal. I'm really thinking 2022 is the next time I play it. 
And I think that'll be the next time it's really the World Series we know. And you know what? There's a chance it may never be. It's a chance that uh, they're going to have to think about what do they do with these large tournaments to prevent COVID from spreading. If COVID never really goes away, what is the approach they take? Because if if I've got to go and sit in a mask all day, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not. It's not worth it to me. It's just uncomfortable. And this isn't like from a standpoint of, oh, I, I think it's a violation of my rights. I just don't like it. So I don't have to do it. I won't do it. This is going to happen. I just won't show up. Just because something might be safer doesn't mean that I have to enjoy doing it or that it can't cook out the enjoyment of what I'm doing. It definitely would cook out the enjoyment. So when we get to New Year's 2021, which is a month away, do not breathe that sigh of relief. Ah, I'm glad 2020 is over. This is going to be a great new year. Probably not. Probably not. There's going to be a lot going on in 2021 that I would not describe as great. And we have a lot of pain ahead of us. And perhaps a lot of fallout from the economic consequences of this, which we haven't quite seen yet. There's a lot of uh, forward-looking behavior right now in the U.S. economy. A lot of action in the economy, which is based upon the belief that uh, soon we'll be past this. Soon this is going to be done. But if it starts to look like it's not going to be done soon, then we're going to start to see the truth about the economy, and a lot's going to start collapsing. I'm not saying the whole country's going to collapse. I'm just saying that a lot of the economic consequences, which we haven't even seen yet, are going to start appearing. And this V-shaped recovery that everyone's hoping for may not occur. There's certain industries that may be decimated, including the casino industry. It's possible that if COVID never really disappears, that going to casinos will just not be a big thing anymore. That people just won't want to do it anymore. There's some things that just fall out of favor very quickly, which were once big, sometimes very abruptly. How would you like to have owned a disco in the early 80s? I don't mean 1980, I mean like in 82, 83, 84. How well do you think that would have done? That maybe if you converted it to something else, but people uh, were very into that scene in the late 70s, and then it died very abruptly. And all of a sudden it wasn't something people wanted anymore. There's been a lot of things which have changed, some things abruptly that have were successful for a long time, even the Greyhound racing we talked about. So don't just assume the casino industry will never die or it will never contract. It might if COVID makes it something that people just don't really want to do. Same with buffets. That's another good example. It's a much smaller industry than casino industry, but the buffet industry could be mostly done. And uh, a lot of things like concerts and others where there's a lot of people crowding together, especially indoors, that may just seem unappealing to most people. I think concerts, the greatest chance to have a comeback is that it's mostly younger people going to concerts and they're at least likely to suffer the uh, negative consequences of COVID. So if we get to the point where everybody's just got to kind of risk it if they go out and we're no longer in the mode of let's, pre- let's prevent the spread while we're waiting for a vaccine... If, if we're just kind of in acceptance mode, like, yeah, it's going to keep being here, and uh, if, if you want to go out, you're risking it, that's when the young people are going to say, all right, well, no problem, we'll just risk it, because it's not going to really hurt us that much. So like things like concerts can start returning if, if uh, they've got a young crowd. The, the cruise industry, another one, that's one that's going to get clobbered. 
is it's mostly old people. Exactly the wrong demographic during COVID to try to want to get together. And uh, I think the cruise industry, which was doing quite well for a while, that could be forever decimated. They haven't even been running cruises in ages. Keep stalling. I keep getting these emails from Norwegian. Okay, we canceled uh, everything through this date. We're going to sail on this date. Oh, no, no, we're canceling that too. Oh, no, we're canceling that too. No, we pushed it further back, further back, further back. The truth is, as long as COVID's out there, cruising just isn't safe. Cruises are the perfect environment for it to spread. Cruise ships were not built for something like this. And no matter what you do to them, you're not, you're not going to fix that. Especially with a population that's going to die on board and with a, a very uh, minor medical facilities on there. You have like a little doctor's office and that's about it. You can't, there's nothing on a cruise ship that could, that's capable of caring for like a lot of dying people at once. And that's going to be a persistent problem with cruise ships until COVID is really not a thing anymore. Even the vaccine's not going to do it. Like let's take a ninety-five percent effective vaccine. Well, on a cruise ship with thousands of people, you're still going to have a lot of people who might get this and and, and die from it. With given the uh, age group that's on there. Now maybe cruises can come back with a younger demographic, but that'd be a pretty big shift, especially with some of the cruise brands, which uh, like Crystal, for example, a high-end cruise brand. The average age of a crystal passenger is like 70. Good luck with crystal returning and being what they were before. Good luck to them. Like if I went on a crystal cruise, everyone would say, hey, youngster, what are you doing here? I'm serious. Like I would, I would stick out there as a kid. It would be one of the few places I could go and just like feel like I'm the, I'm the baby. I'm the young guy. Among all my elders. I'm the young guy who can't relate to the old people. <laughs> that's, that's what I would be on a crystal cruise. Actually, I, there was this episode of the Cleveland show back when that was on, where Cleveland, uh, he went to a retirement home and pretended to be old. And then he noticed that like all the sports they'd have for activities for the old people, he was dominating them because these were like really old people and he's like a middle-aged guy and he's just killing everyone on there. I kind of felt like that on, as one cruise I went on. It wasn't a crystal cruise. It was a Norwegian cruise, but it happened to be an itinerary that attracted a lot of old people. And I was like, there were very few people that were on board that were younger than me or, or anywhere near my age. Like, everybody was over 60. And at the time, I was like 43. And like, like anything on board that was competitive in that way, I just felt like I had a gigantic edge because I was so much younger than everybody else. And sometimes it was annoying because, like, I walking through the hallways, everyone's like super slow <laughs> because the average age was so high and they can't move very fast. And I'm like, I, I want to say, out of my way, out of my way, but like, I don't want to push the 90 year old grandma down when I'm trying to get through the the hallway, the narrow hallways. But so many times behind these super slow old people, like, oh my god, just let me through. The good thing is there there was uh, there wasn't any uh, crazy partying or really loud disruptive people. I didn't have to be afraid of like pissing anyone off on there and having people want to start fights with me. I, di- I didn't see that happening either. I think uh, I think I could take most of the dudes on that ship, <laughs> especially the ones I could probably just uh, push once and they'd probably break their hip. That industry is not going to do well. Anyway, that's all. 
That's all for today, this morning, tonight, whatever you want to call it. Try to bring the show back to Friday next week. I didn't intend this for this to be Saturday. It just it just happened. Um, I'll try to get this in the archives. I, I don't really feel like it right now, but I'll, I'll I'll try to be a little faster. I know I've, I've had some complaints that I've been taking too long to get in the archives. People are like, we don't care if there's fail, just put it up. And I understand that sentiment, and I know some people even like the fail, but I just started to like the show better myself when it didn't have like long pauses and. All, you guys don't even know this. It, if you'll go listen to interviews, and if if the interview I felt like the there, there were parts that didn't flow well, or the person didn't explain themselves well, or whatever it is, I'll actually go back and clean it up and, and make it sound. I, I of course I can't add anything new to it, but I can kind of uh, clean it up to where everything sounds more coherent. You'd be surprised what good work I've done with that to make some people sound uh, a lot better. But not Bart Hansen. Bart Hansen he. Bart Hansen is, is a very clear guy. But he has, you know why Bart Hansen's good at this? Because Bart Hansen does broadcasting himself. So Bart, Bart Hansen is used to speaking in this type of environment. He's used to having a show where he explains things to people. And for that reason, I can have him on. I don't, I don't have to clean up his interview. So that, that's what's good about having Bart Hansen on. Okay. Thank you, everybody. This one, this one was mostly me tonight. Like, it was, it was, Nice getting this call from Drawing Dead because this one was really mostly me, except during that and the Bart Hansen segment. And I can tell. I can tell with how my voice feels. I guess my throat, not my voice. My voice can't feel anything, but you know what I mean. My voice box. So we are looking at December 5th. Next show, Friday, December 5th, and we should have the show every Friday going forward, unless something like these headaches happen again. Uh, let's see here. I hope Eric Benzamokin and Ken Scaler finally test negative and, uh, find that they had no permanent damage from this. And I don't know what else. I hope you don't get hacked on Venmo. That'd be unfortunate. Hope I don't get hacked on Venmo. If you are the hacker listening to this show, if you're the Venmo hacker, please don't hack me. If you if you enjoy this show, say, this is what I'm going to do for Druff. Druff, as a a token of my appreciation. I'm not going to donate to the free roll, but I will not hack you. I'm not going to hack your Venmo. You don't want to hack my Venmo because there's nothing to hack. There's nothing to do with it anymore. I, I zeroed the account and there's no credit card or bank account attached to it. I, I detached it all. So don't go after me. Leave my Venmo alone. We'll see what happens with Doug Polk and Daniel Negranu. We'll see if... The ground you could turn it around, or if he's gonna fall a million bucks behind. I wouldn't be surprised by the next show if he's a million bucks behind. Someone's money that's gonna be uh, evaporating there if things don't change. It'll require a lot more bottles of wine for Negranu if he keeps having nights like that. Well, that is all. I have nothing more to say. Good night, good morning, good day to everybody. Shalom.